This is Audible. By J. R. R. Tolkien, read by Derek Jacobi. Once upon a time. There was a little dog, and his name was Rover. He was very small and very young, or he would have known better. And he was very happy playing in the garden in the sunshine with a yellow ball, or he would never have done what he did. Not every old man with ragged trousers is a bad old man. Some are bone and bottle men and have little dogs of their own, and some are gardeners, and a few, a very few, are wizards. Prowling round on a holiday, looking for something to do. This one was a wizard, the one that now walked into the story. He came wandering up the garden path in a ragged old coat with an old pipe in his mouth and an old green hat on his head. If Rover had not been so busy barking at the ball, he might have noticed the blue feather stuck in the back of the green hat, and then he would have suspected that the man was a wizard, as any other sensible little dog would. But he never saw the feather at all. When the old man stooped down and picked up the ball, he was thinking of turning it into an orange or even a bone or a piece of meat for Rover. Rover growled and said, "Put it down," without ever a "please." Of course, the wizard, being a wizard, understood perfectly, and he answered back again, "Be quiet, silly," without ever a "please." Then he put the ball in his pocket just to tease the dog and turned away. I am sorry to say that Rover immediately bit his trousers and tore out quite a piece. Perhaps he also tore out a piece of the wizard. Anyway, the old man suddenly turned round, very angry, and shouted, "Idiot! Go and be a toy!" After that, the most peculiar things began to happen. Rover was only a little dog to begin with, but he suddenly felt very much smaller. The grass seemed to grow monstrously tall and wave far above his head, and a long way away through the grass, like the sun rising through the trees of a forest, he could see the huge yellow ball, where the wizard had thrown it down again. He heard the gate click as the old man went out, but he could not see him. He tried to bark, but only a little tiny noise came out, too small for ordinary people to hear, and I don't suppose even a dog would have noticed it. So small had he become that I am sure if a cat had come along just then, she would have thought Rover was a mouse and would have eaten him. Tinker would, 
Tinker was the large black cat that lived in the same house. At the very thought of Tinker, Rover began to feel thoroughly frightened. The cats were soon put right out of his mind. The garden about him suddenly vanished, and Rover felt himself whisked off. He didn't know where. When the rush was over, he found he was in the dark, lying against a lot of hard things, and there he lay, in a stuffy box by the feel of it, very uncomfortably for a long while. He had nothing to eat or drink, but worst of all, he found he could not move. At first he thought this was because he was packed so tight, but afterwards he discovered that in the daytime he could only move very little and with a great effort, and then only when no one was looking. Only after midnight could he walk and wag his tail, and a bit stiffly at that. He had become a toy. And because he had not said please to the wizard, now, all day long, he had to sit up and beg. He was fixed like that. After what seemed a very long, dark time, he tried once more to bark loud enough to make people hear. Then he tried to bite the other things in the box with him. Stupid little toys, really only made of wood or lead, not enchanted real dogs like Rover. But it was no good. He could not bark or bite. Suddenly, someone came and took off the lid of the box and let in the light. "'We had better put a few of these animals in the window this morning, Harry,' said a voice, and a hand came into the box. "'Where did this one come from?' said the voice, as the hand took hold of Rover. "'I don't remember seeing this one before. It's no business in the threepenny box, I'm sure. Did you ever see anything so real-looking? Look at its fur and its eyes.' "'Mark him sixpence,' said Harry, "'and put him in the front of the window.' "'There, in the front of the window, in the hot sun, "'poor little Rover had to sit all the morning "'and all the afternoon till nearly tea-time, "'and all the while he had to sit up and pretend to beg, "'though really, in his inside, he was very angry indeed. "'I'll run away from the very first people that buy me,' "'he said to the other toys.' I'm real, I'm not a toy, and I won't be a toy. But I wish someone would come and buy me quick. I hate this shop, and I can't move all stuck up in the window like this. What do you want to move for? said the other toys. We don't. It's more comfortable standing still thinking of nothing. The more you rest, the longer you live. So just shut up. We can't sleep while you're talking, and there are hard times in rough nurseries in front of some of us. They would not say any more. So poor Rover had no one at all to talk to, and he was very miserable, and very sorry he had bitten the wizard's trousers. I could not say whether it was the wizard or not who sent the mother to take the little dog away from the shop. Anyway, just when Rover was feeling his miserablest, into the shop she walked with a shopping basket. She had seen Rover through the window, and thought what a nice little dog he would be for her boy. She had three boys, and one was particularly fond of little dogs, especially of little black-and-white dogs. So she bought Rover, and he was screwed up in paper and put in her basket among the things that she'd been buying for tea. Rover soon managed to wriggle his head out of the paper. He smelt cake, but he found he could not get at it, and right down there among the paper bags... He growled a little toy growl. 
Only the shrimps heard him, and they asked him what was the matter. He told them all about it, and expected them to be very sorry for him. But they only said, How would you like to be boiled? Have you ever been boiled? No, I've never been boiled as far as I remember, said Rover. Though I have sometimes been bathed, and that is not particularly nice. But I expect boiling isn't half as bad as being bewitched. Then you have certainly never been boiled, they answered. You know nothing about it. It's the very worst thing that could happen to anyone. We are still red with rage at the very idea. Rover did not like the shrimps, so he said, Never mind, they will soon eat you up, and I shall sit and watch them. After that, the shrimps had no more to say to him, and he was left to lie and wonder what sort of people had bought him. He soon found out. He was carried to a house, and the basket was set down on a table, and all the parcels were taken out. The shrimps were taken off to the larder, but Rover was given straight away to the little boy he had been bought for, who took him into the nursery and talked to him. Rover would have liked the little boy if he had not been too angry to listen to what he was saying to him. The little boy barked at him in the best dog language he could manage. He was rather good at it, but Rover never tried to answer. All the time he was thinking he had said he would run away from the first people that bought him, and he was wondering how he could do it. And all the time he had to sit up and pretend to beg, while the little boy patted him and pushed him about over the table and along the floor. At last night came, and the little boy went to bed, and Rover was put on a chair by the bedside, still begging until it was quite dark. The blind was down. But outside the moon rose up out of the sea and laid the silver path across the waters that is the way to places at the edge of the world and beyond for those that can walk on it. The father and mother and the three little boys lived close by the sea in a white house that looked right out over the waves to nowhere. When the little boys were asleep, Rover stretched his tired, stiff legs and gave a little bark that nobody heard. Except an old wicked spider up a corner. Then he jumped from the chair to the bed, and from the bed he tumbled off onto the carpet. And then he ran away out of the room and down the stairs and all over the house. Although he was very pleased to be able to move again, and having once been real and properly alive, he could jump and run a good deal better than most toys at night, he found it very difficult and dangerous getting about. He was now so small that going downstairs was almost like jumping off walls, and getting upstairs again was very tiring and awkward indeed, and it was all no use. He found all the doors shut and locked, of course, and there was not a crack or a hole by which he could creep out. So poor Rover could not run away that night, and morning found a very tired little dog sitting up and pretending to beg on the chair. Just where he had been left. The two older boys used to get up when it was fine and run along the sands before their breakfast. That morning, when they woke and pulled up the blind, they saw the sun jumping out of the sea, all fiery red, with clouds about his head, as if he had had a cold bathe and was drying himself with towels. They were soon up and dressed, and off they went down the cliff and onto the shore for a walk, and Rover went with them. Just as little boy two 
to whom Rover belonged, was leaving the bedroom, he saw Rover sitting on the chest of drawers where he had put him while he was dressing. He is begging to go out, he said, and put him in his trouser pocket. But Rover was not begging to go out, and certainly not in a trouser pocket. He wanted to rest and get ready for the night again, for he thought that this time he might find a way out and escape and wandered away and away until he came back to his home and his garden and his yellow ball on the lawn. He had a sort of idea that if once he could get back to the lawn, it might come all right, the enchantment might break, or he might wake up and find it had all been a dream. So, as the little boy scrambled down the cliff path and galloped along the sands, he tried to bark and struggle and wriggle in the pocket. Try how he would, he could only move a very little even though he was hidden and no one could see him. Still, he did what he could, and luck helped him. There was a handkerchief in the pocket, all crumpled and bundled up, so that Rover was not very deep down. And what with his efforts and the galloping of his master, before long he had managed to poke out his nose and have a sniff around. Very surprised he was, too, at what he smelt and what he saw. He had never either seen or smelt the sea before, and the country village where he had been born was miles and miles from sound or snuff of it. Suddenly, as he was leaning out, a great big bird, all white and grey, went sweeping by just over the heads of the boys, making a noise like a great cat on wings. Rover was so startled that he fell right out of the pocket, onto the soft sand, and no one heard him. The great bird flew on and away, never noticing his tiny barks, and the little boys walked on and on along the sands, and never thought about him at all. At first Rover was very pleased with himself. "'I've run away! I've run away!' he barked, toy barking that only other toys could have heard, and there were none to listen. Then he rolled over and lay in the clean, dry sand that was still cool from lying out all night under the stars. But when the little boys went by on their way home and never noticed him, and he was left all alone on the empty shore, he was not quite so pleased. The shore was deserted, except by the gulls. Beside the marks of their claws on the sand, the only other footprints to be seen were the tracks of the little boys' feet. That morning they had gone for their walk on a very lonely part of the beach that they seldom visited. Indeed, it was not often that anyone went there, for though the sand was clean and yellow and the shingle white and the sea blue with silver foam in a little cove under the grey cliffs, there was a queer feeling there, except just at early morning when the sun was new. People said that strange things came there, sometimes even in the afternoon, and by the evening the place was full of mermen and mermaidens. Not to speak of the smaller sea goblins that rode their small seahorses with bridles of green weed right up to the cliffs and left them lying in the foam at the edge of the water. Now the reason of all this queerness was simple. The oldest of all the sand sorcerers lived in that cove. Psamethysts, as the sea people called them in their splashing language. Psamathos Psamathides was this one's name, or so he said, and a great fuss he made about the proper pronunciation. But he was a wise old thing, and all sorts of strange folk came to see him, 
for he was an excellent magician, and very kindly to the right people into the bargain, if a bit crusty on the surface. The merfolk used to laugh over his jokes for weeks after one of his midnight parties, but it was not easy to find him in the daytime. He liked to lie buried in the warm sand when the sun was shining, so that not more than the tip of one of his long ears stuck out. And even if both of his ears were showing, most people, like you and me, would have taken them for bits of stick. It is possible that old Samothos knew all about Rover. He certainly knew the old wizard who had enchanted him, for magicians and wizards are few and far between, and they know one another very well, and keep an eye on one another's doings too, not always being the best of friends in private life. At any rate, there was Rover, lying in the soft sand, and beginning to feel very lonely and rather queer, and there was Psamathos, though Rover did not see him, peeping at him out of a pile of sand that the mermaids had made for him the night before. But the sand sorcerer said nothing, and Rover said nothing, and breakfast time went by, and the sun got high and hot. Rover looked at the sea, which sounded cool, and then he got a horrible fright. At first he thought that the sand must have got into his eyes, but soon he saw there could be no mistake. The sea was moving nearer and nearer, and swallowing up more and more sand, and the waves were getting bigger and bigger and more foamy all the time. The tide was coming in, and Rover was lying just below the high water mark, but he did not know anything about that. He grew more and more terrified as he watched, and thought of the splashing waves coming right up to the cliffs and washing him away into the foaming sea, far worse than any soapy bathing tub, still miserably begging. That is indeed what might have happened to him, but it did not. I dare say Psamathos had something to do with it. At any rate, I imagine that the wizard's spell was not so strong in that queer cove, so close to the residence of another magician. Certainly, when the sea had come very near, and Rover was nearly bursting with fright as he struggled to roll a bit further up the beach, he suddenly found he could move. His size was not changed, but he was no longer a toy. He could move quickly and properly with all his legs, daytime though it still was. He need not beg any more and he could run over the sands where they were harder, and he could bark, not toy barks, but real sharp little fairy dog barks, equal to his fairy dog size. He was so delighted, and he barked so loud, that if you had been there, you would have heard him then, clear and far away, like the echo of a sheepdog coming down the wind in the hills. And then the sand sorcerer suddenly stuck his head out of the sand. He certainly was ugly, and about as big as a very large dog. But to Rover, in his enchanted size, he looked hideous and monstrous. Rover sat down and stopped barking at once. "'What are you making such a noise about, little dog?' said Samothos, Samothides. This is my time for sleep. As a matter of fact, all times were times for him to go to sleep, unless something was going on which amused him, such as a dance of the mermaids in the cove, at his invitation. In that case, he got out of the sand and sat on a rock to see the fun. 
Mermaids may be very graceful in the water, but when they tried to dance on their tails on the shore, Samothos thought them comical. This is my time for sleep, he said again when Rover did not answer. Still Rover said nothing, and only wagged his tail apologetically. Do you know who I am? he asked. I am Samothos Samothides, the chief of all the Samothists. He said this several times, very proudly, pronouncing every letter, and with every P he blew a cloud of sand down his nose. Rover was nearly buried in it, and he sat there looking so frightened and so unhappy that the sand sorcerer took pity on him. In fact, he suddenly stopped looking fierce and burst out laughing. "'You are a funny little dog, little dog. <laughs> "'Indeed, I don't remember ever having seen another little dog "'that was quite such a little dog, little dog.' "'And then he laughed again, "'and after that he suddenly looked solemn. "'Have you been having any quarrels with wizards lately?' "'he asked, almost in a whisper, and he shut one eye and looked so friendly and so knowing out of the other one that Rover told him all about it. It was probably quite unnecessary, for Psamathos, as I told you, probably knew about it beforehand. Still, Rover felt all the better for talking to someone who appeared to understand and had more sense than mere toys. "'It was a wizard, all right,' said the sorcerer, when Rover had finished his tale. "'Old Artaxerxes, I should think, from your description.' He comes from Persia, but he lost his way one day, as even the best wizards do sometimes, unless they always stay at home, like me, and the first person he met on the road went and put him on the way to Pershaw instead. He has lived in those parts, except on holidays, ever since. They say he is a nimble plum-gatherer for an old man, two thousand, if he is a day, and extremely fond of cider. But that's neither here nor there. By which Samothos meant that he was getting away from what he wanted to say. The point is, what can I do for you? I don't know, said Rover. Do you want to go home? I am afraid I can't make you your proper size. At least not without asking Artaxerxes' permission first, as I don't want to quarrel with him at the moment. "'But I think I might venture to send you home. "'After all, Artaxerxes can always send you back again if he wants to. "'Though, of course, he might send you somewhere much worse than a toy shop next time, "'if he was really annoyed.' "'Rover did not like the sound of this at all, "'and he ventured to say that if he went back home so small, "'he might not be recognised.' except by Tinker the cat, and he did not very much want to be recognised by Tinker in his present state. "'Very well,' said Samothos. "'We must think of something else. In the meantime, as you are real again, would you like something to eat?' Before Rover had time to say, "'Yes, please, yes, please,' there appeared on the sands in front of him a little plate with bread and gravy and two tiny bones of just the right size, and a little drinking bowl full of water, with Drink, Puppy, Drink, written round it in small blue letters. He ate and drank all there was, before he asked, 
How did you do that? Thank you. He suddenly thought of adding the thank you, as wizards and people of that sort seemed rather touchy folk. Samothos only smiled. So Rover lay down on the hot sand and went to sleep and dreamed of bones and of chasing cats up plum trees only to see them change into wizards with green hats who threw enormous plums like marrows at him. And the wind blew gently all the time and buried him almost over his head in blown sand. That is why the little boys never found him, although they came down into the cove specially to look for him as soon as Little Boy Two found he was lost. Their father was with them this time, and when they had looked and looked till the sun began to get low and tea-time-ish, he took them back home and would not stay any longer. He knew too many queer things about that place. Little Boy Two had to be content for some time after that with an ordinary threepenny toy dog from the same shop. But somehow, although he had only had him such a short while, he did not forget his little begging dog. At the moment, however, you can think of him sitting down very mournful to his tea without any dog at all, while far away inland, the old lady who had kept Rover and spoiled him when he was an ordinary proper-sized animal was just writing out an advertisement for the lost puppy. White, with black ears, and answers to the name of Rover. And while Rover himself slept away on the sands, and Samothos dozed close by, with his short arms folded on his fat tummy. When Rover woke up, the sun was very low. The shadow of the cliffs was right across the sands, and Samothos was nowhere to be seen. A large seagull was standing close by, looking at him, and for a moment Rover was afraid that he might be going to eat him. But the seagull said, "'Good evening!' I have waited a long time for you to wake up. Samothoth said that you would wake about tea-time, but it is long past that now. Please, what are you waiting for me for, Mr. Bird? asked Rover very politely. My name is Mew, said the seagull, and I'm waiting to take you away as soon as the moon rises along the moon's path. But we have one or two things to do before that. Get up on my back and see how you like flying. Rover did not like it at all at first. It was all right while Mew was close to the ground, gliding smoothly along with his wings stretched out stiff and still. But when he shot up into the air, or turned sharp from side to side, sloping a different way each time, or stooped sudden and steep as if he was going to dive into the sea. Then the little dog, with the wind whistling in his ears, wished he was safe down on the earth again. He said so several times, but all that Mew would answer was, Hold on! We haven't begun yet! They had been flying about like this for a little, and Rover had just begun to get used to it, and rather tired of it, when suddenly... "'We're off!' cried Mew, and Rover very nearly was off, for Mew rose like a rocket steeply into the air, and then set off at a great pace straight down the wind. Soon they were so high that Rover could see far away and right over the land the sun going down behind dark hills, 
They were making for some very tall black cliffs of sheer rock, too sheer for anyone to climb. At the bottom, the sea was splashing and sucking at their feet, and nothing grew on their faces. Yet they were covered with white things, pale in the dusk. Hundreds of seabirds were sitting there on narrow ledges, sometimes talking mournfully together, sometimes saying nothing, and sometimes slipping suddenly from their perches to swoop and curve in the air before diving down to the sea far below, where the waves looked like little wrinkles. This was where Mew lived, and he had several people to see, including the oldest and most important of all the black-backed gulls. And messages to collect before he set out, so he set Rover down on one of the narrow ledges, much narrower than a doorstep, and told him to wait there and not to fall off. You may be sure that Rover took care not to fall off, and that with a stiff sideways wind blowing, he did not like the feeling of it at all, crouching as close as he could against the face of the cliff and whimpering. It was altogether a very nasty place for a bewitched and worried little dog to be in. At last, the sunlight faded out of the sky entirely, and a mist was on the sea, and the first stars showed in the gathering dark. Then, above the mist, far out across the sea, the moon rose round and yellow, and began to lay its shining path on the water. Soon after, Mew came back and picked up Rover, who had begun to shiver miserably. The bird's feathers seemed warm and comfortable after the cold ledge on the cliff, and he snuggled in as close as he could. Then Mew leapt into the air far above the sea, and all the other gulls sprang off their ledges and cried and wailed goodbye to them, as off they sped along the moon's path, that now stretched straight from the shore to the dark edge of nowhere. Rover did not know in the least where the moon's path led to, and at present he was much too frightened and excited to ask. And anyway, he was beginning to get used to extraordinary things happening to him. As they flew along above the silver shimmer on the sea, the moon rose higher and grew whiter and more bright, till no stars dared stay anywhere near it, and it was left shining all alone in the eastern sky. No doubt Mew was going by Psamathos' orders to where Psamathos wanted him to go, and no doubt Psamathos helped Mew with magic, for he certainly flew faster and straighter than even the great gulls ordinarily fly, even straight down the wind when they are in a hurry. Yet it was ages before Rover saw anything except the moonlight and the sea below, and all the time the moon got bigger and bigger, and the air got colder and colder. Suddenly, on the edge of the sea, he saw a dark thing, and it grew as they flew towards it, until he could see that it was an island. Over the water and up to them came the sound of a tremendous barking, a noise made up of all the different kinds and sizes of barks there are: yaps and yelps and yammers and yowls, growling and grizzling, wickering and whining, snickering and snarling, mumping and moaning, and the most enormous baying, like a giant bloodhound in the backyard of an ogre. All Rover's fur around his neck suddenly became very real again, and stood up stiff as bristles, and he thought he would like to go down and quarrel with all the dogs there at once. Until he remembered how small he was. That's the Isle of Dogs," 
said Mew. Or rather, the Isle of Lost Dogs, where all the lost dogs go that are deserving or lucky. It isn't a bad place, I'm told, for dogs, and they can make as much noise as they like without anyone telling them to be quiet or throwing anything at them. They have a beautiful concert, all barking together their favourite noises whenever the moon shines bright. They tell me there are bone trees there, too, with fruit like juicy meat bones that drops off the trees when it's ripe. No, we are not going there just now. You see, you can't be called exactly a dog, though you are no longer quite a toy. In fact, Samothos was rather puzzled, I believe, to know what to do with you when you said you didn't want to go home. What are we going to, then? asked Rover. He was disappointed at not having a closer look at the Isle of Dogs, after he heard of the bone trees. Straight up the moon's path to the edge of the world, then over the edge and on to the moon. That's what old Samothos said. Rover did not like the idea of going over the edge of the world at all, and the moon looked a cold sort of place. Why to the moon? he asked. There are lots of places on the world I've never been to. I never heard of there being bones in the moon, or even dogs. There is at least one dog, for the man in the moon keeps one. And since he is a decent old fellow, as well as the greatest of all magicians, there are sure to be bones for the dog, and probably for visitors. As for why you are being sent there, I dare say you will find that out in good time if you keep your wits about you and don't waste time grumbling. I think it is very kind of Samothos to bother about you at all. In fact, I don't understand why he does. It isn't like him to do things without a good big reason, and you don't seem good or big. Thank you, said Rover, feeling crushed. It is very kind of all these wizards to trouble themselves about me, I'm sure, though it is rather upsetting. You never know what will happen next when once you get mixed up with wizards and their friends. It is very much better luck than any yapping little pet puppy dog deserves, said the seagull. And after that, they had no more conversation for a long while. The moon got bigger and brighter, and the world below got darker and farther off. At last, all of a sudden, the world came to an end, and Rover could see the stars shining up out of the blackness underneath. Far down, he could see the white spray in the moonlight, where waterfalls fell over the world's edge and dropped straight into space. It made him feel most uncomfortably giddy, and he nestled into Mew's feathers and shut his eyes for a long, long time. When he opened them again, the moon was all laid out below them, a new white world shining like snow, with wide-open spaces of pale blue and green where the tall pointed mountains threw their long shadows far across the floor. On top of one of the tallest of these, one so tall that it seemed to stab up towards them as Mew swept down, Rover could see a white tower. It was white, with pink and pale green lines in it, shimmering, 
as if the tower were built of millions of seashells, still wet with foam and gleaming. And the tower stood on the edge of a white precipice, white as a cliff of chalk, but shining with moonlight more brightly than a pane of glass far away on a cloudless night. There was no path down that cliff, as far as Rover could see, but that did not matter at the moment, for Mew was sailing swiftly down, and soon he settled right on the roof of the tower, at a dizzy height above the moon world that made the cliffs by the sea where Mew lived seem low and safe. To Rover's great surprise, a little door in the roof immediately opened close beside them, and an old man with a long silvery beard popped his head out. "'Not bad going, that,' he said. "'I've been timing you ever since you passed over the edge. "'A thousand miles a minute, I should reckon. "'You're in a hurry this morning. <laughs> "'I'm glad you didn't bump into my dog. "'Where in the moon has he got to now, I wonder?' "'He drew out an enormously long telescope and put it to one eye. "'There he is! There he is!' he shouted. "'Worrying the moonbeams again, drat him! "'Come down, sir! Come down, sir!' he called up into the air, "'and then began to whistle a long, clear, silver note. "'Rover looked up into the air, thinking that this funny old man "'must be quite mad to whistle to his dog up in the sky. "'But, to his astonishment, he saw, far up above the tower, "'a little white dog on white wings, "'chasing things that looked like transparent butterflies.' "'Rover! Rover!' called the old man. And just as our rover jumped up on Mew's back to say, "'Here I am!' without waiting to wonder how the old man knew his name, he saw the little flying dog dive straight down out of the sky and settle on the old man's shoulders. Then he realised that the man in the moon's dog must also be called Rover. He was not at all pleased.' But as nobody took any notice of him, he sat down again and began to growl to himself. The man in the moon's rover had good ears, and he at once jumped onto the roof of the tower and began to bark like mad. And then he sat down and growled. Who brought that other dog here? What other dog? said the man. That silly little puppy on the seagull's back, said the moon dog. Then, of course, Rover jumped up again and barked his loudest. Silly little puppy yourself! Who said that you could call yourself Rover? A thing more like a cat or a bat than a dog! From which you can see that they were going to be very friendly before long. That is the way, anyhow, the little dogs usually talk to strangers of their own kind. "'Oh, fly away, you two, and stop making such a noise. "'I want to talk to the postman,' said the man. "'Come on, tiny tot,' said the moon dog. "'And then Rover remembered what a tiny tot he was, "'even beside the moon dog, who was only small, "'and instead of barking something rude, he only said, "'I would like to, if only I had some wings and knew how to fly.' "'Wings?' said the man in the moon. That's easy. Have a pair and be off.
laughed and actually threw him off his back right over the edge of the tower's roof. But Rover had only gasped once and had only begun to imagine himself falling and falling down like a stone onto the white rocks in the valley miles below when he discovered that he had got a beautiful pair of white wings with black spots to match himself. All the same, he had fallen a long way before he could stop, as he wasn't used to wings. It took him a little while to get really used to them, though long before the man had finished talking to Mew, he was already trying to chase the moon dog round the tower. He was just beginning to get tired by these first efforts, when the moon dog dived down to the mountain top and settled at the edge of the precipice, at the foot of the walls. Rover went down after him, and soon they were sitting side by side, taking breath with their tongues hanging out. So, you are called Rover, after me, said the moon dog. Not after you, said our Rover. I'm sure my mistress had never heard of you when she gave me my name. That doesn't matter. I was the first dog that was ever called Rover, thousands of years ago. So you must have been called Rover after me. I was a Rover too. I never would stop anywhere or belong to anyone before I came here. I did nothing but run away from the time I was a puppy. And I kept on running and roving until one fine morning, a very fine morning, with the sun in my eyes, I fell over the world's edge, chasing a butterfly. A nasty sensation, I can tell you. Luckily, the moon was just passing under the world at the moment, and after a terrible time falling right through clouds and bumping into shooting stars and that sort of thing, I tumbled onto it, slap into one of the enormous silver nets that the giant grey spiders here spin from mountain to mountain. I fell, and the spider was just coming down his ladder to pickle me and carry me off to his larder. When the man in the moon appeared... He sees absolutely everything that happens on this side of the moon with that telescope of his. The spiders are afraid of him, because he only lets them alone if they spin silver threads and ropes for him. He more than suspects that they catch his moonbeams, and that he won't allow. Though they pretend to live only on dragon moths and shadow bats, he found moonbeams' wings in that spider's larder, and he turned him into a lump of stone as quick as kiss your hand. Then he picked me up and patted me and said, "'That was a nasty drop. "'You had better have a pair of wings to prevent any more accidents. "'Now fly off and amuse yourself. "'Don't worry the moonbeams and don't kill my white rabbits "'and come home when you feel hungry. "'The window is usually open on the roof.' "'I thought he was a decent sort, but rather mad. "'But don't you make that mistake. "'About his being mad, I mean.' I daren't really hurt his moonbeams or his rabbits. He can turn you into dreadfully uncomfortable shapes. Now, tell me why you came with the postman. The postman? said Rover. Yes, Mew, the old sand sorcerer's postman, of course, said the moon dog. Rover had hardly finished telling the tale of his adventures when they heard the man whistling. Up they shot to the roof. There the old man was sitting with his legs dangling over the ledge, throwing envelopes away as fast as he opened the letters. The wind took them, whirling off into the sky, and Mew flew after them and caught them and put them back into a little bag. "'I've just been reading about you, Rover Random, my dog,' he said. "'Rover Random, I call you, and Rover Random you'll have to be, 
Can't have two rovers about here. And I quite agree with my friend Samothos. I'm not going to put in any ridiculous purr to please him. That you would better stop here for a little while. I've also got a letter from Artaxerxes, if you know who that is, and even if you don't, telling me to send you straight back. He seems mighty annoyed with you for running away, and with Samothos for helping you. But we won't bother about him, and neither need you, as long as you stay here. Now, fly off and amuse yourselves, don't bury the moonbeams, and don't kill my white rabbits, and come home when you're hungry. The window on the roof is usually open. Goodbye. He vanished immediately into thin air, and anybody who has never been there will tell you how extremely thin the moon air is. Well, goodbye, Rover Random, said Mew. I hope you enjoy making trouble among the wizards. Farewell for the present. Don't kill the white rabbits, and all will yet be well, and you will get home safe, whether you want to or not. Then Mew flew off at such a pace that before you could say whiz, he was a dot in the sky, and then had vanished. Rover was now not only turned into toy size, but his name had been altered, and he was left all alone on the moon. All alone except for the man in the moon and his dog. Rover Random, as we had better call him too for the present to avoid confusion, didn't mind. His new wings were great fun, and the moon turned out to be a remarkably interesting place, so that he forgot to ponder any more why Psamathos had sent him there. It was a long time before he found out. In the meanwhile, he had all sorts of adventures, by himself and with the moon rover. He didn't often fly about in the air far from the tower, for in the moon, and especially on the white side, the insects are very large and fierce, and often so pale and so transparent and so silent that you hardly hear or see them coming. The moonbeams only shine and flutter, and Rover Random was not frightened of them. The big white dragon moths with fiery eyes were much more alarming, and there were sword flies and glass beetles with jaws like steel traps and pale unicornets with stings like spears and fifty-seven varieties of spiders, ready to eat anything they could catch. And worse than the insects were the shadow bats. Rover Random did what the birds do on that side of the moon. He flew very little except near at home, or in open spaces with a good view all round and far from insect hiding places, and he walked about very quietly, especially in the woods. Most things there went about very quietly, and the birds seldom even twittered. What sounds there were were made chiefly by the plants, the flowers, the white bells, the fair bells, and the silver bells, the tinkle bells, and the ring of roses, the rhyme royals, and the penny whistles, the tin trumpets, and the cream horns, a very pale cream and many others with untranslatable names, made tunes all day long. And the feather grasses and the ferns, fairy fiddle-strings, polyphonies and brass-tongues and the kraken in the woods, and all the reeds by the milk-white ponds, they kept up the music, softly, even in the night. 
In fact, there was always a faint, thin music going on. But the birds were silent, and very tiny most of them were, hopping about in the grey grass beneath the trees, dodging the flies and the swooping flutterbys. And many of them had lost their wings, or forgotten how to use them. Roverandum used to startle them in their little ground nests as he stalked quietly through the pale grass, hunting the little white mice, or snuffing after grey squirrels on the edges of the woods. The woods were filled with silver bells, all ringing softly together when he first saw them. The tall black trunks stood straight up, high as churches, out of the silver carpet, and they were roofed with pale blue leaves that never fell, so that not even the longest telescope on earth has ever seen those tall trunks or the silver bells beneath them. Later in the year, the trees all burst together into pale golden blossoms, and since the woods of the moon are nearly endless, no doubt that alters the look of the moon from below on the world. But you must not imagine that all of Roverandom's time was spent creeping about like that. After all, the dogs knew that the man's eye was on them, and they did a good many adventurous things, and had a great deal of fun. Sometimes they wandered off together for miles and miles, and forgot to go back to the tower for days. Once or twice they went up into the mountains, far away, till, looking back, they could see the moon tower only as a shining needle in the distance. And they sat on the white rocks and watched the tiny sheep, no bigger than the man in the moon's rover, wandering in herds over the hillsides. Every sheep carried a golden bell, and every bell rang each time each sheep moved a foot forward to get a fresh mouthful of grey grass. And all the bells rang in tune, and all the sheep shone like snow, and no one ever worried them. The rovers were much too well brought up, and afraid of the man, to do so. And there were no other dogs in all the moon, nor cows, nor horses, nor lions, nor tigers, nor wolves. In fact, nothing larger on four feet than rabbits and squirrels, and toy-sized at that, except just occasionally to be seen standing solemnly in thought an enormous white elephant, almost as big as a donkey. I haven't mentioned the dragons, because they don't come into the story just yet, and anyway they lived a very long way off, far from the tower, being all very afraid of the man in the moon, except one and even he was half afraid. Whenever the dogs did go back to the tower and fly in at the window, they always found their dinner just ready, as if they had arranged the time. But they seldom saw or heard the man about. He had a workshop down in the cellars, and clouds of white steam and grey mist used to come up the stairs and float away out of the upper windows. "'What does he do with himself all day?' said Rover Random to Rover. "'Do?' said the moon-dog. "'Oh, he's always pretty busy. "'Though he seems busier than I have seen him for a long time, "'since you arrived. "'Making dreams, I believe. "'What does he make dreams for?' "'Oh, for the other side of the moon. "'No one has dreams on this side. "'The dreamers all go round to the back.' "'Rover Random sat down and scratched.' He didn't think the explanation explained. 
The moon dog would not tell him any more, all the same. And if you ask me, I don't think he knew much about it. However, something happened soon after that that put such questions out of Rover Random's mind altogether for a while. The two dogs went and had a very exciting adventure, much too exciting while it lasted, but that was their own fault. They went away for several days, much farther than they had ever been before since Rover Random came, and they did not bother to think where they were going. In fact, they went and lost themselves, and mistaking the way, got farther and farther from the tower when they thought they were getting back. The moon dog said he had roamed all over the white side of the moon and knew it all by heart. He was very apt to exaggerate, but eventually he had to admit that the country seemed a bit strange. "'I'm afraid it's a very long time since I came here,' he said, "'and I'm beginning to forget it a bit.' As a matter of fact, he had never been there before at all. Unawares, they had wandered too near to the shadowy edge of the dark side, where all sorts of half-forgotten things linger, and paths and memories get confused.' Just when they felt sure that at last they were on the right way home, they were surprised to find some tall mountains rising before them, silent, bare, and ominous. And these the moon dog made no pretense of ever having seen before. They were grey, not white, and looked as if they were made of old, cold ashes, and long, dim valleys lay among them without a sign of life. Then it began to snow. It often does snow in the moon, but the snow, as they call it, is usually nice and warm and quite dry, and turns into fine white sand and all blows away. This was more like our salt. It was wet and cold, and it was dirty. It makes me homesick, said the moon dog. It's just like the stuff that used to fall in the town when I was a puppy. On the world, you know. Oh, the chimneys there, tall as moon trees, and the black smoke and the red furnace fires. I get a bit tired of white at times. It's very difficult to get really dirty on the moon. This rather shows up the moon dog's low tastes. And as there were no such towns on the world hundreds of years ago, you can also see that he had exaggerated the length of time since he fell over the edge a very great deal, too. However, just at that moment, a specially large and dirty flake hit him in the left eye, and he changed his mind. "'I think this stuff has missed its way and fallen off the beastly old world,' he said. "'Rat and rabbit it! And we seem to have missed our way altogether, too!' Oh, bat and bother it. Let's find a hole to creep in. It took some time to find a hole of any sort, and they were very wet and cold before they did. In fact, so miserable that they took the first shelter they came to, and no precautions, which are the first things you ought to take in unfamiliar places on the edge of the moon. The shelter they crawled into was not a hole, but a cave, and a very large cave, too. It was dark, but it was dry. Oh, this is nice and warm, said the moon dog, and he closed his eyes and went off into a doze almost immediately. Ow! 
He yelped not long afterwards, waking straight up dog fashion out of a comfortable dream. I'm much too warm! He jumped up. He could hear little Rover Random barking away further inside the cave, and when he went to see what was up, he saw a trickle of fire creeping along the floor towards them. He did not feel homesick for red furnaces just then, and he seized little Rover Random by the back of his little neck and bolted out of the cave as quick as lightning and flew up to a peak of stone just outside. There the two sat in the snow, shivering and watching, which was very silly of them. They ought to have flown off home, or anywhere, faster than the wind. The moon dog did not know everything about the moon, as you see, or he would have known that this was the lair of the great white dragon, the one that was only half afraid of the man, and scarcely that when he was angry. The man himself was a bit bothered by this dragon. That dratted creature was what he called him, when he referred to him at all. All the white dragons originally come from the moon, as you probably know, but this one had been to the world and back, so he had learned a thing or two. He fought the red dragon in Care Dragon in Merlin's time, as you will find in all the more up-to-date history books, after which the other dragon was very red. Later he did lots more damage in the Three Islands, and went to live on the top of Snowdon for a time— People did not bother to climb up while that lasted, except for one man, and the dragon caught him drinking out of a bottle. That man finished in such a hurry that he left the bottle on the top, and his example has been followed by many people since. A long time since, and not until the dragon had flown off to Gwynfa, some time after King Arthur's disappearance, at a time when dragon's tails were esteemed a great delicacy by the Saxon kings. Gwynfa is not so far from the world's edge, and it is an easy flight from there to the moon for a dragon so titanic and so enormously bad as this one had become. He now lived on the moon's edge, for he was not quite sure how much the man in the moon could do with his spells and contrivances. All the same, he actually dared at times to interfere with the colour scheme. Sometimes he let real red and green flames out of his cave when he was having a dragon feast or was in a tantrum, and clouds of smoke were frequent. Once or twice he had been known to turn the whole moon red, or put it out altogether. On such uncomfortable occasions, the man in the moon shut himself up and his dog, and all he said was, "'That dreaded creature again!' He never explained what creature, or where he lived, he simply went down into the cellars, uncorked his best spells, and got things cleared up as quick as possible. Now you know all about it, and if the dogs had known half as much, they would never have stopped there. But stop they did, at least as long as it has taken me to explain about the white dragon, and by that time the whole of him, white with green eyes and leaking green fire at every joint and snorting black smoke like a steamer, had come out of the cave. Then he let off the most awful bellow. The mountains rocked and echoed, and the snow dried up. Avalanches tumbled down, and waterfalls stood still. That dragon had wings, like the sails that ships had when they still were ships and not steam engines, and he did not disdain to kill anything from a mouse to an emperor's daughter. He meant to kill those two dogs, 
and he told them so several times before he got up into the air. That was his mistake. They both whizzed off their rock like rockets, and went away down the wind at a pace that Mew himself would have been proud of. The dragon came after them, flapping like a flap-dragon, and snapping like a snap-dragon, knocking the tops of mountains off, and setting all the sheep-bells ringing like a town on fire. Now you see why they all had bells. Very luckily, down the wind was the right direction. Also, a most stupendous rocket went up from the tower as soon as the bells got frantic. It could be seen all over the moon, like a golden umbrella bursting into a thousand silver tassels, and it caused an unpredicted fall of shooting stars on the world not long after. If it was a guide to the poor dogs, it was also meant as a warning to the dragon. But he had got far too much steam up to take any notice. So the chase went fiercely on. If you have ever seen a bird chasing a butterfly... And if you can imagine a more than gigantic bird chasing two perfectly insignificant butterflies among white mountains, then you can just begin to imagine the twistings, dodgings, hairbreadth escapes, and the wild zigzag rush of that flight home. More than once, before they got even halfway, Rover Random's tail was singed by the dragon's breath. What was the man in the moon doing? Well... He let off a truly magnificent rocket, and after that he said, "'Drat that creature!' and also, "'Drat those puppies! They will bring on an eclipse before it is due!' And then he went back down into the cellars and uncorked a dark black spell that looked like jellified tar and honey, and smelt like the 5th of November and cabbage boiling over. At that very moment... The dragon swooped up right above the tower and lifted a huge claw to bat Rover Random, bat him right off into the blank nowhere. But he never did. The man in the moon shot the spell up out of a lower window and hit the dragon splush on the stomach, where all dragons are peculiarly tender, and knocked him crank sideways. He lost all his wits and flew bang into a mountain before he could get his steering right. And it was difficult to say which was most damaged, his nose or the mountain. Both were out of shape. So the two dogs fell in through the top window and never got back their breath for a week. And the dragon slowly made his lopsided way home, where he rubbed his nose for months. The next eclipse was a failure, for the dragon was too busy licking his tummy to attend to it. And he never got the black splashes off where the spell hit him. I'm afraid they will last forever. They call him the mottled monster now. The next day the man in the moon looked at Rover Random and said, That was a narrow squeak. You seem to have explored the white side pretty well for a young dog. I think, when you got your breath back, it will be time for you to visit the other side. Can I come too? asked the moondog. "'It wouldn't be good for you,' said the man, "'and I don't advise you to. "'You might see things that would make you more homesick "'than fire and chimney stacks, "'and that would turn out as bad as dragons.' "'The moondog did not blush, because he could not, "'and he did not say anything, "'but he went and sat down in a corner "'and wondered how much the old man knew "'of everything that went on, "'and everything that was said, too.' 
Also, for a little while, he wondered what exactly the old man meant. But that did not bother him long. He was a light-hearted fellow. As for Reverendum, when he had got his breath back a few days later, the man in the moon came and whistled for him. Then down and down they went together, down the stairs and into the cellars, which were cut inside the cliff and had small windows looking out of the side of the precipice over the wide places of the moon, and then down secret steps that seemed to lead right under the mountains, until, after a long while, they came into a completely dark place and stopped though Rover Random's head went on turning giddily after the miles of corkscrewing downwards. In complete darkness, the man in the moon shone palely all by himself like a glowworm, and that was all the light they had. It was quite enough, though, to see the door by, a big door in the floor. This the old man pulled up, and as it was lifted, darkness seemed to well up out of the opening like a fog, so that Rover Random could no longer see even the faint glimmering of the man through it. "'Down you go, good dog,' said his voice out of the blackness. "'And you won't be surprised to be told that Rover Random was not a good dog and would not budge. He backed into the furthest corner of the little room and set his ears back. He was more frightened of that hole than of the old man. But it was not any good. The man in the moon simply picked him up and dropped him, plump into the black hole, and as he fell and fell into nothing, Rover Random heard him calling out already far above him, "'Drop straight, and then fly on with the wind. Wait for me at the other end.' That ought to have comforted him, but it did not. Rover Random always said afterwards that he did not think even falling over the world's edge could be worse, and that anyway it was the nastiest part of all his adventures.' and still made him feel as if he had lost his tummy whenever he thought of it. You can tell he is still thinking of it when he cries out and twitches in his sleep on the hearthrug. All the same, it came to an end. After a long while, his falling gradually slowed down, until at last he almost stopped. The rest of the way he had to use his wings, and it was like flying up, up through a big chimney, luckily with a strong draught helping him along. Jolly glad he was when he got at last to the top. There he lay, panting at the edge of the hole at the other end, waiting obediently and anxiously for the man in the moon. It was a good while before he appeared, and Rover Random had time to see that he was at the bottom of a deep, dark valley, ringed round with low, dark hills, Black clouds seemed to rest upon their tops, and beyond the clouds was just one star. Suddenly the little dog felt very sleepy. A bird in some gloomy bushes nearby was singing a drowsy song that seemed strange and wonderful to him after the little dumb birds of the other side to which he had got used. He shut his eyes. "'Wake up, you doglet!' called the voice and Rover Random bounced up just in time to see the man climbing out of the hole on a silver rope, which a large grey spider, much larger than himself, was fastening to a tree close by. The man climbed out. "'Thank you,' he said to the spider. "'And now be off!' And off the spider went, and was glad to go. There are black spiders on the dark side, poisonous ones, if not as large as the monsters of the white side. 
They hate anything white or pale or light, and especially pale spiders, which they hate like rich relations that pay infrequent visits. The grey spider dropped back down the rope into the hole, and a black spider dropped out of the tree at the same moment. Now then, cried the old man to the black spider, come back there. That is my private door, and don't you forget it. Just make me a nice hammock from those two yew trees, and I'll forgive you. It's a longish climb down and up through the middle of the moon, he said to Rover Random, and I think a little rest before they arrive would do me good. They are very nice, but they need a good deal of energy. Of course, I could take to wings, only I wear them out so fast. Also, it will mean widening the hole, as my size in wings would hardly fit, and I'm a beautiful rope climber. Now, what do you think of this side? the man continued. Dark, with a pale sky, while Tother was pale with the dark sky, eh? Quite a change, only there is not much more real colour here than there, not what I call real colour, loud and lots of it together. There are a few gleams under the trees, if you look, fireflies and diamond beetles and ruby moths and such like. Too tiny, though, too tiny, like all the bright things on this side. And they live a terrible life of it, what with owls like eagles and as black as coal, and crows like vultures and as numerous as sparrows, and all these black spiders. And it's the black velvet bob-owlers flying altogether in clouds that I personally like least. They won't even get out of my way. I hardly dare give out a glimmer, or they all get tangled in my beard. Still, this side has its charms, young dog. And one of them is that nobody, and no doggy on earth, has ever seen it before. When they were awake. Except you. Then the man suddenly jumped into the hammock, which the black spider had been spinning for him while he was talking, and went fast asleep in a twinkling. Rover Random sat alone and watched him, with a wary eye for black spiders too. Little gleams of firelight, red, green, gold, and blue, flashed and shifted here and there beneath the dark, windless trees. The sky was pale, with strange stars above the floating wisps of velvet cloud. Thousands of nightingales seemed to be singing in some other valley, faint beyond the nearer hills. And then Rover Random heard the sound of children's voices, or the echo of the echo of their voices, coming down a sudden, soft-stirring breeze. He sat up and barked, the loudest bark he had barked since this tale began. Oh, bless me! cried the man in the moon, jumping up wide awake, straight out of the hammock onto the grass, and nearly onto River Random's tail. Have they arrived already? Who? asked River Random. Well, if you didn't hear them, what did you yap for? said the old man. Come on, this is the way. They went down a long, grey path, marked at the sides with faintly luminous stones, and overhung with bushes. It led on and on, and the bushes became pine trees, and the air was filled with the smell of pine trees at night. 
Then the path began to climb, and after a time they came to the top of the lowest point in the ring of hills that had shut them in. Then Rover Random looked down into the next valley, and all the nightingales stopped singing, like turning off a tap, and children's voices floated up, clear and sweet, for they were singing a fair song with many voices blended to one music. Down the hillside raced and jumped the old man and the dog together. My word, the man in the moon could leap from rock to rock. Come on, come on, he called. I may be a bearded billy goat, a wild dog garden goat, but you can't catch me. And Rover Random had to fly to keep up with him. And so they came suddenly to a sheer precipice, not very high, but dark and polished like jet. Looking over, Rover Random saw below a garden in twilight. And as he looked, it changed to the soft glow of an afternoon sun, as though he could not see where the soft light came from that lit all that sheltered place and never strayed beyond. Grey fountains were there, and long lawns, and children everywhere, dancing sleepily, walking dreamily, and talking to themselves. Some stirred as if just waking from deep sleep. Some were already running wide awake and laughing. They were digging, gathering flowers, building tents and houses, chasing butterflies, kicking balls, climbing trees, and all were singing. Where did they all come from? asked Rover Random, bewildered and delighted. From their homes and beds, of course, said the man. And how do they get here? That I ain't going to tell you at all. And you'll never find out. You are lucky, and so is anyone to get here by any way at all. But the children don't come by your way at any rate. Some come often, and some come seldom. And I make most of the dream. Some of it they bring with them, of course, like lunch to school. And some, I am sorry to say, the spiders make. But not in this valley. And not if I catch em at it. And now, let's go and join the party. The cliff of jet sloped steeply down. It was much too smooth even for a spider to climb. Not that any spider ever dared try, for he might slide down. But neither he nor anything else could get up again. And in that garden were hidden sentinels, not to mention the man in the moon, without whom no party was complete. For they were his own parties. And he now slid bang into the middle of this one. He just sat down and tobogganed, swish, right into the midst of a crowd of children, with Rover Random rolling on top of him, quite forgetting that he could fly. Or could have flown. For when he picked himself up at the bottom, he found that his wings had gone. What's that little dog doing? said a small boy to the man. Rover Random was going round and round like a top, trying to look at his own back. Looking for his wings, my boy. He thinks he has rubbed them off on the toboggan run. But they're in my pocket. No wings allowed down here. People don't get out of here without leave, do they? No, Daddy Longbeard, said about twenty children all at once. And one boy caught hold of the old man's beard and climbed up it onto his shoulder. Rover Random expected to see him turned into a moth or a piece of India rubber or something on the spot. But, my word, 
"'You're a bit of a rope-climber, my boy,' said the man. "'I'll have to give you lessons.' "'And he tossed the boy right up into the air. "'He did not fall down again. "'Not a bit of it. "'He stuck up in the air. "'And the man in the moon threw him a silver rope "'that he slipped out of his pocket. "'Just climb down that, quick,' he said. "'And down the boy slithered into the old man's arms, "'where he was well tickled. "'You'll wake up if you laugh so loud,' said the man. "'and he put him down on the grass and walked off into the crowd. "'Rover Random was left to amuse himself, "'and he was just making for a beautiful yellow ball, "'just like my own at home,' he thought, "'when he heard a voice he knew. "'There's my little dog,' it said. "'There's my little dog! "'I always thought he was real. "'Fancy him being here when I've looked and looked all over the sands "'and called and whistled every day for him!' As soon as Roborandum heard that voice, he sat up and begged. "'My little begging dog!' said Little Boy too, of course, and he ran up and patted him. "'Where have you been to?' But all Roborandum could say at first was, "'Can you hear what I'm saying?' "'Of course I can,' said Little Boy too. "'But when Mummy brought you home before, you wouldn't listen to me at all, although I did my best bark-talk for you.' "'and I don't believe you tried to say much to me either. "'You seem to be thinking of something else.' "'Roverandum said how sorry he was, "'and he told the little boy how he had fallen out of his pocket, "'and all about Samothos and Mew "'and many of the adventures he had had since he was lost. "'That is how the little boy and his brothers "'got to know about the odd fellow in the sand "'and learned a lot of other useful things "'they might otherwise have missed.' Little Boy, too, thought that Roverandum was a splendid name. "'I shall call you that, too,' he said. "'And don't forget that you still belong to me.' Then they had a game, with a ball, and a game of hide-and-seek, and a run, and a long walk, and a rabbit hunt, with no result, of course, except excitement. The rabbits were exceedingly shadowy, and much splashing in the ponds, and all kinds of other things, one after another, for endless ages. And they got to like one another better and better. The little boy was rolling over and over on the dewy grass, in a very bedtimeish light, but no one seems to mind wet grass or bedtime in that place. And the little dog was rolling over and over with him, and standing on his head like no dog on earth ever had done since Mother Hubbard's dead dog did it. And the little boy was laughing till he... "'vanished, quite suddenly, "'and left Roverandum all alone on the lawn. "'He's waked up, that's all,' said the man in the moon, "'who suddenly appeared. "'Gone home, and about time too. "'Well, it's only a quarter of an hour before his breakfast time. "'He'll miss his walk on the sands this morning.' Well, I am afraid it's our time to go too.
So, very reluctantly, Rover Random went back to the white side with the old man. They walked all the way, and it took a very long time. And Rover Random did not enjoy it as much as he ought to have done, for they saw all kinds of queer things, and had many adventures. Perfectly safe, of course, with the man in the moon close at hand. That was just as well, as there were lots of nasty, creepy things in the bogs that would otherwise have grabbed the little dog quick. The dark side was as wet as the white side was dry, and full of the most extraordinary plants and creatures, which I would tell you about if Rover Random had taken any particular notice of them. But he did not. He was thinking of the garden and the little boy. At last they came to the grey edge, and they looked past the cinder valleys where many of the dragons lived, through a gap in the mountains to the great white plain and the shining cliffs. They saw the world rise, a pale green and gold moon, huge and round above the shoulders of the lunar mountains. And Rover Random thought, "That is where my little boy lives." It seemed a terrible and enormous way away. Do dreams come true? He asked. Some of mine do," said the old man. "Some, but not all, and seldom any of them straight away, or quite like they were in dreaming them. But why do you want to know about dreams? I was only wondering," said Rover Random. "About that little boy," said the man. "I thought so." He then pulled a telescope out of his pocket. It opened out to an enormous length. A little look will do you no harm, I think," he said. Rover Random looked through it. When he had managed at last to shut one eye and keep the other open, he saw the world plainly. First, he saw the far end of the moon's path falling straight into the sea, and he thought he saw, faint and rather thin, long lines of small people. Sailing swiftly down it, but he could not be quite sure. The moonlight quickly faded, sunlight began to grow, and suddenly there was the cove of the sand sorcerer. But no sign of Samothos. Samothos did not allow himself to be peeped at, and after a while, the two little boys walked into the round picture, going hand in hand along the shore, looking for shells or for me. Wondered the dog. Very soon the picture shifted, and he saw the little boy's father's white house on the cliff, with its garden running down to the sea. And at the gate he saw an unpleasant surprise: the old wizard, sitting on a stone, smoking his pipe, as if he had nothing to do but watch there for ever, with his old green hat on the back of his head and his waistcoat unbuttoned. What's old Arthur? What do you call him? Doing at the gate? Riverandom asked. I should have thought he had forgotten about me long ago. And aren't his holidays over yet? No, he's waiting for you, my doglet. He hasn't forgotten. If you turn up there just now, real or toy, he'll put some new bewitchment on you pretty quick. It isn't that he minds so much about his trousers; they were soon mended. But he is very annoyed with Samothos for interfering, and Samothos hasn't finished making his arrangements yet for dealing with him. Just then, Rover Random saw Artaxerxes' hat 
blown off by the wind, and off the wizard ran after it. And plain to see, he had a wonderful patch on his trousers, an orange-coloured patch with black spots. I should have thought that a wizard could have managed to patch his trousers better than that, said Roverandum. But he thinks he has managed it beautifully, said the old man. He bewitched a piece off somebody's window curtains. They got fire insurance, and he got a splash of colour, and both are satisfied. Still, you are right. He is failing, I do believe. Sad, after all these centuries, to see a man going off his magic. But lucky for you, perhaps. Then the man in the moon closed the telescope with a snap, and off they went again. "'Here are your wings again,' he said, when they had reached the tower. "'Now fly off and amuse yourself. "'Don't worry the moonbeams, don't kill my white rabbits, "'and come back when you feel hungry, or have any other sort of pain.' "'Rover Random at once flew off to find the moon dog "'and tell him about the other side. "'But the other dog was a bit jealous of a visitor "'being allowed to see things which he could not, "'and he pretended not to be interested. Mm, "'Sounds a nasty part altogether,' he growled. I'm sure I don't want to see it. I suppose you'll be bored with the white side now, and only having me to go about with, instead of all your two-legged friends. It's a pity the Persian wizard is such a sticker and you can't go home. Rover Random was rather hurt, and he told the moon dog over and over again that he was jolly glad to be back at the tower, and would never be bored with the white side. They soon settled down to be good friends again and did lots and lots of things together. And yet what the moondog had said in bad temper turned out to be true. It was not Roverandum's fault, and he did his best not to show it, but somehow none of the adventures or explorations seemed so exciting to him as they had done before, and he was always thinking of the fun he had in the garden with Little Boy too. They visited the valley of the White Moon Gnomes, Moonums, for short, that ride about on rabbits and make pancakes out of snowflakes, and grow little golden apple trees no bigger than buttercups in their neat orchards. They put broken glass and tic-tacs outside the lairs of some of the lesser dragons, while they were asleep, and lay awake till the middle of the night to hear them roar with rage. Dragons often have tender tummies, as I have told you already, and they go out for a drink at twelve midnight every night of their lives not to speak of between-whiles. Sometimes the dogs even dared to go spider-baiting, biting webs, and setting free the moonbeams, and flying off just in time, while the spiders threw lassoes at them from the hilltops. But all the while Rover Random was looking out for Postman Mew, and news of the world, mostly murders and football matches, as even a little dog knows, but there is sometimes something better in an odd corner. He missed Mew's next visit, as he was away on a ramble, but the old man was still reading the letters and news when he got back, and he seemed in a mighty good humour, too, sitting on the roof, with his feet dangling over the edge, puffing at an enormous white clay pipe, sending out clouds of smoke like a railway engine, and smiling right round his round old face. Rover Random felt he could bear it no longer. "'I've got a pain in my inside,' he said, I want to go back to the little boy, so that his dream can come true. The old man put down his letter. It was about Artaxerxes, and very amusing, and took the pipe out of his mouth. 
"'Must you go? Can't you stay? This is so sudden, so pleased to have met you. You must drop in again one day. Delighted to see you any time,' he said, all in a breath. "'Very well,' he went on, more sensibly. "'Artaxerxes is arranged for.' "'How?' asked Rover Random, really excited again. "'He has married a mermaid and gone to live at the bottom of the deep blue sea.' "'I hope she will patch his trousers better.' "'A green seaweed patch would go well with his green hat.' "'My dear dog, he was married in a complete new suit of seaweed green, "'with pink coral buttons and epaulets of sea anemones, "'and they burnt his old hat on the beach. "'Samothos arranged it all. "'Oh, Samothos is very deep, as deep as the deep blue sea, "'and I expect he means to settle lots of things to his liking this way.' "'Lots more than just you, my dog. "'I wonder how it will turn out. "'Artaxerxes is getting into his twentieth or twenty-first childhood at the moment, it seems to me, "'and he makes a lot of fuss about very little things. "'Most obstinate he is, to be sure. "'He used to be a pretty good magician, "'but he is becoming bad-tempered and a thorough nuisance.' When he came and dug up old Samothos with a wooden spade in the middle of the afternoon and pulled him out of his hole by the ears, the Samothis thought things had gone too far, and I don't wonder. Such a lot of disturbance just at my best time for sleeping and all about a wretched little dog. That is what he writes to me. And you needn't blush. So he invited Artaxerxes to a mermaid party when both their tempers had cooled down a bit, and that is how it all happened. They took Artaxerxes out for a moonlight swim, and he will never go back to Persia, or even Pershaw. He fell in love with the rich Merking's elderly but lovely daughter, and they were married the next night. It is probably just as well. There has not been a resident magician in the ocean for some time. Proteus, Poseidon, Triton, Neptune, and all that lot, they've all turned into minnows or mussels long ago— and in any case, they never knew or bothered much about things outside the Mediterranean. <laughs> they were too fond of sardines. Old Newald retired a long while ago, too. He was, of course, only able to give half his attention to business after his silly marriage with the giantess. You remember she fell in love with him because he had clean feet, so convenient in the home, and fell out of love with him when it was too late, because they were wet. He's on his last legs now, I hear. Quite doddery, poor old dear. Oil fuel has given him a dreadful cough, and he has retired to the coast of Iceland for a little sunshine. There was the old man of the sea, of course. He was my cousin, and I'm not proud of it. He was a bit of a burden, wouldn't walk, and always wanted to be carried, as I dare say you have heard. That was the death of him. Oh, he sat on a floating mine if you know what I mean, a year or two ago, right on one of the buttons. Not even my magic could do anything with that case. It was worse than the one of Humpty Dumpty. What about Britannia? asked Rover Random, who, after all, was an English dog. Though, really, he was a bit bored with all this, and wanted to hear more about his own wizard. I thought Britannia ruled the waves. She never really gets her feet wet. She prefers patting lions on the beach and sitting on a penny with an eel fork in her hand. 
And in any case, there is more to manage in the sea than waves. Now they have got Artaxerxes, and I hope he will be of use. He'll spend the first few years trying to grow plums on polyps, I expect, if they let him, and that'll be easier than keeping the merfolk in order. Well, well, well. Where was I? Oh, of course. You can go back now, if you want to. In fact, not to be too polite, it's time you went back as soon as possible. Old Samothos is your first call, and don't follow my bad example and forget your peas when you meet him. Mew turned up again the very next day with an extra post, an immense number of letters for the man in the moon, and bundles of newspapers, the illustrated weekly weed, ocean notions, the mermail, the conch, and the morning splash. They all had exactly the same exclusive pictures of Artaxerxes' wedding on the beach at full moon, with Mr. Psamathos Psamathides, the well-known financier, a mere title of respect, grinning in the background. But they were nicer than our pictures, for they were at least coloured, and the mermaid really did look beautiful. Her tail was in the foam. The time had come to say goodbye. The man in the moon beamed on Rover Random, and the moon dog tried to look unconcerned. Rover Random himself had rather a drooping tail, but all he said was, Goodbye, pup. Take care of yourself. Don't worry the moonbeams, don't kill the white rabbits, and don't eat too much supper. Pop yourself, said the moon rover, and stop eating wizard's trousers. That was all. And yet, I believe, he was always worrying the old man in the moon to send him on a holiday to visit Rover Random, and that he has been allowed to go several times since then. After that, Rover Random went back with Mew, and the man went back into his cellars, and the moon-dog sat on the roof and watched them out of sight. There was a cold wind blowing off the North Star when they got near the world's edge, and the chilly spray of the waterfalls splashed over them. It had been stiffer going on the way back, for old Samothos's magic was not in such a hurry just then, and they were glad to rest on the Isle of Dogs. But as Rover Random was still in his enchanted size, he did not enjoy himself much there. The other dogs were too large and noisy, and too scornful, and the bones of the bone trees were too large and bony. It was dawn of the day after the day after tomorrow, when at last they sighted the black cliffs of Mew's home. And the sun was warm on their backs, and the tips of the sand hillocks were already pale and dry by the time they alighted in the cove of Psamathos. Mew gave a little cry, and tapped with his beak on a bit of wood lying on the ground. The bit of wood immediately grew straight up into the air, and turned into Psamathos' left ear, and was joined by another ear, and quickly followed by the rest of the sorcerer's ugly head and neck. "'More do you two want at this time of day?' growled Psamathos. "'It's my favourite time for sleep.' "'We're back,' said the seagull. "'And you've allowed yourself to be carried back on his back, I see,' Samothos said, turning to the little dog. "'I thought some of the man in the moon's dreams came true,' said Little Rover sadly. "'Oh, did you? "'Well, that's the man in the moon's affair. 
My business is to change you back at once into your proper size and send you back where you belong. Artaxerxes has departed to other spheres of usefulness, so we needn't bother about him any more. Come here. He took hold of Rover, and he waved his fat hand over the little dog's head. And hey, presto! There was no change at all. He did it all over again, and still there was no change. Then Samothos got right up out of the sand, and Rover saw for the first time that he had legs like a rabbit. He stamped and ramped and kicked sand into the air and trampled on the seashells and snorted like an angry pug dog, and still nothing happened at all. Done by a seaweed wizard, blister and wart him, he swore. Done by a Persian plum picker. Hot and jam him! He shouted and kept on shouting till he was tired. Then he sat down. Well, well, he said at last when he was cooler. Live and learn. But Artaxerxes is most peculiar. Who could have guessed that he would remember you amidst all the excitement of his wedding, and go and waste his strongest incantation on a dog? "'before going on his honeymoon, "'as if his first spell wasn't more than any silly little puppy is worth, "'if it isn't enough to split one's skin. "'Well, I don't need to think out what is to be done at any rate,' "'Samothos continued. "'There's only one possible thing. "'You've got to go and find him and beg his pardon. "'But my word, I'll remember this against him "'till the sea is twice as salt and half as wet.' Just you two go for a walk. I'll be back in half an hour, when my temper's better. Mew and Rover went along the shore and up the cliff, Mew flying slowly and Rover trotting along, very sad. They stopped outside the little boy's father's house, and Rover even went in at the gate and sat in a flower bed under the boy's window. It was still very early, but he barked and barked hopefully. The little boys were either still fast asleep or away, for nobody came to the window. Or so Rover thought. He had forgotten that things are different on the world from the back garden of the moon, and that Artaxerxes' bewitchment was still on his size, and the size of his bark. After a little while, Mew took him mournfully back to the cove. There, an altogether new surprise was waiting for him. Samothos was talking to a whale. A very large whale. Uin, the oldest of the right whales. He looked like a mountain to little Rover, lying with his great head in a deep pool near the water's edge. Sorry I couldn't get anything smaller at a moment's notice, said Samothos, but he is very comfortable. Walk in, said the whale. Goodbye! Walk in, said the seagull. Walk in, said Samothos, and be quick about it. And don't bite or scratch about inside. You might give you in a cough, and that you would find uncomfy. This was almost as bad as being asked to jump into the hole in the man in the moon's cellar, and Rover backed away, so that Mew and Samothos had to push him in. Push him they did, too, without a coax, and the whale's jaws shut to with a snap. Inside, 
It was very dark indeed, and fishy. Air Rover sat and trembled, and as he sat, not daring even to scratch his own ears, he heard, or thought he heard, the swish and beating of the whale's tail in the waters, and he felt, or thought he felt, the whale plunge deeper and downer towards the bottom of the deep blue sea. But when the whale stopped and opened his mouth wide again, delighted to do so, whales prefer going about trawling with their jaws wide open and a good tide of food coming in, but Owen was a considerate animal, and Rover peeped out. It was deep, altogether immeasurably deep, but not at all blue. There was only a pale green light, and Rover walked out to find himself on a white path of sand, winding through a dim and fantastic forest. Straight along, you haven't far to go, said Uwin. Rover went straight along, as straight as the path would allow, and soon before him he saw the gate of a great palace made, it seemed, of pink and white stone that shone with a pale light coming through it. And through the many windows, lights of green and blue shone clear. All round the walls, huge sea-trees grew, taller than the domes of the palace that swelled up vast, gleaming in the dark water. The great india-rubber trunks of the trees bent and swayed like grasses, and the shadow of their endless branches was thronged with goldfish, and silverfish, and redfish, and bluefish, and phosphorescent fish like birds. But the fishes did not sing. The mermaids sang inside the palace. How they sang! And all the sea fairies sang in chorus, and the music floated out of the windows, hundreds of merfolk playing on horns and pipes and conches of shell. Sea goblins were grinning at him out of the darkness under the trees, and Rover hurried along as fast as he could. He found his steps slow and laden deep down under the water. And why didn't he drown? I don't know. But I suppose Psamathos Psamathides had given some thought to it. He knows much more about the sea than most people would think, even though he never sets toe in it if he can help it, while Rover and Mew had gone for a walk, and he had sat and simmered down and thought of a new plan. Anyway, Rover did not drown, but he was already wishing he was somewhere else, even in the whales wet inside, before he got to the door. Such queer shapes and faces peered at him out of the purple bushes and the spongy thickets beside the path that he felt very unsafe indeed. At last he got to the enormous door, a golden archway fringed with coral and a door of mother-of-pearl, studded with shark's teeth. The knocker was a huge ring encrusted with white barnacles and all the barnacles' little red streamers were hanging out. But, of course, Rover could not reach it, nor could he have moved it anyway, so he barked. And to his surprise, his bark became quite loud. The music inside stopped at the third bark, and the door opened. Who do you think opened it? Artaxerxes himself, dressed in what looked like plum-coloured velvet and green silk trousers, 
and he still had a large pipe in his mouth, only it was blowing beautiful rainbow-coloured bubbles instead of tobacco smoke. But he had no hat. Hello, he said. So, you've turned up. I thought you would get tired of old Per Samothus. How he snorted over that exaggerated Per. Before long. He can't do quite everything. Well, what have you come down here for? We were just having a party and you're interrupting the music. Uh, please, Mr. Artaxerxes, I mean, Artaxerxes, began Rover, rather flustered and trying to be very polite. Oh, never mind about getting it right, I don't mind, said the wizard rather crossly. Get on to the explanation and make it short. I've no time for long rigmaroles. He had become rather full of his own importance, with strangers, since his marriage to the rich Merking's daughter, and his appointment to the post of Pacific and Atlantic Magician. The Pam, they called him for short, when he was not present. If you want to see me about anything pressing, you'd better come in and wait in the hall. I might find a moment after the dance. He closed the door behind Rover and went off. The little dog found himself in a huge dark space under a dimly lighted dome. There were pointed archways, curtained with seaweed all round, and most of them were dark. But one of them was full of light, and music came loudly through it, music that seemed to go on and on forever, never repeating and never stopping for a rest. Rover soon got very tired of waiting, so he walked along to the shining doorway and peeped through the curtains. He was looking into a vast ballroom with seven domes and ten thousand coral pillars, lit with purest magic and filled with warm and sparkling water. There all the golden-haired mermaids and the dark-haired sirens were dancing, interwoven dances, as they sang. Not dancing on their tails, but wonderful swim dancing, up and down, as well as to and fro, in the clear water. Nobody noticed the little dog's nose peeping through the seaweed at the door, so after gazing for a while, he crept inside. The floor was made of silver sand and pink butterfly shells, all open and flapping in the gently swirling water, and he had picked his way carefully among them for some way, keeping close to the wall, before a voice said suddenly above him, "'What a sweet little dog!' He's a land dog, not a sea dog, I'm sure. How could he have got here? Such a tiny mite. Rover looked up and saw a beautiful mer-lady with a large black comb in her golden hair sitting on a ledge not far above him. Her regrettable tail was dangling down and she was mending one of Artaxerxes' green socks. She was, of course, the new Mrs. Artaxerxes usually known as Princess Pam. She was rather popular, which was more than you could say for her husband. Artaxerxes was at the moment sitting beside her, and whether he had time or not for long rigmaroles, he was listening to one of his wives, or had been before Rover turned up. Mrs. Artaxerxes put an end to her rigmarole and to her sock-mending as soon as she caught sight of him, and floating down, picked him up and carried him back to her couch. This was really a window seat on the first floor, an indoors window. There are no stairs in sea houses and no umbrellas, and for the same reason. And there is not much difference between doors and windows either. The merlady soon settled her beautiful and rather capacious self comfortably on her couch again, 
and put Rover on her lap. And immediately there was an awful growl from under the window seat. Lie down, Rover, lie down, good dog, said Mrs. Artaxerxes. She was not talking to our Rover, though. She was talking to a white mer-dog, who came out now, in spite of what she said, growling and grumbling, and beating the water with his little web feet, and lashing it with his large flat tail, and blowing bubbles out of his sharp nose. What a horrible little thing, the new dog said. Look at his miserable tail. Look at his feet. Look at his silly coat. Look at yourself, said Rover, from the mer-lady's lap. And you won't want to do it again. Who called you Rover? A cross between a duck and a tadpole pretending to be a dog? From which you can see that they took rather a fancy to one another at first sight. Indeed, they soon made great friends. Not quite such friends, perhaps, as Rover and the Moon Dog, if only because Rover's stay under the sea was shorter, and the deeps are not such a jolly place as the moon for little dogs, being full of dark and awful places where light has never been and never will be, because they will never be uncovered till light has all gone out. Horrible things live there, too old for imagining, too strong for spells, too vast for measurement. Artaxerxes had already found that out. The post of Pam is not the most comfortable job in the world. Now swim away and amuse yourselves, said his wife, when the dog argument had died down, and the two animals were merely sniffing at one another. Don't worry the firefish, don't chew the sea anemones, don't get caught in the clams, and come back to supper. Please, I can't swim, said Rover. Dear me, what a nuisance, she said. Now, Pam, she was the only one so far that called him this to his face, here is something you can really do at last. Certainly, my dear, said the wizard, very anxious to oblige her, and pleased to be able to show that he really had some magic, and was not an entirely useless official. Limpets, they called them in sea language. He took a little wand out of his waistcoat pocket. It was really his fountain pen, but it was no longer any use for writing. Merfolk use a queer, sticky ink that is absolutely no use in fountain pens, and he waved it over Rover. Artaxerxes was, in spite of what some people have said, a very good magician in his own way, or Rover would never have had these adventures. Rather a minor art, but still needing a deal of practice. Anyway, after the very first wave, Rover's tail began to get fishy, and his feet to get webby, and his coat to get more and more like a Macintosh. When the change was over, he soon got used to it, and he found swimming a good deal easier to pick up than flying, very nearly as pleasant, and not so tiring, unless you wanted to go down. The first thing he did, after a trial swim round the ballroom, was to bite at the other dog's tail. In fun, of course, but fun or not, there was nearly a fight on the spot, for the mer-dog was a bit touchy-tempered. Rover only saved himself by making off as fast as possible. Nimble and quick he had to be, too. My word, there was a chase! In and out of windows, and along dark passages, and round pillars, and out and up and round the domes. Till at last the mer-dog himself was exhausted and his bad temper, too, and they sat down together on the top of the highest cupola next to the flagpole. The Merking's banner, a seaweed streamer of scarlet and green spangled with pearls, was floating from it. "'What's your name?' said the Murdog, after a breathless pause. 
Rover? he said. That's my name, so you can't have it. I had it first. How do you know? Well, of course I know. I can see you are only a puppy, and you have not been down here in hardly five minutes. I was enchanted ages and ages ago, hundreds of years. I expect I'm the first of all the dog rovers. My first master was a rover, a real one, a sea rover, who sailed his ship in the northern waters. It was a long ship with red sails, and it was carved like a dragon at the prow, and he called it the Red Worm, and loved it. I loved him, though I was only a puppy, and he did not notice me much, for I wasn't big enough to go hunting, and he didn't take dogs to sail with him. One day I went sailing without being asked. He was saying farewell to his wife, the wind was blowing, and the men were thrusting the Red Worm out over the rollers into the sea. The foam was white about the dragon's neck, and I suddenly felt that I should not see him again after that day if I didn't go too. I sneaked on board somehow and hid behind a water barrel, and we were far at sea and the landmarks low in the water before they found me. That's when they called me Rover, when they dragged me out by my tail. Here's a fine sea rover, said one. And a strange fate is on him that turns never home, said another with queer eyes. And indeed, I never did go back home and I have never grown any bigger, although I have grown much older, and wiser, of course. There was a sea fight on that voyage, and I ran up on the foredeck while the arrows fell and sword clashed upon shield. But the men of the Black Swan boarded us and drove my master's men all over the side. He was the last to go. He stood beside the dragon's head, and then he dived into the sea in all his mail, and I dived after him. He went to the bottom quicker than I did, and the mermaids caught him. But I told them to carry him swift to land, for many would weep if he did not come home. They smiled at me, and lifted him up, and bore him away. And now some say they carried him to the shore, and some shake their heads at me. You can't depend on mermaids, except for keeping their own secrets. They're better than oysters at that. I often think they really buried him in the white sand, Far away from here, there lies still a part of the red worm that the men of the Black Swan sank. Or it was there when last I passed. A forest of weed was growing round it and over it, all except the dragon's head. Somehow, not even barnacles were growing on that. And under it, there was a mound of white sand. I left those parts long ago. I turned slowly into a sea dog. The older sea women used to do a good deal of witchcraft in those days, and one of them was kind to me. It was she that gave me as a present to the Merking, the reigning one's grandfather, and I've been in and about the palace ever since. That's all about me. It happened hundreds of years ago, and I've seen a good deal of the high seas and the low seas since then. But I have never been back home. Now, tell me about you. I suppose you don't come from the North Sea, by any chance, do you? We used to call it England Sea in those days. Or know any of the old places in and about the Orkneys? Our rover had to confess that he had never heard before of anything but just the sea, and not much of that. But I have been to the moon, he said, and he told his new friend as much about it as he could make him understand. The Murdog enjoyed Rover's tale immensely, and believed at least half of it. A jolly good yarn, he said, and the best I've heard for a long time. I've seen the moon. I go on top occasionally, you know, but I never imagined it was like that. But my word, that sky pup has got a cheek. <laughs> three rovers. Two's bad enough, but three's impossible. And I don't believe for a moment he's older than I am.
If he is a hundred yet, I should be mighty surprised. He was probably quite right, too. The moon dog, as you noticed, exaggerated a lot. And anyway, went on the Murdog, he only gave himself the name. Mine was given me. And so was mine, said our little dog. And for no reason at all, and before you were begun to earn it, anyway. I like the man in the moon's idea. I shall call you Rover Random, too. And if I were you, I should stick to it. You never do seem to know where you're going next. Let's go down to supper. It was a fishy supper, but Rover Random soon got used to that. It seemed to suit his webby feet. After supper, he suddenly remembered why he had come all the way to the bottom of the sea, and off he went to look for Artaxerxes. He found him blowing bubbles and turning them into real balls to please the little mer-children. Uh, "'Please, Mr. Artaxerxes, could you be bothered to turn me?' began Riverandum. "'Oh, go away!' said the wizard. "'Can't you see? I can't be bothered. Not now. I'm busy.' This is what Artaxerxes said all too often to people he did not think were important. He knew well enough what Rover wanted, but he was not in a hurry himself. So Rover Random swam off and went to bed, or rather roosted in a bunch of seaweed growing on a high rock in the garden. There was the old whale resting just underneath. And if anyone tells you that whales don't go down to the bottom or stop there dozing for hours... You need not let that bother you. Old Ewin was in every way exceptional. Well, he said, how have you got on? I see you are still toy-size. What's the matter with Artaxerxes? Can't he do anything, or won't he? I think he can, said Riverandom. Look at my new shape. But if ever I try to get on to the matter of size, he keeps on saying how busy he is, and he hasn't time for long explanations. Hoomph, said the whale, and knocked a tree sideways with his tail. The swish of it nearly washed Roverandum off his rock. I don't think that Pam will be a success in these parts, but I shouldn't worry. You'll be all right sooner or later. In the meanwhile, there are lots of new things to see tomorrow. Go to sleep. Goodbye. And he swam off into the dark. The report that he took back to the cove made all Persamathos very angry all the same. The lights of the palace were all turned off. No moon or star came down through that deep, dark water. The green got gloomier and gloomier until it was all black, and there was not a glimmer except when big luminous fish went by slowly through the weeds. Yet Rover Random slept soundly that night, and the next night, and several nights after, and the next day, and the day after, he looked for the wizard and couldn't find him anywhere. One morning, when he was beginning already to feel quite a sea-dog, and to wonder if he had come to stay there forever, the mer-dog said to him, "'Bother that wizard! 
Or rather, don't bother him. Give him a miss today. Let's go off for a really long swim. Off they went, and the long swim turned into an excursion lasting for days. They covered a terrific distance in the time. They were enchanted creatures, you must remember, and there were few ordinary things in the seas that could keep up with them. When they got tired of the cliffs and mountains at the bottom, and of the racing runs in the middle heights, they rose up and up and up, right through the water for a mile and a bit. And when they got to the top, no land was to be seen. The sea all round them was smooth and calm and grey. Then it suddenly ruffled and went dark in patches under a little cold wind, the wind at dawn. Swiftly the sun looked up with a shout over the rim of the sea. Red as if he had been drinking hot wine, and swiftly he leapt into the air and went off for his daily journey, turning all the edges of the waves golden and the shadows between them dark green. A ship was sailing on the margin of the sea and the sky, and it sailed right into the sun, so that its masts were black against the fire. Where's that going to? Asked Rover Random. Oh, Japan, or Honolulu, or Manila, or Easter Island. Or Thursday or Vladivostok, or somewhere or other, I suppose, said the Murdog, whose geography was a bit vague, in spite of his hundreds of years of boasted prowlings. This is the Pacific, I believe, but I don't know which part. A warm part, by the feel of it. It's rather a large piece of water. Let's go and look for something to eat. When they got back, some days later, Rover Andam at once went to look for the wizard again. He felt he had given him a good long rest. Please, Mr. Artaxerxes, could you bother? He began as usual. No, I could not," said Artaxerxes, even more definitely than usual. This time he really was busy, though. The complaints had come in by post. Of course, as you can imagine, all kinds of things go wrong in the sea that not even the best Pam in the ocean could prevent, and some of which he is not even supposed to have anything to do with. Wrecks come down plump now and again on the roof of somebody's sea house. Explosions occur in the seabed. Oh yes, they have volcanoes and all that kind of nuisance quite as badly as we have, and blow up somebody's prize flock of goldfish, or prize bed of anemones, or one and only pearl oyster, or famous rock and coral garden, or savage fish have a fight in the highway and knock mer children over, or absent-minded sharks swim in at the dining room window and spoil the dinner. Or the deep, dark, unmentionable monsters of the black abysses do horrible and wicked things. The merfolk have always put up with all this, but not without complaining. They liked complaining. They used, of course, to write letters to the Weekly Weed, the Mermail, and Ocean Notions. But they had a Pam now, and they wrote to him as well and blamed him for everything, even if they got their tails nipped by their own pet lobsters. They said his magic was inadequate, as it sometimes was, and that his salary ought to be reduced, which was true but rude, and that he was too big for his boots, which was also near the mark. They should have said slippers. He was too lazy to wear boots often, and they said lots besides to worry Artaxerxes every morning, and especially on Mondays. It was always worst by several hundred envelopes on Mondays, and this was a Monday. So Artaxerxes threw a lump of rock at Rover Random, and he slipped off like a shrimp from a net.
He was jolly glad when he got out into the garden to find that he was still unchanged in shape. And I dare say, if he had not removed himself quick, the wizard would have changed him into a sea slug, or sent him to the back of beyond, wherever that is, or even to pot, which is at the bottom of the deepest sea. He was very annoyed, and he went and grumbled to the sea rover. "'You'd better give him a rest till Monday is over, at any rate,' advised the Murdog. "'And I should miss out Mondays altogether in future, if I were you. "'Come and have another swim.' After that, Rover Random gave the wizard such a long rest that they almost forgot about one another. Not quite. Dogs don't forget lumps of rock very quickly, but to all appearances Rover Random had settled down to become a permanent pet of the palace. He was always off somewhere with the Murdog, and often the Mer children came along as well. They were not as jolly as real two-legged children, in Rover Random's opinion, but then, of course, Rover Random did not really belong to the sea and was not a perfect judge. But they kept him happy, and they might have kept him there forever and have made him forget Little Boy Two in the end if it had not been for things that happened later. You can make up your mind whether Samothos had anything to do with these events when we come to them. There were plenty of these children to choose from, at any rate. The old Mer-King had hundreds of daughters and thousands of grandchildren, and all in the same palace. And they were all fond of the two rovers, and so was Mrs. Artaxerxes. It was a pity that Rover Random never thought of telling her his story. She knew how to manage the Pam in any mood. But in that case, of course, Rover Random would have gone back sooner and missed many of the sights. It was with Mrs. Artaxerxes and some of the Mer children that he visited the great white caves, where all the jewels that are lost in the sea, and many that have always been in the sea, and of course pearls upon pearls, are hoarded and hidden. They went to another time to visit the smaller sea fairies in their little glass houses at the bottom of the sea. The sea fairies seldom swim, but wander singing over the bed of the sea in smooth places, or drive in shell carriages harnessed to the tiniest fishes, or else they ride astride little green crabs with bridles of fine threads, which, of course, don't prevent the crabs from going sideways, as they always will. And they have troubles with the sea goblins that are larger and ugly and rowdy and do nothing except fight and hunt fish and gallop about on seahorses. Those goblins can live out of the water for a long while and play in the surf at the water's edge in a storm. So can some of the sea fairies, but they prefer the calm, warm nights of summer evenings on lonely shores and naturally are very seldom seen in consequence. Another day, old Ewin turned up again and gave the two dogs a ride for a change. It was like riding on a moving mountain. They were away for days and days, and they only turned back from the eastern edge of the world just in time. There the whale rose to the top and blew out a fountain of water so high that a lot of it was thrown right off the world and over the edge. Another time he took them to the other side, or as near as he dared, and that was a still longer and more exciting journey, the most marvellous of all Rover Random's travels, as he realised later, when he was grown to be an older and a wiser dog. It would take the whole of another story at least to tell you of all their adventures in uncharted waters, and of their glimpses of lands unknown to geography, 
before they pass the shadowy seas and reach the great bay of fairyland, as we call it, beyond the magic isles, and saw, far off, in the last west, the mountains of Elvenholm and the light of fairy upon the waves. Roverandum thought he caught a glimpse of the city of the elves on the green hill beneath the mountains, a glint of white far away. But Owen dived again so suddenly that he could not be sure. If he was right, he is one of the very few creatures on two legs or four who can walk about our own lands and say they have glimpsed that other land, however far away. I should catch it if this was found out, said Owen. No one from the outer lands is supposed ever to come here, and few ever do now. Mum's the word. What did I say about dogs? They don't forget ill-tempered lumps of rock. Well then, in spite of all these varied sightseeings and these astonishing journeys, Rover Random kept it in his underneath mind all the time, and it came back into his upper mind as soon as ever he got back home. His very first thought was, Where's that old wizard? What's the use of being polite to him? I'll spoil his trousers again if I get half a chance. He was in that frame of mind when, after trying in vain to have a word alone with Artaxerxes, he saw the magician go by, down one of the royal roads leading from the palace. He was, of course, too proud at his age to grow a tail or fins or learn to swim properly. The only thing he did like a fish was to drink, even in the sea so he must have been thirsty. He spent a lot of time that might have been employed on official business conjuring up cider into large barrels in his private apartments. When he wanted to get about quickly, he drove. When Rover Random saw him, he was driving in his express, a gigantic shell shaped like a cockle and drawn by seven sharks. People got out of the way quick, for the sharks could bite. Let's follow said Roverandum to the Murdog, and follow they did, and the two bad dogs dropped pieces of rock into the carriage whenever it passed under cliffs. They could nip along amazingly fast, as I told you, and they whizzed ahead, hid in weed bushes, and pushed anything loose they could find over the edge. It annoyed the wizard intensely, but they took care that he did not spot them. Artaxerxes was in a very bad temper before he started, and he was in a rage before he had gone far, a rage not unmixed with anxiety, for he was going to investigate the damage done by an unusual whirlpool that had suddenly appeared, and in a part of the sea that he did not like at all. He thought, and he was quite right, that there were nasty things in that direction that were best left alone. I dare say you can guess what was the matter. Artaxerxes did. The ancient sea serpent was waking, or half thinking about it. He had been in a sound sleep for years, but now he was turning. When he was uncoiled, he would certainly have reached a hundred miles. Some people say he would reach from edge to edge, but that is an exaggeration. And when he is curled up, there is only one cave other than Pot, where he used to live, and many people wish him back there, only one cave in all the oceans that will hold him, and that is, very unfortunately, 
not a hundred miles from the Mer King's palace. When he undid a curl or two in his sleep, the water heaved and shook and bent people's houses and spoilt their repose for miles and miles around. But it was very stupid to send the Pam to look into it. For, of course, the sea serpent is much too enormous and strong and old and idiotic for anyone to control. Primordial, prehistoric, autothalassic, fabulous, mythical and silly are other adjectives applied to him. And Artaxerxes knew it all only too well. Not even the man in the moon, working hard for fifty years, could have concocted a spell large enough, or long enough, or strong enough to bind him. Only once had the man in the moon tried, when specially requested, and at least one continent fell into the sea as a result. Poor old Artaxerxes drove straight up to the mouth of the sea serpent's cave, but he had no sooner got out of his carriage than he saw the tip of the sea serpent's tail sticking out of the entrance. Larger it was than a row of gigantic water barrels, and green and slimy. That was quite enough for him. He wanted to go home at once before the worm turned again, as all worms will, at odd and unexpected moments. It was little Rover Random that upset everything. He did not know anything about the sea serpent or its tremendousness. All he thought about was baiting the ill-tempered wizard. So, when a chance came, Artaxerxes was standing, staring stupid-like at the visible end of the serpent, and his steeds were taking no particular notice of anything. He crept up and bit one of the shark's tails for fun. For fun! What fun! The shark jumped straight forward and the carriage jumped forward too. And Artaxerxes, who had just turned round to get into it, fell on his back. Then the shark bit the only thing it could reach at the moment, which was the shark in front, and that shark bit the next one, and so on, until the last of the seven, seeing nothing else to bite, bless me the idiot if he did not go and bite the sea serpent's tail! The sea serpent gave a new and very unexpected turn, and the next thing the dogs knew was being whirled all over the place in water gone mad, bumping into giddy fishes and spinning sea trees, scared out of their lives in a cloud of uprooted weeds, sand, shells, slugs, periwinkles and oddments. And things got worse and worse, and the serpent kept on turning, and there was old Artaxerxes clinging onto the reins of the sharks, being whirled all over the place too, and saying the most dreadful things to them. To the sharks, I mean. Luckily for this story, he never knew what Rover Random had done. I don't know how the dogs got home. It was a long, long time before they did at any rate. First of all, they were washed up on the shore, in one of the terrible tides caused by the sea serpent's stirrings. And then they were caught by fishermen, on the other side of the sea, and jolly nearly sent to an aquarium. A disgusting fate. And then, having escaped that by the skin of their feet, they had to get all the way back themselves as best they could, through perpetual subterranean commotion. And when at last they got home, there was a terrible commotion there, too. All the merfolk were crowded round the palace, all shouting at once, Bring out the Pam! Yes, they caught him that publicly, and nothing longer or more dignified. Bring out the Pam! Bring out the Pam! And the Pam was hiding in the cellars. Mrs. Artaxerxes found him there at last and made him come out. 
and all the merfolk shouted when he looked out of an attic window. Stop this nonsense! Stop this nonsense! Stop this nonsense! And they made such a hullabaloo that people at all the seasides, all over the world, thought the sea was roaring louder than usual. It was. And all the while, the sea serpent kept on turning, trying absent-mindedly to get the tip of his tail in his mouth. But thank heavens, he was not properly and fully awake, or he might have come out and shaken his tail in anger, and then another continent would have been drowned. Of course, whether that would have been really regrettable or not depends on which continent was taken, and which you live on. But the merfolk did not live on a continent, but in the sea, and right in the thick of it, and very thick it was getting, and they insisted that it was the merking's business to make the Pam produce some spell, remedy, or solution to keep the sea serpent quiet. They could not get their hands to their faces to feed themselves, or blow their noses, the water shook so. And everybody was bumping into everybody else, and all the fish were seasick. The water was so wobbly, and it was so turbid and so full of sand that everyone had coughs, and all the dancing was stopped. Artaxerxes groaned, but he had to do something. So he went to his workshop and shut himself up for a fortnight, during which time there were three earthquakes, two submarine hurricanes, and several riots of the merpeople. Then he came out and let loose a most prodigious spell, accompanied with soothing incantation, at a distance from the cave, and everybody went home and sat in cellars waiting. Everybody except Mrs. Artaxerxes and her unfortunate husband. The wizard was obliged to stay, at a distance, but not a safe one, and watched the result, and Mrs. Artaxerxes was obliged to stay and watch the wizard. All the spell did was to give the serpent a terrible bad dream. He dreamed that he was covered all over with barnacles, very irritating and partly true, and also being slowly roasted in a volcano, very painful and unfortunately quite imaginary. And that woke him. Probably Artaxerxes' magic was better than was supposed. At any rate, the sea serpent did not come out. Luckily for this story, he put his head where his tail was and yawned, opened his mouth as wide as the cave and snorted so loud that everyone in the cellars heard him in all the kingdoms of the sea. And the sea serpent said, Stop this nonsense! And he added, if this blithering wizard doesn't go away at once, and if he ever so much as paddles in the sea again, I shall come out, and I shall eat him first, and then I shall knock everything to dripping smithereens. That's all. Good night. And Mrs. Artaxerxes carried the Pam home in a fainting fit. When he had recovered, and that was quick, they swore to that, he took the spell off the serpent and packed his bag, and all the people said and shouted, Send the Pam away! A good riddance! That's all! Goodbye! And the Mer-King said, We don't want to lose you, but we think you ought to go. 
and Artaxerxes felt very small and unimportant altogether, which was good for him. Even the Murdog laughed at him. But funnily enough, Roverandum was quite upset. After all, he had his own reasons for knowing that Artaxerxes' magic was not without effect. And he had bitten the shark's tail too, hadn't he? And he had started the whole thing with that trouser bite. And he belonged to the land himself, and felt it was a bit hard on a poor land wizard being baited by all these sea folk. Anyway, he came up to the old fellow and said, "'Please, Mr. Artaxerxes.' "'Well?' said the wizard, quite kindly. He was so glad not to be called Pam, and he had not heard a mister for weeks. "'Well, what is it, little dog?' "'I beg your pardon. I do really. Awfully sorry. I mean, I never meant to damage your reputation.' Rover Random was thinking of the sea serpent and the shark's tail, but luckily Artaxerxes thought he was referring to his trousers. "'Come, come,' he said. "'We won't bring up bygones. Least said, soon as mended, or patched. I think we had both better go back home again, together.' "'But please, Mr. Artaxerxes,' said Rover Random, "'could you bother to turn me back into my proper size?' "'Certainly,' said the wizard. "'Glad to find somebody that still believed he could do anything at all. "'Certainly. "'But you are best and safest as you are while you are down here. "'Let's get away from this first. "'And I am really and truly busy just now.' "'And he really and truly was. "'He went into the workshops and collected all his paraphernalia, insignia, "'symbols, memoranda, books of recipes, arcana, apparatus, "'and bags and bottles of miscellaneous spells.' He burned all that would burn in his waterproof forge, and the rest he tipped into the back garden. Extraordinary things took place there afterwards. All the flowers went mad, and the vegetables were monstrous, and the fishes that ate them were turned into sea worms, sea cats, sea cows, sea lions, sea tigers, sea devils, porpoises, dugongs, cephalopods, manatees and calamities, or merely poisoned. And phantasms, visions, bewilderments, illusions, and hallucinations sprouted so thick that nobody had any peace in the palace at all, and they were obliged to move. In fact, they began to respect the memory of that wizard after they had lost him, but that was long afterwards, at the moment they were clamouring for him to depart. When all was ready, Artaxerxes said goodbye to the Mer King, rather coldly, and not even the Mer children seemed to mind very much. He had so often been busy, and occasions of the bubbles, like the one I told you about, had been rare. Some of his countless sisters-in-law tried to be polite, especially if Mrs. Artaxerxes was there, but really everybody was impatient to see him going out of the gate so that they could send a humble message to the sea serpent. The regrettable wizard has departed, and will return no more, your worship. Pray go to sleep. Of course Mrs. Artaxerxes went too, the Mer-King had so many daughters that he could afford to lose one without much grief, especially the tenth eldest. He gave her a bag of jewels and a wet kiss on the doorstep and went back to his throne. But everybody else was very sorry, and especially Mrs. Artaxerxes' mass of Mer-nieces and Mer-nephews. And they were also very sorry to lose Rover Random, too. The sorriest of all, and the most downcast, was the Mer-dog. Just... 
"'Drop me a line whenever you go to the seaside,' he said, "'and I will pop up and have a look at you.' "'I won't forget,' said Roverandum. "'And then they went. "'The oldest whale was waiting. "'Roverandum sat on Mrs. Artaxerxes' lap, "'and when they were all settled on the whale's back, "'off they started. "'And all the people said, "'Goodbye!' very loud. "'And... "'A good riddance of bad rubbish,' quietly, but not too quietly. And that was the end of Artaxerxes and the office of Pacific and Atlantic magician. Who has done their bewitchments for them since, I don't know. Old Pesamathos and the man in the moon, I should think, have managed it between them. They are perfectly capable of it. The whale landed on a quiet shore far, far away from the cove of Pesamathos. Artaxerxes was most particular about that. There Mrs. Artaxerxes and the whale were left, while the wizard, with Roverandum in his pocket, walked a couple of miles or so to the neighbouring seaside town to get an old suit and a green hat and some tobacco, in exchange for the wonderful suit of velvet which created a sensation in the streets. He also purchased a bath chair for Mrs. Artaxerxes, "'You must not forget her tale.' "'Please, Mr. Artaxerxes,' began Roverandum once more "'when they were sitting on the beach again in the afternoon. "'The wizard was smoking a pipe with his back against the whale, "'looking happier than he had done for a long while, and not at all busy. "'What about my proper shape, if you don't mind, and my proper size, too? Please?' "'Oh, very well,' said Artaxerxes.' I thought I might just have had a nap before getting busy, but I don't mind. Let's get it over. Where's my... And then he stopped short. He had suddenly remembered that he had burnt and thrown away all his spells at the bottom of the deep blue sea. He really was dreadfully upset. He got up and felt in his trouser pockets and his waistcoat pockets and his coat pockets, inside and out, and he could not find the least bit of magic anywhere in any of them. Of course not, the silly old fellow. He was so flustered, he had even forgotten that it was only an hour or two since he had bought his suit in a pawnbroker's shop. As a matter of fact, it had belonged to, or at any rate been sold by, an elderly butler, and he had gone through the pockets pretty thoroughly first. The wizard sat down and mopped his forehead with a purple handkerchief, looking thoroughly miserable again. "'I really am very, very sorry,' he said. "'I never meant to leave you like this for ever and ever, but now I don't see that it can be helped. Let it be a lesson to you not to bite the trousers of nice, kind wizards.' "'Ridiculous nonsense,' said Mrs. Artaxerxes. "'Nice, kind wizard, indeed!' There is no nice or kind or wizard about it if you don't give the little dog back his shape and size at once. And what's more, I shall go back to the bottom of the deep blue sea and never come back to you again. Poor old Artaxerxes looked almost as worried as he did when the sea serpent was giving trouble. My dear, he said, I'm very sorry, but I went and put my very strongest anti-removal spell preserver on the dog. 
After Pasamathus began to interfere, drat him, and just to show him that he can't do everything, that I won't have sand-rabbit wizards interfering in my private bit of fun, and I quite forgot to save the antidote when I was clearing up down below. I used to keep it in a little black bag hanging on the door in my workshop. Dear, dear me, I'm sure you'll agree that it was only meant to be a bit of fun, he said. "'turning to Rover Random, "'and his old nose got very large and red with his distress. "'He went on saying, "'Dear, dear, dearie me!' "'and shaking his head and beard, "'and he never noticed that Rover Random "'was not taking any notice, "'and the whale was winking. "'Mrs. Artaxerxes had got up and gone to her luggage, "'and now she was laughing.' and holding out an old black bag in her hand. <laughs> now, stop waggling your beard and get to business, she said. But when Artaxerxes saw the bag, he was too surprised for a moment to do anything but look at it with his old mouth wide open. Come along, said his wife. It is your bag, isn't it? I picked it up, and several other little oddments that belonged to me on the nasty rubbish heap you made in the garden. She opened the bag to peep inside, and out jumped the wizard's magic fountain pen wand, and also a cloud of funny smoke came out, twisting itself into strange shapes and curious faces. Then Artaxerxes woke up. Here! Give it to me! You're wasting it! he cried. And he grabbed Roborandum by the scruff of his neck and popped him, kicking and yapping, into the bag before you could say knife. Then he turned the bag round three times, waving the pen in the other hand, and... Thank you. That'll do nicely, he said, and opened the bag. It was a loud bang, and lo and behold, there was no bag. Only Rover, just as he had always been before he first met the wizard that morning on the lawn. Well, perhaps not just the same. He was a bit bigger, as he was now some months older. It is no good trying to describe how excited he felt, or how funny and smaller everything seemed, even the oldest whale, nor how strong and ferocious Rover felt. For just one moment he looked longingly at the wizard's trousers, but he did not want the story to begin all over again. So, after he had run a mile in circles for joy and nearly barked his head off, he came back and said, Thank you. And he even added, Very pleased to have met you, which was very polite indeed. That's all right, said Artaxerxes, and that's the last magic I shall do. I'm going to retire, and you had better be getting home. I have no magic left to send you home with, so you'll have to walk. But that won't hurt a strong young dog. So Rover said goodbye, and the whale winked and Mrs. Artaxerxes gave him a piece of cake, and that was the last he saw of them for a long while. Long, long afterwards, when he was visiting a seaside place that he had never been to before, he found out what had happened to them, for they were there. Not the whale, of course, but the retired wizard and his wife. They had settled in that seaside town, and Artaxerxes, taking the name of Mr. A. Pam, had set up a cigarette and chocolate shop near the beach but he was very, very careful never to touch the water, even fresh water, and that he found no hardship, 
A poor trade for a wizard, but he did at least try to clear up the nasty mess that his customers made on the beach. And he made a good deal of money out of Pam's Rock, which was very pink and sticky. There may have been the least bit of magic in it, for children liked it so much they went on eating it even after they had dropped it in the sand. But Mrs. Artaxerxes, I should say Mrs. A. Pam, made much more money. She kept bathing tents and vans, and gave swimming lessons, and drove home in a bath chair drawn by white ponies, and wore the Merking's jewels in the afternoon, and became very famous, so that no one ever alluded to her tale. In the meanwhile, however, Rover is plodding down the country lanes and highways, going along following his nose, which is bound to lead him home in the end, as dogs' noses do. All the man in the moon's dreams don't come true, then. Just as he said himself, thought Rover as he padded along. This was evidently one that didn't. I don't even know the name of the place where the little boys live, and that's a pity. The dry land, he found, was often as dangerous a place for a dog as the moon or the ocean, though much duller. Motor after motor racketed by, filled, Rover thought, with the same people, all making all speed and all dust and all smell to somewhere. I don't believe half of them know where they are going to, or why they are going there, or wouldn't know it if they got there, grumbled Rover, as he coughed and choked, and his feet got tired on the hard, gloomy black roads, so he turned into the fields, and had many mild adventures of the bird and rabbit sort in an aimless kind of way, and more than one enjoyable fight with other dogs, and several hurried flights from larger dogs. And so, at last, weeks or months since the tale began, he could not have told you which, he got back to his own garden gate. And there was the little boy, playing on the lawn with a yellow ball, and the dream had come true, just as he had never expected. "'There's Rover Random!' cried little boy, too, with a shout. And Rover sat up and begged and could not find his voice to bark anything, and the little boy kissed his head, and went dashing into the house, crying, "'Here's my little begging dog! Come back, large and real!' He told his grandmother all about it. How was Rover to know that he had belonged to the little boy's grandmother all the while? He had only belonged to her a month or two when he was bewitched. But I wonder how much Psamathos and Artaxerxes had known about it. The grandmother... Very surprised indeed as she was at her dog's return, looking so well, and not motor smashed or lorry flattened at all, did not understand what on earth the little boy was talking about, though he told her all he knew about it very exactly and over and over again. She gathered with a great deal of trouble—she was, of course, just the weest bit deaf—that the dog was to be called Rover Random, and not Rover, because the man in the moon said so. What odd ideas the child has, to be sure. And that he belonged, not to her, after all, but to little boy, too, because Mummy brought him home with the shrimps. Very well, my dear, if you like, but I thought I brought him from the gardener's brother's son. I haven't told you all their argument, of course. It was long and complicated, as it often is when both sides are right. All that you want to know is that he was called Roborandum after that, and he did belong to the little boy, and went back, when the boy's visit to their grandmother was over, to the house where he had once sat on the chest of drawers. 
He never did that again, of course. He lived sometimes in the country, and sometimes, most of the time, in the white house on the cliff by the sea. He got to know old Samothos very well. Never well enough to leave out the pea, but well enough, when he was grown up to a large and dignified dog, to dig him up out of the sand and his sleep, and have many and many a chat with him. Indeed, Rover Random grew to be very wise, and had an immense local reputation, and had all sorts of other adventures, many of which the little boy shared. But the ones I have told you about were probably the most unusual and the most exciting. Only Tinker says she does not believe a word of them. Jealous cat. The End Farmer Giles of Ham by J. R. R. Tolkien Read by Derek Jacobi Farmer Giles of Ham Egidius de Hamo was a man who lived in the midmost parts of the island of Britain. In full, his name was Egidius, Ahenobarbus, Julius, Agricola, de Hamo. For people were richly endowed with names in those days, now long ago, when this island was still happily divided into many kingdoms. There was more time then, and folk were fewer, so that most men were distinguished. However, those days are now over, so I will, in what follows, give the man his name shortly, and in the vulgar form. He was Farmer Giles of Ham, and he had a red beard. Ham was only a village, but villages were proud and independent still in those days. Farmer Giles had a dog. The dog's name was Garm. Dogs had to be content with short names in the vernacular. The book Latin was reserved for their betters. Garm could not talk even dog Latin, but he could use the vulgar tongue, as could most dogs of his day, either to bully or to brag, or to wheedle in. Bullying was for beggars and trespassers, bragging for other dogs, and wheedling for his master. Garm was both proud and afraid of Giles, who could bully and brag better than he could. The time was not one of hurry or bustle, but bustle has very little to do with business. Men did their work without it, and they got through a deal both of work and of talk. There was plenty to talk about, for memorable events occurred very frequently. 
But at the moment when this tale begins, nothing memorable had, in fact, happened in Ham for quite a long time, which suited Farmer Giles down to the ground. He was a slow sort of fellow, rather set in his ways and taken up with his own affairs. He had his hands full, he said, keeping the wolf from the door. That is, keeping himself as fat and comfortable as his father before him. The dog was busy helping him. Neither of them gave much thought to the wide world outside their fields, the village and the nearest market. But the wide world was there. The forest was not far off, and away, west and north, were the wild hills and the dubious marches of the mountain country. And, among other things, still at large, there were giants, rude and uncultured folk, and troublesome at times. There was one giant in particular, larger and more stupid than his fellows. I find no mention of his name in the histories, but it does not matter. He was very large. His walking stick was like a tree, and his tread was heavy. He brushed elms aside like tall grasses, and he was the ruin of roads and the desolation of gardens, but his great feet made holes in them as deep as wells. If he stumbled into a house, that was the end of it, and all this damage he did wherever he went, for his head was far above the roofs of houses and left his feet to look after themselves. He was near-sighted and also rather deaf, Fortunately, he lived far off in the wild, and seldom visited the lands inhabited by men, at least not on purpose. He had a great tumble-down house away up in the mountains, but he had very few friends, owing to his deafness and his stupidity and the scarcity of giants. He used to go out walking in the wild hills and in the empty regions at the feet of the mountains, all by himself. One fine summer's day, this giant went out for a walk, and wandered aimlessly along, doing a great deal of damage in the woods. Suddenly he noticed that the sun was setting, and felt that his supper-time was drawing near, but he discovered that he was in a part of the country that he did not know at all, and had lost his way. Making a wrong guess at the right direction, he walked and he walked, until it was dark night. Then he sat down and waited for the moon to rise. Then he walked and walked in the moonlight, striding out with a will, for he was anxious to get home. He had left his best copper pot on the fire, and feared that the bottom would be burned. But his back was to the mountains, and he was already in the lands inhabited by men. He was indeed now drawing near to the farm of Egidius Ahenobarbus Julius Agricola, and the village called, in the vulgar tongue, Ham. It was a fine night, the cows were in the fields, and Farmer Giles's dog had gone out and gone for a walk on his own account. He had a fancy for moonshine and rabbits. He had no idea, of course, that a giant was also out for a walk. That would have given him a good reason for going out without leave, but a still better reason for staying quiet in the kitchen. At about two o'clock, the giant arrived in Farmer Giles's fields, broke the hedges, trampled on the crops, and flattened the mowing grass. In five minutes he had done more damage than the royal fox-hunt could have done in five days. Garm heard a thump-thump coming along the river-bank, and he ran to the west side of the low hill on which the farmhouse stood, just to see what was happening. Suddenly he saw the giant stride right across the river and tread upon Galatea, the farmer's favourite cow, 
squashing the poor beast as flat as the farmer could have squashed the black beetle. That was more than enough for Garm. He gave a yelp of fright and bolted home, quite forgetting that he was out without leave. He came and barked and yammered beneath his master's bedroom window. There was no answer for a long time. Farmer Giles was not easily wakened. Help! 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 cried Garm. The window opened suddenly, and a well-aimed bottle came flying out. Ow! said the dog, jumping aside with practised skill. Help! 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 Out popped the farmer's head. Drat you, dog! What be you a-doing? said he. Nothing! said the dog. I'll give you nothing. I'll flay the skin off you in the morning, said the farmer, slamming the window. Help! 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 cried the dog. Out came Giles's head again. I'll kill you if you make another sound, he said. What's come to you, you fool? Nothing, said the dog. But something's come to you. What do you mean? said Giles, startled in the midst of his rage. Never before had Garm answered him saucily. There's a giant in your fields, an enormous giant, and he's coming this way, said the dog. Help! Help! And he's trampling on your sheep. He has stamped on poor Galatea, and she's as flat as a doormat. Help! Help! And he's bursting all your hedges, and he's crushing all your crops. You must be bold and quick, master, or you will soon have nothing left. Help! Garm began to howl. Shut up, said the farmer, and he shut the window. Lord a mercy, he said to himself, and though the night was warm, he shivered and shook. Get back to bed and don't be a fool, said his wife, and drown that dog in the morning. There is no call to believe what a dog says. They'll tell any tale when caught truant or thieving. Maybe, Agatha, said he, and maybe not, but there's something going on in my fields, or Garm's a rabbit. That dog was frightened. And why should he come yammering in the night when he could sneak in at the back door with the milk in the morning? Don't stand there arguing, she said. If you believe the dog, then take his advice. Be bold and quick. Easier said than done, answered Giles. For indeed he believed quite half of Garm's tale. In the small hours of the night, giants seem less unlikely. Still, property is property. And Farmer Giles had a short way with trespassers that few could outface. So he pulled on his breeches and went down into the kitchen, and took his blunderbuss from the wall. Some may well ask what a blunderbuss was. Indeed, this very question, it is said, was put to the four wise clerks of Oxenford. And, after thought, they replied, A blunderbuss is a short gun with a large bore, firing many balls or slugs, and capable of doing execution within a limited range without exact aim, now superseded in civilised countries by other firearms. However, Farmer Giles's blunderbuss had a wide mouth that opened like a horn, and he did not fire balls or slugs, but anything that he could spare to stuff in, and it did not do execution, because he seldom loaded it, and never let it off. The sight of it was usually enough for his purpose— and this country was not yet civilised, for the blunderbuss was not superseded. It was indeed the only kind of gun that there was, and rare at that. People preferred bows and arrows, and used gunpowder mostly for fireworks. 
Well, then, Farmer Giles took down the blunderbuss, and he put in a good charge of powder, just in case extreme measures should be required. And into the wide mouth he stuffed old nails and bits of wire, pieces of broken pot, bones and stones and other rubbish. Then he drew on his top boots and his overcoat, and he went out through the kitchen garden. The moon was low behind him, and he could see nothing worse than the long black shadows of bushes and trees. But he could hear a dreadful stamping, stumping, coming up the side of the hill. He did not feel either bold or quick, whatever Agatha might say, but he was more anxious about his property than his skin. So, feeling a bit loose about the belt, he walked towards the brow of the hill. Suddenly, up over the edge of it, the giant's face appeared, pale in the moonlight which glittered in his large round eyes. His feet were still far below, making holes in the fields. The moon dazzled the giant, and he did not see the farmer. But Farmer Giles saw him, and was scared out of his wits. He pulled the trigger without thinking, and the blunderbuss went off with a staggering bang. By luck, it was pointed more or less at the giant's large, ugly face. Out flew the rubbish and the stones and the bones, and the bits of crock and wire and half a dozen nails. And since the range was indeed limited, by chance, and no choice of the farmers, many of these things struck the giant. A piece of pot went into his eye, and a large nail stuck in his nose. Blast! said the giant in his vulgar fashion. I'm stung! The noise had made no impression on him. He was rather deaf, but he did not like the nail. It was a long time since he had met any insect fierce enough to pierce his thick skin, but he had heard tell that away east, in the fens, there were dragonflies that could bite like hot pincers. He thought that he must have run into something of the kind. Nasty, unhealthy parts, evidently, said he. I shan't go any further this way tonight. So he picked up a couple of sheep off the hillside to eat when he got home and went back over the river, making off about nor nor west at a great pace. He found his way home again in the end, for he was at last going in the right direction, but the bottom was burned off his copper pot. As for Farmer Giles, when the blunderbuss went off, it knocked him over, flat on his back, and there he lay, looking at the sky, and wondering if the giant's feet would miss him as they passed by. But nothing happened, and the stamping, stumping died away in the distance. So he got up, rubbed his shoulder, and picked up the blunderbuss. Then suddenly he heard the sound of people cheering. Most of the people of Ham had been looking out of their windows. A few had put on their clothes and come out, after the giant had gone away. Some were now running up the hill, shouting. The villagers had heard the horrible thump-thump of the giant's feet, and most of them had immediately got under the bedclothes. Some had even got under the beds. But Garm was both proud and frightened of his master. He thought him terrible and splendid when he was angry, and he naturally thought that any giant would think the same. So as soon as he saw Giles come out with the blunderbuss, a sign of great wrath as a rule, he rushed off to the village, barking and crying, Come out! Come out! Come out! Get up! Get up! Come and see my great master! He is bold and quick! He's going to shoot a giant for trespassing! Come out! The top of the hill could be seen from most of the houses, 
When the people and the dog saw the giant's face rise above it, they quailed and held their breath, and all but the dog among them thought that this would prove a matter too big for Giles to deal with. Then the blunderbuss went bang, and the giant turned suddenly and went away, and in their amazement and their joy they clapped and cheered, and Garm nearly barked his head off. "'Hooray!' they shouted. "'That will learn him! Master Egidius has given him what for! Now he will go home and die, and serve him right and proper!' Then they all cheered again together. But even as they cheered, they took note for their own profit that, after all, this blunderbuss could really be fired. There had been some debate in the village inns on that point, but now the matter was settled. Farmer Giles had little trouble with trespassers after that. When all seemed safe, some of the bolder folk came right up the hill and shook hands with Farmer Giles. A few the parson and the blacksmith and the miller and one or two other persons of importance, slapped him on the back. That did not please him. His shoulder was very sore, but he felt obliged to invite them into his house. They sat round in the kitchen, drinking his health and loudly praising him. He made no effort to hide his yawns, but as long as the drink lasted, they took no notice. By the time they had all had one or two, and the farmer two or three, he began to feel quite bold. When they had all had two or three, and he himself five or six, he felt as bold as his dog thought him. They parted good friends, and he slapped their backs heartily. His hands were large, red, and thick, so he had his revenge. Next day he found that the news had grown in the telling, and he had become an important local figure. By the middle of the next week the news had spread to all the villages within twenty miles. He had become the hero of the countryside. Very pleasant, he found it. Next market day he got enough free drink to float a boat. That is to say, he nearly had his fill, and came home singing old heroic songs. At last even the king got to hear of it. The capital of that realm the middle kingdom of the island in those happy days, was some twenty leagues distant from Ham, and they paid little heed at court, as a rule, to the doings of rustics in the provinces. But so prompt an expulsion of a giant so injurious seemed worthy of note, and of some little courtesy. So, in due course, that is, in about three months, and on the feast of St. Michael, the king sent a magnificent letter. It was written in red, upon white parchment, and expressed the royal approbation of our loyal subject and well-beloved Egidius Ahinobarbus Julius Agricola de Hamo. The letter was signed with a red blot, but the court scribe had added, Ego Augustus Bonifacius Ambrosius Aurelianus Antoninus Pius et Magnificus Dux Rex Tyrannus at Basileus Mediterranearum Patium Subscribo, and a large red seal was attached. So the document was plainly genuine. It afforded great pleasure to Giles, and was much admired, especially when it was discovered that one could get a seat and a drink by the farmer's fire by asking to look at it. Better than the testimonial was the accompanying gift. The king sent a belt and a long sword, to tell the truth, the king had never used the sword himself. It belonged to the family, and had been hanging in his armoury time out of mind. 
The armourer could not say how it came there, or what might be the use of it. Plain heavy swords of that kind were out of fashion at court just then, so the king thought it the very thing for a present to a rustic. But Farmer Giles was delighted, and his local reputation became enormous. Giles much enjoyed the turn of events. So did his dog. He never got his promised whipping. Giles was a just man, according to his lights. In his heart he gave a fair share of the credit to Garm, though he never went so far as to mention it. He continued to throw hard words and hard things at the dog when he felt inclined, but he winked at many little outings. Garm took to walking far afield. The farmer went about with a high step, and luck smiled on him. The autumn and early winter work went well. All seemed set fair. Until the dragon came. In those days dragons were already getting scarce in the island. None had been seen in the midland realm of Augustus Bonifacius for many a year. There were, of course, the dubious marches, and the uninhabited mountains westward and northward, but they were a long way off. In those parts, once upon a time, there had dwelt a number of dragons of one kind and another, and they had made raids far and wide. But the Middle Kingdom was in those days famous for the daring of the king's knights, and so many stray dragons had been killed, or had returned with grave damage, that the others gave up going that way. It was still the custom for dragon's tail to be served up at the king's Christmas feast, and each year a knight was chosen for the duty of hunting. He was supposed to set out upon St. Nicholas' Day, and come home with a dragon's tail not later than the eve of the feast. But for many years now the royal cook had made a marvellous confection, a mock dragon's tail of cake and almond paste, with cunning scales of hard icing sugar. The chosen knight then carried this into the hall on Christmas Eve, while the fiddles played and the trumpets rang. The mock dragon's tail was eaten after dinner on Christmas Day, and everybody said, to please the cook, that it tasted much better than real tail. That was the situation when a real dragon turned up again. The giant was largely to blame. After his adventure, he used to go about in the mountains visiting his scattered relations more than had been his custom, and much more than they liked, for he was always trying to borrow a large copper pot. But whether he got the loan of one or not, he would sit and talk in his long-winded, lumbering fashion about the excellent country down away east, and all the wonders of the wide world. He had got it into his head that he was a great and daring traveller. "'A nice land!' he would say. Pretty flat, soft to the feet, and plenty to eat for the taking. Cows, you know, and sheep all over the place, easy to spot if you look carefully. But what about the people? said they. I never saw any, said he. There was not a night to be seen or heard, my dear fellows. Nothing worse than a few stinging flies by the river. Why don't you go back and stay there? said they. "'Oh, well, there's no place like home,' they say,' said he. "'But maybe I shall go back one day, when I have a mind. "'And anyway, I went there once, which is more than most folk can say. "'Now, about that copper pot. "'And these rich lands,' they would hurriedly ask, "'these delectable regions full of undefended cattle, "'which way do they lie, and how far off?' "'Oh,' he would answer, 
away east or south-east. But it's a long journey. And then he would give such an exaggerated account of the distance that he had walked, and the woods, hills and plains that he had crossed, that none of the other less long-legged giants ever set out. Still, the talk got about. Then the warm summer was followed by a hard winter. It was bitter cold in the mountains, and food was scarce. The talk got louder. Lowland sheep and kine from the deep pastures were much discussed. The dragons pricked up their ears. They were hungry, and these rumours were attractive. So, knights are mythical, said the younger and less experienced dragons. We always thought so. At least they may be getting rare, thought the older and wiser worms. Far and few, and no longer to be feared. There was one dragon who was deeply moved. Chrysophylax Dives was his name, for he was of ancient and imperial lineage, and very rich. He was cunning, inquisitive, greedy, well-armoured, but not over-bold. But at any rate, he was not in the least afraid of flies or insects of any sort or size, and he was mortally hungry. So one winter's day, about a week before Christmas, Chrysophylax spread his wings and took off. He landed quietly in the middle of the night, plump in the heart of the midland realm of Augustus Bonifacius Rex at Basilius. He did a deal of damage in a short while, smashing and burning and devouring sheep, cattle and horses. This was in a part of the land a long way from Ham, but Garm got the fright of his life. He had gone off on a long expedition, and taking advantage of his master's favour, he had ventured to spend a night or two away from home. He was following an engaging scent along the eaves of a wood, when he turned a corner and came suddenly upon a new and alarming smell. He ran, indeed, slap into the tail of Chrysophylax Dives, who had just landed. Never did a dog turn his own tail round and bolt home swifter than Garm. The dragon, hearing his yelp, turned and snorted. But Garm was already far out of range. He ran all the rest of the night and arrived home about breakfast time. Help! 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 he cried outside the back door. Giles heard and did not like the sound of it. It reminded him that unexpected things may happen when all seems to be going well. "'Wife, let that dratted dog in,' said he, "'and take a stick to him.' Garm came bundling into the kitchen, with his eyes starting and his tongue hanging out. "'Help!' he cried. "'Now, what have you been a-doing this time?' said Giles, throwing a sausage at him. <laughs> N- "'Nothing!' panted Garm, too flustered to give heed to the sausage. "'Well, stop doing it, or I'll skin you,' said the farmer. I- "'I've done no wrong. I didn't mean no harm,' said the dog. "'But I came on a dragon, accidental-like, and it frightened me.' The farmer choked in his beer. "'Dragon?' said he. "'Drat you for a good-for-nothing nosy parker!' What do you want and go and find a dragon for at this time of the year, and me with my hands full? Where was it? Oh, north, over the hills and far away, and beyond the standing stones and all, said the dog. Oh, away there, said Giles, mighty relieved. 
They're queer folk in those parts, I've heard tell, and aught might happen in their land. Let them get on with it. Don't come worriting me with such tales. Get out. Garm got out and spread the news all over the village. He did not forget to mention that his master was not scared in the least. Quite cool he was, and went on with his breakfast. People chatted about it pleasantly at their doors. How like old times, they said. Just as Christmas is coming too, so seasonable. How pleased the king will be. He will be able to have real tale this Christmas. But more news came in next day. The dragon, it appeared, was exceptionally large and ferocious. He was doing terrible damage. What about the king's knights? people began to say. Others already asked the same question. Indeed, messengers were now reaching the king from the villages most afflicted by Chrysophylax, and they said to him as loudly and as often as they dared, Lord, what of your knights? But the knights did nothing. Their knowledge of the dragon was still quite unofficial. So the king brought the matter to their notice, fully and formally, asking for necessary action at their early convenience. He was greatly displeased when he found that their convenience would not be early at all, and was indeed daily postponed. Yet the excuses of the knights were undoubtedly sound. First of all, the royal cook had already made the dragon's tail for that Christmas, being a man who believed in getting things done in good time. It would not do at all to offend him by bringing in a real tail at the last minute. He was a very valuable servant. "'Never mind the tail! Cut his head off and put an end to him!' cried the messengers from the villages most nearly affected. But Christmas had arrived, and most unfortunately a grand tournament had been arranged for St. John's Day. Knights of many realms had been invited, and were coming to compete for a valuable prize. It was obviously unreasonable to spoil the chances of the Midland Knights by sending their best men off on a dragon hunt before the tournament was over. After that came the New Year holiday. But each night the dragon had moved, and each move had brought him nearer to Ham. On the night of New Year's Day, people could see a blaze in the distance. The dragon had settled in a wood about ten miles away, and it was burning merrily. He was a hot dragon when he felt in the mood. After that, people began to look at Farmer Giles and whisper behind his back. It made him very uncomfortable, but he pretended not to notice it. The next day the dragon came several miles nearer. Then Farmer Giles himself began to talk loudly of the scandal of the king's knights. "'I should like to know what they do to earn their keep,' said he. "'So should we,' said everyone in Ham. But the miller added, "'Some men still get knighthood by sheer merit, I'm told. After all, our good Egidius here is already a knight in a manner of speaking.' Did not the king send him a red letter and a sword? There's more than knighthood than a sword, said Giles. There's dubbing and all that, or so I understand. Anyway, I've my own business to attend to. Oh, but the king would do the dubbing, I don't doubt, if he were asked, said the miller. Let us ask him before it is too late. Nay, said Giles, dubbing is not for my sword. I'm a farmer and proud of it. Plain, honest man, and honest men fare ill at court, they say. It's more in your line, Master Miller. The parson smiled, not at the farmer's retort, 
for Giles and the miller were always giving one another as good as they got, being bosom enemies, as the saying was in Ham, the parson had suddenly been struck with a notion that pleased him, but he said no more at the time. The miller was not so pleased, and he scowled. "'Plain, certainly, and honest, perhaps,' said he. "'But do you have to go to court and be a knight before you kill a dragon?' "'Courage is all that is needed. "'As only yesterday I heard Master Egidius declare. "'Surely he has as much courage as any knight.' "'And all the folks standing by shouted, "'Of course not!' and, "'Yes, indeed! Three cheers for the hero of Ham!' "'Then Farmer Giles went home, feeling very uncomfortable. "'He was finding that a local reputation may require keeping up and that may prove awkward. He kicked the dog, and hid the sword in a cupboard in the kitchen. Up till then it had hung over the fireplace. The next day the dragon moved to the neighbouring village of Quercetum, Oakley in the vulgar tongue. He ate not only sheep and cows and one or two persons of tender age, but he ate the parson too. Rather rashly, the parson had sought to dissuade him from his evil ways. Then there was a terrible commotion. All the people of Ham came up the hill, headed by their own parson, and they waited on Farmer Giles. "'We look to you,' they said, and they remained, standing round and looking, until the farmer's face was redder than his beard. "'When are you going to start?' they asked. "'Well, I can't start today, and that's a fact,' said he. I've a lot on hand with my cowman sick and all. I'll see about it. They went away. But in the evening it was rumoured that the dragon had moved even nearer, so they all came back. We look to you, Master Egidius, they said. Well, said he, it's very awkward for me just now. My mare is gone lame and the lambing has started. I'll see about it as soon as may be. So they went away once more, not without some grumbling and whispering. The miller was sniggering. The parson stayed behind, and could not be got rid of. He invited himself to supper, and made some pointed remarks. He even asked what had become of the sword, and insisted on seeing it. It was lying in a cupboard, on a shelf hardly long enough for it, and as soon as Farmer Giles brought it out, in a flash it leapt from the sheath which the farmer dropped as if it had been hot. The parson sprang to his feet, upsetting his beer. He picked the sword up, carefully, and tried to put it back in the sheath, but it would not go so much as a foot in, and it jumped clean out again as soon as he took his hand off the hilt. "'Dear me, this is very peculiar,' said the parson, and he took a good look at both scabbard and blade. He was a lettered man,' But the farmer could only spell out large unseals with difficulty, and was none too sure of the reading even of his own name. That is why he had never given any heed to the strange letters that could dimly be seen on sheath and sword. As for the king's armourer, he was so accustomed to runes, names, and other signs of power and significance upon swords and scabbards, that he had not bothered his head about them. He thought them out of date, anyway." But the parson looked long, and he frowned, 
He had expected to find some lettering on the sword or on the scabbard, and that was indeed the idea that had come to him the day before. But now he was surprised at what he saw, for letters and signs there were, to be sure, but he could not make head or tail of them. There is an inscription on this sheath, and some uh, epigraphical signs are visible also upon the sword, he said. Indeed, said Giles. And what may that amount to? Well, the characters are archaic, and the language barbaric, said the parson, to gain time. A little closer inspection will be required. He begged the loan of the sword for the night, and the farmer let him have it with pleasure. When the parson got home, he took down many learned books from his shelves, and he sat up far into the night. Next morning it was discovered that the dragon had moved nearer still. All the people of Ham barred their doors and shuttered their windows, and those that had cellars went down into them and sat shivering in the candlelight. But the parson stole out and went from door to door, and he told, to all who would listen through a crack or a keyhole, what he had discovered in his study. "'Our good Egidius,' he said, "'by the king's grace is now the owner of Cowdy Mordax, the famous sword that in popular romances is more vulgarly called Tailbiter. Those that heard this name usually opened the door. They all knew the renown of Tailbiter, for that sword belonged to Bellomarius, the greatest of all the dragon-slayers of the realm. Some accounts made him the maternal great-great-grandfather of the king. The songs and tales of his deeds were many, and, if forgotten at court, were still remembered in the villages. "'This sword,' said the parson, will not stay sheathed if a dragon is within five miles, and without doubt, in a brave man's hands, no dragon can resist it. Then people began to take heart again, and some unshuttered the windows and put their heads out. In the end, the parson persuaded a few to come and join him, but only the miller was really willing. To see Giles in a real fix seemed to him worth the risk. They went up the hill, not without anxious looks north across the river. There was no sign of the dragon. Probably he was asleep. He had been feeding very well all the Christmas time. The parson and the miller hammered on the farmer's door. There was no answer. So they hammered louder. At last Giles came out. His face was very red. He also had sat up far into the night, drinking a good deal of ale, and he had begun again as soon as he got up. They all crowded round him, calling him Good Egidius, Bold Ahenobarbus, Great Julius, Staunch Agricola, Pride of Ham, Hero of the Countryside. And they spoke of Caldimordax, Tailbiter, the sword that would not be sheathed, Death or Victory, the glory of the yeomanry, backbone of the country, and the good of one's fellow men, until the farmer's head was hopelessly confused. "'Now then, one at a time,' he said, when he got a chance. "'What's all this? What's all this? It's my busy morning, you know.' So they let the parson explain the situation. Then the miller had the pleasure of seeing the farmer in as tight a fix as he could wish. But things did not turn out quite as the miller expected. 
For one thing, Giles had drunk a deal of strong ale. For another, he had a queer feeling of pride and encouragement when he learned that his sword was actually tailbiter. He had been very fond of tales about Bellamarius when he was a boy, and before he had learned sense, he had sometimes wished that he could have a marvellous and heroic sword of his own. So it came over him all of a sudden that he would take Tailbiter and go dragon-hunting. But he had been used to bargaining all his life, and he made one more effort to postpone the event. "'What?' said he. "'Me go dragon-hunting? In my old leggings and waistcoat? Dragon-fights need some kind of armour, from all I've heard tell.' "'There isn't any armour in this house, and that's a fact,' said he. "'That was a bit awkward,' they all allowed. "'But they sent for the blacksmith. "'The blacksmith shook his head. "'He was a slow, gloomy man, vulgarly known as Sonny Sam, "'though his proper name was Fabricius Cunctator. "'He never whistled at his work, "'unless some disaster, such as frost in May, "'had duly occurred after he had foretold it. Since he was daily foretelling disasters of every kind, few happened that he had not foretold, and he was able to take credit for them. It was his chief pleasure. So, naturally, he was reluctant to do anything to avert them. He shook his head again. "'I can't make armour out of naught,' he said, "'and it's not in my line. You'd best get the carpenter to make you a wooden shield. Not that it will help you much. He's a hot dragon. Their faces fell. But the miller was not so easily to be turned from his plan of sending Giles to the dragon, if he would go, or of blowing the bubble of his local reputation, if he refused in the end. What about ringmail? he said. That will be a help, and it need not be very fine. It will be for business and not for showing off at court. "'What about your old leather jerking, friend Egidius? "'And there is a great pile of links and rings in the smithy. "'I don't suppose Master Fabricius himself knows what may be lying there.' "'You don't know what you were talking about,' said the smith, growing cheerful. "'If it's real ring-mail you mean, then you can't have it. "'It needs the skill of the dwarfs, with every little ring fitting into four others and all.' Even if I had the craft, I should be working for weeks, and we should all be in our graves before then, said he, or leastways, in the dragon. They all wrung their hands in dismay, and the blacksmith began to smile. But they were now so alarmed that they were unwilling to give up the miller's plan, and they turned to him for counsel. Well said he. I've heard tell that in the old days those that could not buy bright hawbucks out of the Southlands would stitch steel rings on a leather shirt and be content with that. Let's see what can be done in that line. So Giles had to bring out his old jerkin, and the smith was hurried back to his smithy. There they rummaged in every corner and turned over the pile of old metal, as it had not been done for many a year. At the bottom they found, all dull with rust, a whole heap of small rings, fallen from some forgotten coat, such as the miller had spoken of. Sam, more unwilling and gloomy as the task seemed more hopeful, was set to work on the spot, gathering and sorting and cleaning the rings. And when, 
As he was pleased to point out, these were clearly insufficient for one so broad of back and breast as Master Egidius. They made him split up old chains, and hammer the links into rings as fine as his skill could contrive. Then they took the smaller rings of steel and stitched them onto the breast of the jerkin, and the larger and clumsier rings they stitched on the back. And then, when still more rings were forthcoming, so hard was poor Sam driven, they took a pair of the farmer's breeches and stitched rings onto them. And up on a shelf, in a dark nook of the smithy, the miller found the old iron frame of a helmet, and he set the cobbler to work, covering it with leather as well as he could. The work took them all the rest of that day, and all the next day, which was twelfth night and the eve of the Epiphany, but festivities were neglected. Farmer Giles celebrated the occasion with more ale than usual, but the dragon mercifully slept. For the moment he had forgotten all about hunger or swords. Early on the Epiphany they went up the hill, carrying the strange result of their handiwork. Giles was expecting them. He had now no excuses left to offer, so he put on the male jerkin and the breeches. The miller sniggered. Then Giles put on his top boots and an old pair of spurs, and also the leather-covered helmet. But at the last moment he clapped an old felt hat over the helmet, and over the mail coat he threw his big grey cloak. "'What is the purpose of that, master?' they asked. "'Well,' said Giles, "'if it is your notion to go dragon-hunting, jingling and dingling like Canterbury bells, it ain't mine.' It don't seem sense to me to let the dragon know that you are a-coming along the road sooner than need be. And a helmet's a helmet, and a challenge to battle. Let the worm see only my old hat over the hedge, and maybe I'll get nearer before the trouble begins. They had stitched on the rings so that they overlapped, each hanging loose over the one below, and jingle they certainly did. The cloak did something to stop the noise of them, but Giles cut a queer figure in his gear. They did not tell him so. They girded the belt round his waist with difficulty, and they hung the scabbard upon it. But he had to carry the sword, for it would no longer stay sheathed, unless held with main strength. The farmer called for Garm. He was a just man, according to his lights. Dog, he said, you are coming with me. The dog howled. Help! Help! he cried. No, stop it, said Giles, or I'll give you worse than any dragon could. You know the smell of this worm, and maybe you'll prove useful for once. Then Farmer Giles called for his grey mare. She gave him a queer look and sniffed at the spurs, but she let him get up, and then off they went, and none of them felt happy. They trotted through the village, and all the folk clapped and cheered, mostly from their windows. The farmer and his mare put as good a face on it as they could, but Garm had no sense of shame, and slunk along with his tail down. They crossed the bridge over the river at the end of the village. When at last they were well out of sight, they slowed to a walk. Yet all too soon... They passed out of the lands belonging to Farmer Giles and to the other folk of Ham, and came to parts that the dragon had visited. There were broken trees, burned hedges and blackened grass, and a nasty, uncanny silence.
the sun was shining bright, and Farmer Giles began to wish that he dared shed a garment or two, and he wondered if he had not taken a pint too many. A nice end of Christmas and all, he thought, and I'll be lucky if it don't prove the end of me too. He mopped his face with a large handkerchief, green, not red, for red rags infuriate dragons, or so he had heard tell. But he did not find the dragon. He rode down many lanes, wide and narrow, and over other farmers' deserted fields, and still he did not find the dragon. Garn was, of course, of no use at all. He just kept behind the mare, and refused to use his nose. They came at last to a winding road that had suffered little damage and seemed quiet and peaceful. After following it for half a mile, Giles began to wonder whether he had not done his duty and all that his reputation required. He had made up his mind that he had looked long and far enough, and he was just thinking of turning back, and of his dinner, and of telling his friends that the dragon had seen him coming and simply flown away, when he turned a sharp corner. There was the dragon, lying half across a broken hedge, with his horrible head in the middle of the road. Help! said Garm, and bolted. The grey mare sat down plump, and Farmer Giles went off backwards into a ditch. When he put his head out, there was the dragon, wide awake, looking at him. "'Good morning,' said the dragon. "'You seem surprised.' "'Good morning,' said Giles. "'I am that.' "'Excuse me,' said the dragon. He had cocked a very suspicious ear when he caught the sound of rings jingling as the farmer fell. "'Excuse my asking, but were you looking for me by any chance?' "'No, indeed,' said the farmer. "'Who'd have thought of seeing you here? "'I was just going for a ride.' "'He scrambled out of the ditch in a hurry "'and backed away towards the grey mare. "'She was now on her feet again "'and was nibbling some grass at the wayside, "'seeming quite unconcerned. "'Then we meet by good luck,' said the dragon. "'The pleasure is mine. "'Those are your holiday clothes, I suppose.' A new fashion, perhaps? Farmer Giles's felt hat had fallen off, and his grey cloak had slipped open, but he brazened it out. Oi, said he, brand new. Yeah, but I must be after that dog of mine. He's gone after rabbits, I fancy. I fancy not, said Chrysophylax, licking his lips, a sign of amusement. He will get home a long time before you do, I expect. "'But pray proceed on your way, master. "'Let me see, I don't think I know your name.' "'Nor I yours,' said Giles. "'And we'll leave it at that.' "'As you like,' said Chrysophylax, "'licking his lips again, but pretending to close his eyes. "'He had a wicked heart, as dragons all have, "'but not a very bold one, as is not unusual. "'He preferred a meal that he did not have to fight for, but appetite had returned after a good long sleep. The parson of Oakley had been stringy, and it was years since he had tasted a large, fat man. He had now made up his mind to try this easy meat, and he was only waiting until the old fool was off his guard. But the old fool was not as foolish as he looked, 
and he kept his eye on the dragon, even while he was trying to mount. The mare, however, had other ideas, and she kicked and shied when Giles tried to get up. The dragon became impatient and made ready to spring. "'Excuse me,' said he. "'Haven't you dropped something?' An ancient trick, but it succeeded, for Giles had indeed dropped something. When he fell, he had dropped Caldimordax, or, vulgarly, tailbiter, and there it lay by the wayside. He stooped to pick it up, and the dragon sprang, but not as quick as tailbiter. As soon as it was in the farmer's hand, it leapt forward with a flash, straight at the dragon's eyes. "'Hey!' said the dragon, and stopped very short. "'What have you got there?' "'Only tail-biter that was given to me by the king,' said Giles. "'My mistake,' said the dragon. "'I beg your pardon.' He lay and groveled, and Farmer Giles began to feel more comfortable. "'I don't think you have treated me fair.' "'How not?' said Giles. "'And anyway, why should I?' "'You have concealed your honourable name "'and pretended that our meeting was by chance. "'Yet you are plainly a knight of high lineage. "'It used, sir, to be the custom of knights "'to issue a challenge in such cases, "'after a proper exchange of titles and credentials. "'Maybe it used, and maybe it still is,' said Giles, "'beginning to feel pleased with himself. "'A man who has a large and imperial dragon grovelling before him, may be excused if he feels somewhat uplifted. "'But you are making more mistakes than one old worm. I am no knight. I am farmer, Egidius of Ham, I am, and I can't abide trespasses. I've shot giants with my blunderbuss before now for doing less damage than you have, and I issued no challenge neither.' The dragon was disturbed. Oh, "'Curse that!' "'Giant for a liar,' he thought. "'I have been sadly misled. "'And now what on earth does one do "'with a bold farmer and a sword so bright and aggressive?' "'He could recall no precedent for such a situation. "'Chrysophylax is my name,' said he. "'Chrysophylax the Rich. "'What can I do for your honour? he added ingratiatingly, "'with one eye on the sword and hoping to escape battle.' "'You can take yourself off, you horny old varmint,' said Giles, also hoping to escape battle. "'I only want to be shut of you. Go right away from here and get back to your own dirty den.' He stepped towards Chrysophylax, waving his arms as if he was scaring crows. That was quite enough a tail-biter. It circled, flashing in the air. Then down it came, smiting the dragon on the joint of the right wing, a ringing blow that shocked him exceedingly.' Of course, Giles knew very little about the right methods of killing a dragon, or the sword might have landed in a tenderer spot. But Tailbiter did the best it could in inexperienced hands. It was quite enough for Chrysophylax. He could not use his wing for days. Up he got and turned to fly, and found that he could not. <laughs> Thank you.
The farmer sprang on the mare's back. The dragon began to run. So did the mare. The dragon galloped over the field, puffing and blowing. So did the mare. The farmer bawled and shouted as if he was watching a horse race, and all the while he waved tailbiter. The faster the dragon ran, the more bewildered he became, and all the while the grey mare put her best leg foremost and kept close behind. On they pounded, down the lanes and through the gaps in the fences, over many fields and across many brooks. The dragon was smoking and bellowing and losing all sense of direction. At last they came suddenly to the bridge of Ham, thundered over it and came roaring down the village street. There, Garm had the impudence to sneak out of an alley and join in the chase. All the people were at their windows or on the roofs. Some laughed and some cheered, and some beat tins and pans and kettles, and others blew horns and pipes and whistles, and the parson had the church bells rung. Such a to-do and an ongoing had not been heard in Ham for a hundred years. Just outside the church, the dragon gave up. He lay down in the middle of the road and gasped. Garm came and sniffed at his tail, but Chrysophylax was past all shame. Good people and gallant warrior, he panted as Farmer Giles rode up, while the villagers gathered round, at a reasonable distance, with hayforks, poles, and pokers in their hands. Good people, don't kill me. I am very rich. I will pay for all the damage I have done. I will pay for the funerals of all the people I have killed, especially the parson of Oakley. He shall have a noble cenotaph, though he was rather lean. I will give you each a really good present if only you will let me go home and fetch it. How much? said the farmer. Well, said the dragon, calculating quickly. He noticed that the crowd was rather large. Thirteen and eightpence each? Nonsense, said Giles. Rubbish, said the people. Rot, said the dog. Two golden guineas each, and children half price, said the dragon. What about dogs, said Garm. Go on, said the farmer. We're listening. Ten pounds and a purse of silver for every soul, and gold collars for the dogs, said Chrysophylax, anxiously. Kill him, shouted the people, getting impatient. A bag of gold for everybody and diamonds for the ladies, said Chrysophylax hurriedly. Now you're talking, but not good enough, said Farmer Giles. You've left dogs out again, said Garm. "'What size of bags?' said the men. "'How many diamonds?' said their wives. Oh, "'Dear me, dear me,' said the dragon. "'I shall be ruined.' "'You deserve it,' said Giles. "'You can choose between being ruined "'and being killed where you lie.' "'He brandished tailbiter, and the dragon cowered. "'Make up your mind,' the people cried, "'getting bolder and drawing nearer.' Chrysophylax blinked, but deep down inside him he laughed, a silent quiver which they did not observe. Their bargaining had begun to amuse him. Evidently they expected to get something out of it. 
They knew very little of the ways of the wide and wicked world. Indeed, there was no one now living in all the realm who had had any actual experience in dealing with dragons and their tricks. Chrysophylax was getting his breath back, and his wits as well. He licked his lips. "'Name your own price,' he said. Then they all began to talk at once. Chrysophylax listened with interest. Only one voice disturbed him, that of the blacksmith. "'No good'll come of it, mark my words,' said he. "'A worm won't return. Say what you like. "'But no good will come of it either way.' "'You can stand out of the bargain if that's your mind,' they said to him, "'and went on haggling, taking little further notice of the dragon. "'Chrysophylax raised his head, "'but if he thought of springing on them, "'or of slipping off during the argument, he was disappointed. "'Farmer Giles was standing by, chewing a straw.' and considering. But Tailbiter was in his hand, and his eye was on the dragon. "'You lie where you be,' said he, "'or you'll get what you deserve. Gold or no gold.' The dragon lay flat. At last the parson was made spokesman, and he stepped up beside Giles. "'Vile worm,' he said, "'you must bring back to this spot all your ill-gotten wealth.' and after recompensing those whom you have injured, we will share it fairly among ourselves. Then, if you make a solemn vow never to disturb our land again, nor to stir up any other monster to trouble us, we will let you depart with both your head and your tail to your own home. And now you shall take such strong oaths to return with your ransom— as even the conscience of a worm must hold binding. Chrysophylax accepted, after a plausible show of hesitation. He even shed hot tears, lamenting his ruin, till there were steaming puddles in the road, but no one was moved by them. He swore many oaths, solemn and astonishing, that he would return with all his wealth on the feast of St. Hilarius and St. Felix. That gave him... Eight days, and far too short a time for the journey, as even those ignorant of geography might well have reflected. Nonetheless, they let him go, and escorted him as far as the bridge. "'To our next meeting,' he said, as he passed over the river. "'I'm sure we shall all look forward to it.' "'We shall, indeed,' they said. They were, of course, very foolish.' For though the oaths he had taken should have burdened his conscience with sorrow and a great fear of disaster, he had, alas, no conscience at all. And if this regrettable lack in one of imperial lineage was beyond the comprehension of the simple, at least the parson, with his book-learning, might have guessed it. Maybe he did. He was a grammarian, and could doubtless see further into the future than others. The blacksmith shook his head as he went back to his smithy. Ominous names, he said. Hilarious and Felix. I don't like the sound of them. The king, of course, quickly heard the news. It ran through the realm like fire and lost nothing in the telling. The king was deeply moved, for various reasons, not the least being financial.
and he made up his mind to ride at once in person to Ham, where such strange things seemed to happen. He arrived four days after the dragon's departure, coming over the bridge on his white horse with many knights and trumpeters and a large baggage train. All the people had put on their best clothes and lined the street to welcome him. The cavalcade came to a halt in the open space before the church gate. Farmer Giles knelt before the king when he was presented, but the king told him to rise and actually patted him on the back. The knights pretended not to observe this familiarity. The king ordered the whole village to assemble in Farmer Giles's large pasture beside the river, and when they were all gathered together, including Garm, who felt that he was concerned, Augustus Bonifacius Rex at Basilius was graciously pleased to address them. He explained carefully that the wealth of the miscreant Chrysophylax all belonged to himself, as lord of the land. He passed rather lightly over his claim to be considered suzerain of the mountain country, which was debatable, but uh, we make no doubt in any case, said he, that all the treasure of this worm was stolen from our ancestors. Yet we are, as all know, both just and generous, and our good liege, Gidius, shall be suitably rewarded. Nor shall any of our loyal subjects in this place go without some token of our esteem, from the parson to the youngest child, for we are well pleased with Ham. Here at least the sturdy and uncorrupted folk still retain the ancient courage of our race. The knights were talking among themselves about the new fashion in hats, the people bowed and curtsied and thanked him humbly, but they wished now that they had closed with the dragon's offer of ten pounds all round, and kept the matter private. They knew enough at any rate to feel sure that the king's esteem would not rise to that. Garm noticed that there was no mention of dogs. Farmer Giles was the only one of them who was really content. He felt sure of some reward, and was mighty glad anyway to have come safely out of a nasty business with his local reputation higher than ever. The king did not go away. He pitched his pavilions in Farmer Giles's field, and waited for January the 14th, making as merry as he could in a miserable village far from the capital. The royal retinue ate up nearly all the bread, butter, eggs, chickens, bacon and mutton, and drank up every drop of old ale there was in the place in the next three days. Then they began to grumble at short commons. But the king paid handsomely for everything, in tallies, to be honoured later by the exchequer, which he hoped would shortly be richly replenished. So the folk of Ham were well satisfied, not knowing the actual state of the exchequer. January the 14th came, the feast of Hilarius and of Felix, and everybody was up and about early. The knights put on their armour, the farmer put on his coat of home-made mail, and they smiled openly, until they caught the king's frown. The farmer also put on tail-biter, and it went into its sheath as easy as butter, and stayed there. The parson looked hard at the sword, and nodded to himself. The blacksmith laughed. Midday came. People were too anxious to eat much. The afternoon passed slowly. Still, Tailbiter showed no sign of leaping from the scabbard. None of the watchers on the hill, nor any of the small boys who had climbed to the tops of tall trees, could see anything, by air or by land, that might herald the return of the dragon. 
the blacksmith walked about, whistling. But it was not until evening fell, and the stars came out, that the other folk of the village began to suspect that the dragon did not mean to come back at all. Still they recalled his many solemn and astonishing oaths, and kept on hoping. When, however, midnight struck and the appointed day was over, their disappointment was deep. The blacksmith was delighted. "'I told you so,' he said. But they were still not convinced. "'After all, he was badly hurt,' said some. "'We did not give him enough time,' said others. "'It is a powerful long way to the mountains, and he would have to carry a lot. "'Maybe he has had to get help.' "'But the next day passed, and the next. "'Then they all gave up hope. "'The king was in a red rage. "'The victuals and drink had run out, and the knights were grumbling loudly. "'They wished to go back to the merriments of court.' but the king wanted money. He took leave of his loyal subjects, but he was short and sharp about it, and he cancelled half the tallies on the exchequer. He was quite cold to Farmer Giles, and dismissed him with a nod. "'You will hear from us later,' he said, and rode off with his knights and his trumpeters. The more hopeful and simple-minded thought that a message would soon come from the court to summon Master Egidius to the king to be knighted at the least. In a week the message came, but it was of a different sort. It was written and signed in triplicate, one copy for Giles, one for the parson, and one to be nailed on the church door. Only the copy addressed to the parson was of any use, for the court hand was peculiar and as dark to the folk of Ham as the book Latin but the parson rendered it into the vulgar tongue and read it from the pulpit. It was short and to the point, for a royal letter. The king was in a hurry. We, Augustus, B, A, A, P and M, Rex, etc., make known that we have determined, for the safety of our realm and for the keeping of our honour, that the worm or dragon, styling himself Chrysophylax the rich, shall be sought out and condignly punished for his misdemeanours, torts, felonies, and foul perjury. All the knights of our royal household are hereby commanded to arm and make ready to ride upon this quest so soon as Master Egidius A.J. Agricola shall arrive at this our court. Inasmuch as the said Egidius has proved himself a trusty man and well able to deal with giants, dragons, and other enemies of the king's peace, now therefore we command him to ride forth at once and to join the company of our knights with all speed. People said this was a high honour, and next door to being dubbed. The miller was envious. "'Friend Egidius is rising in the world,' said he. "'I hope he will know us when he gets back.' "'Maybe he never will,' said the blacksmith. "'That's enough from you, old horse-face,' said the farmer, mighty put out. "'Honour be blowed. If I get back, even the miller's company will be welcome.' "'Still, it is some comfort to think that I shall be missing you both for a bit.' And with that he left them. "'You cannot offer excuses to the king as you can to your neighbours. "'So, lambs or no lambs, ploughing or none, milk or water. "'He had to get up on his grain mare and go. "'The parson saw him off. "'I hope you are taking some stout rope with you.' "'What for?' said Giles. "'To hang myself?' "'Nay,' 
"'Take heart, Master Egidius,' said the parson. "'It seems to me that you have a luck that you can trust. "'But take also a long rope, for you may need it, "'unless my foresight deceives me. "'And now farewell, and return safely.' "'Aye, and come back and find all my house and land in a pickle. "'Blast dragons!' said Giles. "'Then, stuffing a great coil of rope in a bag by his saddle, he climbed up and rode off. He did not take the dog, who had kept well out of sight all the morning, but when he was gone, Garm slunk home and stayed there, and howled all the night, and was beaten for it, and went on howling. Help! Ow! Help! he cried. I'll never see dear master again, and he was so terrible and splendid. I wish I'd gone with him, I do. "'Shut up!' said the farmer's wife. "'Or you'll never live to see if he comes back or he don't!' The blacksmith heard the howls. "'A bad omen,' he said cheerfully. Many days passed, and no news came. "'No news is bad news,' he said, and burst into song. When Farmer Giles got to court, he was tired and dusty, but the knights, in polished mail and with shining helmets on their heads, were all standing by their horses. The king's summons and the inclusion of the farmer had annoyed them, and so they insisted on obeying orders literally, setting off the moment that Giles arrived. The poor farmer had barely time to swallow a sop in a draught of wine before he was off on the road again. The mare was offended. What she thought of the king was luckily unexpressed, as it was highly disloyal. It was already late in the day. Too late in the day to start a dragon hunt, thought Giles. But they did not go far. The knights were in no hurry once they had started. They rode along at their leisure in a straggling line, knights, squires, servants, and ponies trussed with baggage, and Farmer Giles jogging behind on his tired mare. When evening came, they halted and pitched their tents. No provision had been made for Farmer Giles, and he had to borrow what he could. The mare was indignant, and she forswore her allegiance to the house of Augustus Bonifacius. The next day they rode on, and all the day after. On the third day they descried in the distance the dim and inhospitable mountains, before long they were in regions where the lordship of Augustus Bonifacius was not universally acknowledged. They rode then with more care, and kept closer together. On the fourth day they reached the wild hills, and the borders of the dubious lands where legendary creatures were reputed to dwell. Suddenly one of those riding ahead came upon ominous footprints in the sand by a stream. They called for the farmer— "'What are these, Master Egidius?' they said. "'Dragon marks,' said he. "'Lead on,' said they. "'So now they rode west, with Farmer Giles at their head, "'and all the rings were jingling on his leather coat. "'That mattered little, for all the knights were laughing and talking, "'and a minstrel rode with them, singing a lay. "'Every now and again they took up the refrain of the song "'and sang it all together, very loud and strong.' It was encouraging, for the song was good. It had been made long before, in days when battles were more common than tournaments. But it was unwise, 
Their coming was now known to all the creatures of that land, and the dragons were cocking their ears in all the caves of the west. There was no longer any chance of their catching old Chrysophylax napping. As luck, or the grey mare herself, would have it, when at last they drew under the very shadow of the dark mountains, Farmer Giles's mare went lame. They had now begun to ride along steep and stony paths, climbing upwards with toil and ever-growing disquiet. Bit by bit she dropped back in line, stumbling and limping, and looking so patient and sad that at last Farmer Giles was obliged to get off and walk. Soon they found themselves right at the back, among the pack-ponies, but no one took any notice of them. The knights were discussing points of precedence and etiquette, and their attention was distracted. Otherwise they would have observed that dragon marks were now obvious and numerous. They had come, indeed, to the places where Chrysophylax often roamed, or alighted after taking his daily exercise in the air. The lower hills and the slopes on either side of the path had a scorched and trampled look. There was little grass, and the twisted stumps of heather and gorse stood up, black amid wide patches of ash and burned earth. The region had been a dragon's playground for many a year. A dark mountain wall loomed up before them. Farmer Giles was concerned about his mare, but he was glad of the excuse for no longer being so conspicuous. It had not pleased him to be riding at the head of such a cavalcade, in these dreary and dubious places. A little later he was gladder still, and had reason to thank his fortune and his mare. For just about midday, it being then the Feast of Candlemas and the seventh day of their riding, Tailbiter leapt out of its sheath, and the dragon out of his cave. Without warning or formality, he swooped out to give battle. Down he came upon them with a rush and a roar. Far from his home, he had not shown himself overbold, in spite of his ancient and imperial lineage, but now he was filled with a great wrath for he was fighting at his own gate, as it were, and with all his treasure to defend. He came round a shoulder of the mountain like a ton of thunderbolts, with a noise like a gale and a gust of red lightning. The argument concerning precedence stopped short. All the horses shied to one side or the other, and some of the knights fell off. The ponies and the baggage and the servants turned and ran at once. They had no doubt as to the order of precedence. Suddenly there came a rush of smoke that smothered them all, and right in the midst of it the dragon crashed into the head of the line. Several of the knights were killed before they could even issue their formal challenge to battle, and several others were bowled over, horses and all. As for the remainder, their steeds took charge of them, and turned round and fled, carrying their masters off, whether they wished it or no. Most of them wished it indeed. But the old grey mare did not budge. Maybe she was afraid of breaking her legs on the steep stony path. Maybe she felt too tired to run away. She knew in her bones that dragons on the wing are worse behind you than before you, and you need more speed than a racehorse for flight to be useful. Besides, she had seen this Chrysophylax before, and remembered chasing him over field and brook in her own country, till he lay down tame in the village high street. Anyway, she stuck her legs out wide, and she snorted. 
Farmer Giles went as pale as his face could manage, but he stayed by her side, for there seemed nothing else to do. And so it was that the dragon, charging down the line, suddenly saw straight in front of him his old enemy, with Tailbiter in his hand. It was the last thing he expected. He swerved aside like a great bat, and collapsed on the hillside close to the road. Up came the grey mare, quite forgetting to walk lame. Farmer Giles, much encouraged, had scrambled hastily on her back. "'Excuse me,' said he. "'But were you looking for me by any chance?' "'No, indeed,' said Chrysophylax. "'Who would have thought of seeing you here? "'I was just flying about.' "'Then we meet by good luck,' said Giles, "'and the pleasure is mine, for I was looking for you. "'What's more, I have a bone to pick with you. "'Several bones, in a manner of speaking.' "'The dragon snorted. "'Farmer Giles put up his arm to ward off the hot gust, "'and with a flash, Tailbiter swept forward, "'dangerously near the dragon's nose. Hey! said he, and stopped snorting. "'He began to tremble.' and backed away, and all the fire in him was chilled. "'You have not, I hope, come to kill me, good master?' he whined. "'Nay, nay,' said the farmer. "'I said not about killing.' The grey mare sniffed. "'Then what, may I ask, are you doing with all these knights?' said Chrysophylax. "'Knights always kill dragons.' "'if we don't kill them first, "'I'm doing nothing with them at all. "'They're not to me,' said Giles. "'And anyway, they're all dead now, or gone. "'What about what you said last epiphany?' "'What about it?' said the dragon anxiously. "'You're nigh on a month late,' said Giles. "'And payment is overdue. "'I've come to collect it. "'You should beg my pardon for all the bother I've been put to.' "'I do indeed,' said he. "'I wish you had not troubled to come. "'It'll be every bit of your treasure this time, "'and no market tricks,' said Giles. "'Or dead you'll be, "'and I shall hang your skin from our church steeple as a warning.' "'It's cruel hard,' said the dragon. "'A bargain's a bargain,' said Giles. "'Can't I keep just a ring or two and a mite of gold "'in consideration of cash payment?' said he. "'Not a brass button,' said Giles. "'And so they kept on, for a while, chaffering and arguing, "'like folk at a fair. "'Yet the end of it was as you might expect, "'for whatever else might be said, "'few had ever outlasted Farmer Giles at a bargaining. "'The dragon had to walk all the way back to his cave.' for Giles stuck to his side with tail-biter, held mighty close. There was a narrow path that wound up and round the mountain, and there was barely room for the two of them. The mare came just behind, and she looked rather thoughtful. It was five miles, if it was a step, and stiff going, and Giles trudged along, puffing and blowing, but never taking his eye off the worm. At last, on the west side of the mountain they came to the mouth of the cave. It was large and black and forbidding, and its brazen doors swung on great pillars of iron. Plainly it had been a place of strength and pride in days long forgotten. 
For dragons do not build such works, nor delve such mines, but dwell rather, when they may, in the tombs and treasuries of mighty men and giants of old. The doors of this deep house were set wide, and in their shadow they halted. So far Chrysophylax had had no chance to escape, but coming now to his own gate, he sprang forward and prepared to plunge in. Palmer Giles hit him with the flat of the sword. "'Oh!' said he. "'Before you go in, I've something to say to you. "'If you ain't outside again in quick time, with something worth bringing, "'I shall come in after you and cut off your tail to begin with.' "'The mare sniffed. "'She could not imagine Farmer Giles going down, "'alone, into a dragon's den for any money on earth. "'But Chrysophylax was quite prepared to believe it with Tailbiter looking so bright and sharp and all. And maybe he was right, and the mare, for all her wisdom, had not yet understood the change in her master. Farmer Giles was backing his luck, and after two encounters was beginning to fancy that no dragon could stand up to him. Anyway, out came Chrysophylax again, in mighty quick time, with twenty pounds, Troy, of gold and silver, and a chest of rings and necklaces and other pretty stuff. There, said he. Where, said Giles. That's not half enough, if that's what you mean. Nor half what you've got, I'll be bound. Of course not, said the dragon, rather perturbed to find that the farmer's wits seemed to have become brighter since that day in the village. Of course not, but I can't bring it all out at once. "'Nor at twice, I'll wager,' said Giles. "'In you go again, and out again, double quick, "'or I'll give you a taste of tail-biter.' "'No,' said the dragon, and in he popped, "'and out again, double quick. "'There,' said he, putting down an enormous load of gold "'and two chests of diamonds. "'Now try again,' said the farmer, "'and try harder. "'It's hard.' "'Cruel hard,' said the dragon, as he went back in again. "'But by this time the grey mare was getting a bit anxious on her own account. "'Who's going to carry all this heavy stuff home, I wonder?' thought she. "'And she gave such a long, sad look at all the bags and the boxes "'that the farmer guessed her mind. "'Never you worry, lass,' said he. "'We'll make the old worm do the carting.' "'Mercy on us!' said the dragon, who overheard these words, as he came out of the cave for the third time with the biggest load of all, and a mort of rich jewels like green and red fire. "'Mercy on us! If I carry all this, it will be near the death of me, and a bag more I never could manage, not if you killed me for it.' "'Then there is more still, is there?' said the farmer. "'Yes,' said the dragon. "'Enough to keep me respectable.' "'And he spoke near the truth, for a rare wonder, "'and wisely, as it turned out. "'If you will leave me what remains,' he said, very wily, "'I'll be your friend for ever, "'and I will carry all this treasure back to your honour's own house "'and not to the king's. "'And I will help you to keep it, what is more,' said he. Then the farmer took out a toothpick with his left hand, and he thought very hard for a minute. Then, done with you, 
he said, showing a laudable discretion. A knight would have stood out for the whole horde and got a curse laid upon it. And as likely as not, if Giles had driven the worm to despair, he would have turned and fought in the end, tail-biter or no tail-biter. In which case, Giles, if not slain himself, would have been obliged to slaughter his transport and leave the best part of his gains in the mountains. Well, that was the end of it. The farmer stuffed his pockets with jewels, just in case anything went wrong, and he gave the grey mare a small load to carry. All the rest he bound on the back of Chrysophylax, in boxes and bags, till he looked like a royal pantechnican. There was no chance of his flying, for his load was too great, and Giles had tied down his wings. Mighty Andy, this rope has turned out in the end, he thought, and he remembered the parson with gratitude. So off now the dragon trotted, puffing and blowing, with the mare at his tail, and the farmer holding out Cowdemordax, very bright and threatening. He dared try no tricks. In spite of their burdens, the mare and the dragon made better speed going back than the cavalcade had made coming. For Farmer Giles was in a hurry, not the least reason being that he had a little food in his bags. Also, he had no trust in Chrysophylax after his breaking of oaths so solemn and binding, and he wondered much how to get through a night without death or great loss. But before that night fell, he ran again into luck, for they overtook half a dozen of the servants and ponies that had departed in haste and were now wandering at a loss in the wild hills. They scattered in fear and amazement, but Giles shouted after them. "'Hey, lads!' said he. "'Come back! I have a job for you, and good wages while this packet lasts!' So they entered his service, being glad of a guide, and thinking that their wages might indeed come more regular now than had been usual. Then they rode on, seven men, six ponies, one mare, and a dragon— and Giles began to feel like a lord and stuck out his chest. They halted as seldom as they could. At night, Farmer Giles roped the dragon to four pickets, one to each leg, with three men to watch him in turn. But the grey mare kept half an eye open, in case the men should try any tricks on their own account. After three days, they were back over the borders of their own country, and their arrival caused such wonder and uproar as had seldom been seen between the two seas before. In the first village that they stopped at, food and drink were showered on them free, and half the young lads wanted to join in the procession. Giles chose out a dozen likely young fellows. He promised them good wages, and bought them such mounts as he could. He was beginning to have ideas. After resting a day, he rode on again, with his new escort at his heels. They sang songs in his honour. Rough and ready, but they sounded good in his ears. Some folk cheered, and others laughed. It was a sight both merry and wonderful. Soon Farmer Giles took a bend southward, and steered towards his own home, and never went near the court of the king, nor sent any message. But the news of the return of Master Egidius spread like fire from the west and there was great astonishment and confusion, for he came hard on the heels of a royal proclamation bidding all the towns and villages to go into mourning for the fall of the brave knights in the pass of the mountains. Wherever Giles went, the mourning was cast aside, and bells were set ringing, and people thronged by the wayside, shouting and waving their caps and their scarves, 
but they booed the poor dragon, till he began bitterly to regret the bargain he had made. It was most humiliating for one of ancient and imperial lineage. When they got back to Ham, all the dogs barked at him, scornfully, all except Garm. He had eyes, ears, and nose only for his master. Indeed, he went quite off his head, and turned somersaults all along the street. Ham, of course, gave the farmer a wonderful welcome, but probably nothing pleased him more than finding the miller at a loss for a sneer, and the blacksmith quite out of countenance. "'This is not the end of the affair. Mark my words,' said he. But he could not think of anything worse to say, and hung his head gloomily. Farmer Giles, with his six men, and his dozen likely lads, and the dragon and all, went on up the hill, and there they stayed, quiet for a while. Only the parson was invited to the house. The news soon reached the capital, and forgetting the official mourning and their business as well, people gathered in the streets. There was much shouting and noise. The king was in his great house, biting his nails and tugging his beard. Between grief and rage and financial anxiety, his mood was so grim that no one dared to speak to him. But at last the noise of the town came to his ears. It did not sound like mourning or weeping. "'What is all the noise about?' he demanded. "'Tell the people to go indoors and mourn decently. "'It sounds more like a goose fair.' "'The dragon has come back, Lord,' they answered. "'What?' said the king. "'Summon our knights, or what is left of them.' "'There is no need, Lord,' they answered. With Master Regidius behind him, the dragon is tame as tame. Or so we are informed. The news has not long come in, and reports are conflicting. Bless our soul, said the king, looking greatly relieved. And to think that we ordered a dirge to be sung for the fellow the day after tomorrow. Cancel it. Is there any sign of our treasure? Reports say that there is a veritable mountain of it, Lord, they answered. When will it arrive? said the king eagerly. A good man, this Egidius. Send him in to us as soon as he comes. There was some hesitation in replying to this. At last, someone took courage and said, "'Your pardon, Lord, but we hear that the farmer has turned aside towards his own home. But doubtless he will hasten here in suitable raiment at the earliest opportunity.' "'Doubtless,' said the king. "'But confound his raiment! He had no business to go home without reporting. We are much displeased.' The earliest opportunity presented itself, and passed, and so did many later ones. In fact, Farmer Giles had been back for a good week or more, and still no word or news of him came to the court. On the tenth day, the king's rage exploded. "'Send for the fellow!' he said, and they sent. It was a day's hard riding to Ham each way. "'He will not come, Lord,' said a trembling messenger two days later. "'Lightning of heaven!' said the king. "'Command him to come on Tuesday next, "'or he shall be cast into prison for life.' "'Your pardon, Lord, but he still will not come,' "'said a truly miserable messenger returning alone on the Tuesday. Ten thousand thunders!' said the king. "'Take this fool to prison instead. "'Now send some men to fetch the churl in chains!' he bellowed to those that stood by. How many men, they faltered, 
there's a dragon, and, and tail-biter, and, and broomstails and fiddlesticks, said the king. Then he ordered his white horse, and summoned his knights, or what was left of them, and a company of men-at-arms, and he rode off in fiery anger. All the people ran out of their houses in surprise. But Farmer Giles had now become more than the hero of the countryside. He was the darling of the land, and folk did not cheer the knights and men-at-arms as they went by, though they still took off their hats to the king. As he drew nearer to Ham, the looks grew more sullen. In some villages the people shut their doors, and not a face could be seen. Then the king changed from hot wrath to cold anger. He had a grim look as he rode up at last to the river, beyond which lay Ham and the house of the farmer. He had a mind to burn the place down, but there was Farmer Giles on the bridge, sitting on the grey mare with Tailbiter in his hand. No one else was to be seen, except Garm, who was lying in the road. "'Good morning, Lord,' said Giles, as cheerful as day, not waiting to be spoken to. The king eyed him coldly. "'Your manners are unfit for our presence,' said he. "'But that does not excuse you from coming when sent for.' "'I had not thought of it, Lord, and that's a fact,' said Giles. "'I had matters of my own to mind, and had wasted time enough on your errands.' Ten thousand thunders!' cried the king in a hot rage again. "'To the devil with you and your insolence!' "'No reward will you get after this, "'and you will be lucky if you escape hanging, "'and hanged you shall be, "'unless you beg our pardon, here and now, "'and give us back our sword.' "'Eh?' said Giles. "'I have got my reward, I reckon. "'Findings keeping, and keepings having, we say here, "'and I reckon Tailbiter is better with me than with your folk. "'But what are all these knights and men for, by any chance?' he asked. If you've come on a visit, you'll be welcome with fewer. If you want to take me away, you'll need a lot more. The king choked, and the knights went very red and looked down their noses. Some of the men-at-arms grinned, since the king's back was turned to them. Give me my sword, shouted the king, finding his voice but forgetting his plural. Give us your crown, said Giles. A staggering remark, such as had never before been heard in all the days of the Middle Kingdom. Lightning of heaven! Seize him and bind him! cried the king, justly enraged beyond bearing. What do you hang back for? Seize him or slay him! The men-at-arms strode forward. Help! 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 cried Garm. Just at that moment, the dragon got up from under the bridge. He had lain there, concealed under the far bank, deep in the river. Now he let off a terrible steam, for he had drunk many gallons of water. At once there was a thick fog, and only the red eyes of the dragon to be seen in it. "'Go home, you fools!' he bellowed. "'Or I will tear you to pieces!' There are knights lying cold in the mountain pass, and soon there will be more in the river. All the king's horses and all the king's men, he roared. 
Then he sprang forward and struck a claw into the king's white horse, and it galloped away, like the ten thousand thunders that the king mentioned so often. The other horses followed as swiftly. Some had met this dragon before, and did not like the memory. The men-at-arms legged it as best they could in every direction, save that of Ham. The white horse was only scratched, and he was not allowed to go far. After a while the king brought him back. He was master of his own horse, at any rate, and no one can say that he was afraid of any man or dragon on the face of the earth. The fog was gone when he got back, but so were all his knights and his men. Now things looked very different, with the king all alone, to talk to a stout farmer with tail-biter and a dragon as well. But talk did no good. Farmer Giles was obstinate. He would not yield, and he would not fight, though the king challenged him to single combat there and then. "'Nay, Lord,' said he, laughing, "'go home and get cool. I don't want to hurt you. But you had best be off, or I won't be answerable for the worm. Good day.' And that was the end of the Battle of the Bridge of Ham. Never a penny of all the treasure did the king get, nor any word of apology from Farmer Giles, who was beginning to think mighty well of himself. What is more, from that day, the power of the Middle Kingdom came to an end in that neighbourhood. For many a mile around, men took Giles for their lord. Never a man could the king, with all his titles, get to ride against the rebel Egidius, for he had become the darling of the land, and the matter of song, and it was impossible to suppress all the lays that celebrated his deeds. The favourite one dealt with the meeting on the bridge in a hundred mock heroic couplets. Chrysophylax remained long in Ham, much to the profit of Giles, for the man who has a tame dragon is naturally respected. He was housed in the tithe-barn with the leave of the parson, and there he was guarded by the twelve likely lads. In this way arose the first of the titles of Giles, Dominus de Domito Sapente, which is, in the vulgar, Lord of the Tame Worm, or, shortly, of Tame. As such he was widely honoured, but he still paid a nominal tribute to the king. Six ox-tails and a pint of bitter, delivered on St. Matthias's day, that being the date of the meeting on the bridge. Before long, however, he advanced the lord to Earl, and the belt of the Earl of Tame was indeed of great length. After some years he became Prince Julius Egidius, and the tribute ceased, for Giles, being fabulously rich, had built himself a hall of great magnificence, and gathered great strength of men-at-arms. Very bright and gay they were, for their gear was the best that money could buy. Each of the twelve likely lads became a captain. Garm had a gold collar, and while he lived roamed at his will, a proud and happy dog, insufferable to his fellows, for he expected all other dogs to accord him the respect due to the terror and splendour of his master. The grey mare passed to her day's end in peace, and gave no hint of her reflections. In the end, Giles became a king, of course, the king of the little kingdom, he was crowned in Ham in the name of Egidius Draconarius, but he was more often known as Old Giles Worming, for the vulgar tongue came into fashion at his court, and none of his speeches were in the book Latin. 
His wife made a queen of great size and majesty, and she kept a tight hand on the household accounts. There was no getting round Queen Agatha. At least it was a long walk. Thus Giles became at length old and venerable, and had a white beard down to his knees, and a very respectable court, in which merit was often rewarded, and an entirely new order of knighthood. These were the Worm Wardens, and a dragon was their ensign. The twelve likely lads were the senior members. It must be admitted that Giles owed his rise, in a large measure, to luck. Though he showed some wits in the use of it, both the luck and the wits remained with him to the end of his days, to the great benefit of his friends and his neighbours. He rewarded the parson very handsomely, and even the blacksmith and the miller had their bit, for Giles could afford to be generous. But after he became king, he issued a strong law against unpleasant prophecy, and he made milling a royal monopoly. The blacksmith changed to the trade of an undertaker, but the miller became an obsequious servant of the crown. The parson became a bishop, and set up his see in the church of Ham, which was suitably enlarged. Now those who live still in the lands of the little kingdom will observe in this history the true explanation of the names that some of its towns and villages bear in our time. For the learned in such matters inform us that Ham, being made the chief town of the new realm, by a natural confusion between the Lord of Ham and the Lord of Tame, became known by the latter name, which it retains to this day. For Tame with an H is a folly, without warrant. Whereas in memory of the dragon, upon whom their fame and fortune were founded, the Dragonarii built themselves a great house, four miles northwest of Tame, upon the spot where Giles and Chrysophylax first made acquaintance. That place became known throughout the kingdom as Aula Draconaria, or in the vulgar, Worming Hall, after the king's name and his standard. The face of the land has changed since that time, and kingdoms have come and gone. Woods have fallen and rivers have shifted, and only the hills remain, and they are worn down by the rain and the wind. But still that name endures. Though men now call it Wunnel, or so I am told, for villages have fallen from their pride. But in the days of which this tale speaks, Worming Hall it was, and a royal seat, and the dragon standard flew above the trees, and all things went well there and merrily, while Tailbiter was above ground. Envoi Chrysophylax begged often for his liberty, and he proved expensive to feed, since he continued to grow, as dragons will, like trees, as long as there is life in them. So it came to pass, after some years, when Giles felt himself securely established, that he let the poor worm go back home. They parted with many expressions of mutual esteem, and a pact of non-aggression upon either side. In his bad heart of hearts, the dragon felt as kindly disposed towards Giles as a dragon can feel towards anyone. After all, there was Tailbiter. His life might easily have been taken, and all his hoard, too. As it was, he still had a mort of treasure at home in his cave, as indeed Giles suspected. He flew back to the mountains, 
slowly and laboriously, for his wings were clumsy with long disuse, and his size and his armour were greatly increased. Arriving home, he at once routed out a young dragon who had had the temerity to take up residence in his cave, while Chrysophylax was away. It is said that the noise of the battle was heard throughout Benidosia. When, with great satisfaction, he had devoured his defeated opponent, he felt better, and the scars of his humiliation were assuaged, and he slept for a long time. But at last, waking suddenly, he set off in search of that tallest and stupidest of the giants, who had started all the trouble one summer's night long before. He gave him a piece of his mind, and the poor fellow was very much crushed. A blunderbuss, was it? said he, scratching his head. I thought it was horseflies. Finis. Or in the vulgar. The end. The Adventures of Tom Bombadil by J. R. R. Tolkien, read by Derek Jacobi. Preface The Red Book contains a large number of verses. A few are included in the narrative of the downfall of the Lord of the Rings, or in the attached stories and chronicles. Many more are found on loose leaves, while some are written carelessly in margins and blank spaces. Of the last sort, most are nonsense, now often unintelligible even when legible, or half-remembered fragments. From these marginalia are drawn numbers 4, 12, and 13, though a better example of their general character would be the scribble on the page recording Bilbo's When Winter First Begins to Bite. The wind so whirled a weathercock he could not hold his tail up, the frost so nipped a throstle-cock, he could not snap a snail up. My case is hard, the throstle cried, and all is vain, the cock replied, and so they set their wail up. The present selection is taken from the older pieces, mainly concerned with legends and jests of the Shire at the end of the Third Age, that appear to have been made by hobbits, especially by Bilbo and his friends, or their immediate descendants. Their authorship is, however, seldom indicated. Those outside the narratives are in various hands and were probably written down from oral tradition. In the Red Book, it is said that number five was made by Bilbo and number seven by Sam Gamgee. Number eight is marked S.G., and the ascription may be accepted. Number eleven is also marked S.G., though at most Sam can only have touched up an older piece of the comic bestiary lord of which hobbits appear to have been fond. In The Lord of the Rings, Sam stated that number ten was traditional in the Shire. Number three is an example of another kind which seems to have amused hobbits, a rhyme or story which returns to its own beginning and so may be recited until the hearers revolt. 
Several specimens are found in the Red Book, but the others are simple and crude. Number three is much the longest and most elaborate. It was evidently made by Bilbo. This is indicated by its obvious relationship to the long poem recited by Bilbo as his own composition in the House of Elrond. In origin, a nonsense rhyme, it is in the Rivendell version found transformed and applied somewhat incongruously to the high elvish and Numenorean legends of Eärendil. Probably because Bilbo invented its metrical devices and was proud of them. They do not appear in other pieces in the Red Book. The older form, here given, must belong to the early days, after Bilbo's return from his journey. Though the influence of elvish traditions is seen, they are not seriously treated, and the names used, Derelin, Thelemy, Felmarie, Eerie, are mere inventions in the elvish style, and are not in fact elvish at all. The influence of the events at the end of the Third Age and the widening of the horizons of the Shire by contact with Rivendell and Gondor is to be seen in other pieces. Number six, though here placed next to Bilbo's Man in the Moon rhyme, and the last item, number sixteen, must be derived ultimately from Gondor. They are evidently based on the traditions of men living in shorelands and familiar with rivers running into the sea. Number six actually mentions Belfalas, the windy bay of Bel, and the seaward tower, Tirith Ia, of Dol Amroth. Number sixteen mentions the seven rivers that flowed into the sea in the South Kingdom, and uses the Gondorian name of high elvish form, Firiel, mortal woman. In the Langstrand and Dol Amroth there were many traditions of the ancient elvish dwellings and of the haven at the mouth of the Morthond, from which westward ships had sailed as far back as the fall of Erigion in the Second Age. These two pieces, therefore, are only rehandlings of southern matter, though this may have reached Bilbo by way of Rivendell. Number fourteen also depends on the Lord of Rivendell, Elvish and Numenorian, concerning the heroic days at the end of the First Age. It seems to contain echoes of the Numenorian tale of Turin and Mim the Dwarf. Numbers one and two evidently come from the Buckland. They show more knowledge of that country, and of the Dingle, the wooded valley of the Withywindle, than any hobbits west of the Marish were likely to possess. They also showed that the Bucklanders knew Bombadil, though no doubt they had as little understanding of his powers as the Shire folk had of Gandalf's. Both were regarded as benevolent persons, mysterious, maybe, and unpredictable, but nonetheless comic. Number one is the earlier piece and is made up of various hobbit versions of legends concerning Bombadil. Number two uses similar traditions, though Tom's raillery is here turned in jest upon his friends, who treat it with amusement, tinged with fear. But it was probably composed much later, and after the visit of Frodo and his companions to the house of Bombadil. The verses of Hobbit origin here presented have generally two features in common. 
They are fond of strange words and of rhyming and metrical tricks. In their simplicity, hobbits evidently regarded such things as virtues or graces, though they were no doubt mere imitations of elvish practices. They are also, at least on the surface, light-hearted or frivolous, though sometimes one may uneasily suspect that more is meant than meets the ear. Number fifteen, certainly of hobbit origin, is an exception. It is the latest piece and belongs to the fourth age, but it is included here because a hand has scrawled at its head Frodo's Dream. That is remarkable, and though the piece is most unlikely to have been written by Frodo himself, the title shows that it was associated with the dark and despairing dreams which visited him in March and October during his last three years. But there were certainly other traditions concerning hobbits that were taken by the wandering madness, and if they ever returned, were afterwards queer and uncommunicable. The thought of the sea was ever-present in the background of hobbit imagination. But fear of it, and distrust of all elvish law, was the prevailing mood in the Shire at the end of the Third Age, and that mood was certainly not entirely dispelled by the events and changes with which that age ended. The Adventures of Tom Bombadil Old Tom Bombadil was a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket was, and his boots were yellow. Green were his girdle, and his breeches all of leather. He wore in his tall hat a swan-wing feather. He lived up Underhill, where the withy windle ran from a grassy well down into the dingle. Old Tom, in summertime, walked about the meadows, gathering the buttercups, running after shadows, tickling the bumblebees that buzzed among the flowers, sitting by the waterside for hours upon hours. There his beard dangled long down into the water. Up came Goldberry, the river woman's daughter, Pulled Tom's hanging hair. In he went a-wallowing under the water-lilies, bubbling and a-swallowing. Hey, Tom Bombadil, whither are you going? said fair Goldberry. Bubbles you are blowing, frightening the finny fish and the brown water-rat, startling the dab-chicks and drowning your feather hat. You bring it back again, there's a pretty maiden, said Tom Bombadil. I do not care for wading. Go down, sleep again, where the pools are shady, far below willow roots, little water lady. Back to her mother's house in the deepest hollow swam young Goldberry, but Tom he would not follow. On knotted willow roots he sat in sunny weather, drying his yellow boots and his draggled feather. Up woke Willow Man, began upon his singing, sang Tom fast asleep under branches swinging. In a crack caught him tight, slick, it closed together, trapped Tom Bombadil, coat and hat and feather. Ah, Tom Bombadil, what be you a-thinking, peeping inside my tree watching me a-drinking? Deep in my wooden house, tickling me with feather, dripping wet down my face like a rainy weather. You let me out again, old man Willow. 
I'm stiff lying here. They're no sort of pillow, your hard, crooked roots. Drink your river water. Go back to sleep again like the river daughter. Willow Man let him loose when he heard him speaking, locked fast his wooden house, muttering and creaking, whispering inside the tree. Out from Willow Dingle, Tom went walking up on the withy windle. Under the forest eaves he sat a while a-listening. On the boughs, piping birds were chirruping and whistling. Butterflies about his head went quivering and winking until grey clouds came up as the sun was sinking. Then Tom hurried on. Rain began to shiver, round rings spattering in the running river. A wind blew, shaken leaves, chilly drops were dripping. Into a sheltering hole old Tom went skipping. Out came Badger Brock with his snowy forehead and his dark, blinking eyes. In the hill he quarried with his wife and many sons. By the coat they caught him, pulled him inside their earth, down their tunnels brought him. Inside their secret house, there they sat a-mumbling. Oh, Tom Bombadil, where have you come tumbling, bursting in the front door? Badger folk have caught you. You'll never find it out the way that we have brought you. Now, old Badger Brock, do you hear me talking? You show me out at once. I must be a-walking. Show me to your back door, under briar roses. Then clean grimy paws wipe your earthy noses. Go back to sleep again on your straw pillow, like fair Goldberry and old man Willow. Then all the badger folk said, We beg your pardon. They showed Tom out again to their thorny garden, went back and hid themselves, a shivering and a shaking, blocked up all their doors. Earth together raking. Rain had passed. The sky was clear, and in the summer gloaming old Tom Bombadil laughed as he came homing, unlocked his door again, and opened up a shutter. In the kitchen round the lamp moths began to flutter. Tom, through the window, saw waking stars come winking and the new slender moon early westward sinking. Dark came under hill. Tom, he lit a candle. Upstairs, creaking went, turned the door handle. Ooh, Tom Bombadil, look what night has brought you. I'm here behind the door, now at last I've caught you. You'd forgotten Barrow White, dwelling in the old mound up there on hilltop with the ring of stones round. He's got loose again. Under earth he'll take you. Poor Tom Bombadil, pale and cold he'll make you. Go out, shut the door, and never come back after. Take away gleaming eyes. Take your hollow laughter. Go back to Grassy Mound, on your stony pillow, lay down your bony head like old man Willow, like young Goldberry and Badger Folk in Burrow. Go back to buried gold and forgotten sorrow. 
Out fled Barrow White, through the window leaping, Through the yard, over wall, like a shadow sweeping, Uphill, wailing, went back to leaning stone rings, Back under lonely mound, rattling his bone rings. Old Tom Bombadil lay upon his pillow, Sweeter than Goldberry, quieter than the willow, Snugger than the badger folk or the barrow dwellers, Slept like a humming top, snored like a bellows. He woke in morning light, whistled like a starling, Sang, come, Derry doll, merry doll, my darling. He clapped on his battered hat, boots and coat and feather, Opened the window wide to the sunny weather. Wise old Bombadil, he was a wary fellow. Bright blue his jacket was, and his boots were yellow. None ever caught old Tom in upland or in dingle, Walking the forest paths, or by the withy windle, Or out on the lily pools in boat upon the water. But one day Tom he went and caught the river daughter, In green gown, flowing hair, sitting in the rushes, Singing old water songs to birds upon the bushes. He caught her, held her fast. Water rats went scuttering, reeds hissed, herons cried, And her heart was fluttering. Said Tom Bombadil, Here's my pretty maiden, you shall come home with me. The table is all laden, yellow cream, honeycomb, white bread and butter, roses at the windowsill, and peeping round the shutter. You shall come under hill, never mind your mother in her deep weedy pool, there you'll find no lover. Old Tom Bombadil had a merry wedding, crowned all with buttercups, hat and feather shedding. His bride, with forget-me-nots and flag lilies for garland, was robed all in silver green. He sang like a starling, hummed like a honeybee, lilted to the fiddle, clasping his river maid round her slender middle. Lamps gleamed within his house, and white was the bedding. In the bright honeymoon badger folk came treading, danced down under hill, and old man Willow tapped, tapped at window-pane as they slept on the pillow. On the bank in the reeds, river-woman sighing, heard old Barrow White in his mound crying. Old Tom Bombadil heeded not the voices. Taps, knocks, dancing feet, all the nightly noises, Slept till the sun arose, then sang like a starling, Hey, come, Jerry doll, merry doll, my darling, Sitting on the doorstep, chopping sticks of willow, While fair Goldberry combed her tresses yellow. Bombadil Goes Boating the old year was turning brown. The west wind was calling. Tom caught a beechen leaf in the forest falling. I've caught a happy day, blown me by the breezes. Why wait till morrow year? I'll take it when me pleases. 
This day I'll mend my boat and journey as it chances, West down the withy stream, following my fancies. Little bird sat on twig. Willow Tom, I heed you. I've a guess, I've a guess where your fancies lead you. Shall I go? Shall I go? Bring him word to meet you. No names, you tell tale, or I'll skin and eat you. Babbling in every ear things that don't concern you. If you tell Willow Man where I've gone, I'll burn you. Roast you on a willow spit. That'll end your prying. Willow Wren cocked her tail, piped as she went flying. Catch me first! Catch me first! No names are needed. I'll perch on his hither ear. The message will be heeded. Down by meath, I'll say, just as sun is sinking. Hurry up, hurry up. That's the time for drinking. Tom laughed to himself. <laughs> Maybe then I'll go there. I might go by other ways, but today I'll row there. He shaved oars, patched his boat. From hidden creek he hauled her through reed and sallow break under leaning alder. Then down the river went, singing, Silly sallow, flow with the willow stream over deep and shallow. Wee, Tom Bombadil, whither be you going? Bobbing in a cockle boat down the river, rowing. Maybe to Brandywine along the withy windle. Maybe, friends of mine, fire for me will kindle. Down by the haze end, little folk I know there, kind at the day's end. Now and then I go there. Take word to my kin, bring me back their tidings, tell me of diving pools and the fishes' hidings. Nay, then, said Bombadil, I am only rowing just to smell the water like, not on errands going. Tee-hee, cocky Tom, mind your tub, don't founder, look out for willow snags, I'd laugh to see you flounder. Talk less, Fisher Blue, keep your kindly wishes, fly off and preen yourself with the bones of fishes. Gay lord on your bow, at home a dirty varlet living in a sloven house, though your breast be scarlet. I've heard of fisher-birds, beak in air a-dangling, to show how the wind is set. That's an end of angling. The king's fisher shut his beak, winked his eye, as singing Tom passed under bow. Flash! Then he went winging, dropped down, jewel-blue, a feather, and Tom caught it, gleaming in a sun-ray. A pretty gift, he thought it. He stuck it in his tall hat, the old feather casting. Blue now for Tom, he said, a merry hue and lasting. Rings swirled round his boat. He saw the bubbles quiver. Tom slapped his oar, smack! at a shadow in the river. Whoosh, Tom Bombadil, tis long since last I met you, turned water boatman, eh? What if I upset you? What? 
Why, Whiskerlad, I'd ride you down the river. My fingers on your back would set your hide a shiver. Pish! Tom Bombadil, I'll go and tell my mother. Call all our kin to come, father, sister, brother. Tom's gone mad as a coot with wooden legs. He's paddling down Withy Windle's stream, an old tub a straddling. I'll give your otter fell to barrow whites. They'll tore you, then smother you in gold rings. Your mother, if she saw you, she'd never know her son unless twas by a whisker. Nay, don't tease old Tom until you be far brisker. Whoosh! said Otter Lad. River water spraying over Tom's hat and all, set the boat a-swaying, dived down under it, and by the bank lay peering, till Tom's merry song faded out of hearing. Old Swan of Elba Isle sailed past him proudly, gave Tom a black look, snorted at him loudly. Tom laughed. You old cob, do you miss your feather? Give me a new one, then. The old was worn by weather. Could you speak a fair word, I would love you dearer. Long neck and dumb throat, but still a haughty sneerer. If one day the king returns, in upping he may take you, brand your yellow bill, and less lordly make you. Old Swan huffed his wings, hissed and paddled faster. In his wake, bobbing on, Tom went rowing after. Tom came to Withy Weir. Down the river, rushing, foamed into Windle Reach, a bubbling and a splashing, bore Tom over stone, spinning like a windfall, bobbing like a bottle cork, to the hithe at Grindwall. Hi, there's Woodman Tom with his billy beard on, laughed all the little folk of Hayesend and Brereddon. Where, Tom? We'll shoot you dead with our bows and arrows. We don't let forest folk nor bogies from the barrows cross over brandy wine by cockle boat nor ferry. Fie, little fat bellies, don't you make so merry. I've seen hobbit folk digging holes to hide em, frightened if a horny goat or a badger eyed em, afeard of the moony beams, their old shadows shunning. I'll call the orcs on you. That'll send you running. You may call, Woodman Tom, and you can talk your beard off. Three arrows in your hat. You we're not afeard of. Where would you go to now? If for beer you're making, the barrels ain't deep enough in Brereton for your slaking. Away over Brandywine, by a Shirebourne I'll be going, but too swift for cockleboat the river now is flowing. I'd bless little folk that took me in their wherry, wish them evenings fair and many mornings merry. Red flowed the Brandywine, with flame the river kindled, as sun sank beyond the shire, and then to grey it dwindled. Neath steps empty stood, none was there to greet him. Silent the causeway lay, 
said Tom. A merry meeting. Tom stumped along the road as the light was failing. Rushy lamps gleamed ahead. He heard a voice him hailing. Whoa, there! Ponies stopped. Wheels halted sliding. Tom went plodding past, never looked beside him. Oh, there! Beggar man tramping in the marish. What's your business here? Hat all stuck with arrows? Someone's warned you off. Caught you at your sneaking. Come here, tell me now what it is you're seeking. Shire ale, I'll be bound. Though you've not a penny. I'll bid them lock their doors and then you won't get any. Well, well. Muddy feet. From one that's late for meeting, away back by the mead, that's a surly greeting. You old farmer fat that cannot walk for wheezing, cart drawn like a sack, ought to be more pleasing. Pennywise, tub on legs, a beggar can't be chooser, or else I'll bid you go and you would be the loser. Come, maggot, help me up. A tankard now you owe me, even in cockshut light an old friend should know me. Laughing, they drove away, in rushy, never halting, though the inn open stood and they could smell the malting. They turned down Maggot's Lane, rattling and bumping, Tom in the farmer's cart, dancing round and jumping. Stars shone on Bam Furlong, and Maggot's house was lighted, fire in the kitchen burned to welcome the benighted. Maggot's sons bowed at door. His daughters did their curtsy. His wife brought tankards out for those that might be thirsty. Songs they had and merry tales, the supping and the dancing. Goodman Maggot there, for all his belt was prancing. Tom did a hornpipe when he was not coughing. Daughters did the springle ring. Good wife did the laughing. When others went to bed, in hay, fern, or feather, close in the ingle-nook they laid their heads together, old Tom and Muddy Feet, swapping all the tidings from Barrow Downs to Tower Hills, of walkings and of ridings, of wheat ear and barley corn, of sowing and of reaping, queer tales from Bree, and talk at Smithy, Mill, and Cheaping. Rumours in whispering trees, south wind in the larches, tall watchers by the ford, shadows on the marches. Old Maggot slept at last in chair beside the embers. Ere dawn, Tom was gone, as dreams one half remembers, some merry, some sad, and some of hidden warning. None heard the door unlocked. A shower of rain at morning, his footprints washed away. At Meath he left no traces. At Hayes End they heard no song, nor sound of heavy paces. Three days his boat lay by the hive at Grindwall, and then one morn was gone, back up with the windle.
Otter folk, Hobbit said, came by night and loosed her, dragged her over weir, and upstream they pushed her. Out from Elba Isle, old Swan came sailing, in beak took her painter up in the water trailing, drew her proudly on. Otters swam beside her, round old willow man's crooked roots to guide her. The king's fisher perched on bow, on thwart, the wren was singing. Merrily the cockle-boat homeward they were bringing. To Tom's Creek they came at last. Otter lad said, Wish now! What's a coot without his legs or a finless fish now? Oh, silly, sallow, willow stream! The oars they'd left behind them. Long they lay at Grindwall Hive for Tom to come and find them. Errantry There was a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He built a gilded gondola to wander in, and had in her a load of yellow oranges, and porridge for his provender. He perfumed her with marjoram and cardamom and lavender. He called the winds of Argus's with cargoes in to carry him across the rivers seventeen that lay between to tarry him. He landed all in loneliness, where stonily the pebbles on the running river Derelin goes merrily for ever on. He journeyed then through meadowlands to shadowland that dreary lay, and under hill and over hill went roving still a weary way. He sat and sang a melody, his errantry a tarrying. He begged a pretty butterfly that fluttered by to marry him. She scorned him, and she scoffed at him. She laughed at him, unpitying. So long he studied wizardry and sigildry and smithying. He wove a tissue airy thin to snare her in. To follow her he made him beetle-leather wing and feather-wing of swallow-hair. He caught her in bewilderment with filament of spider-thread. He made her soft pavilions of lilies and a bridal-bed of flowers and of thistle-down to nestle down and rest her in, and silken webs of filmy white and silver light he dressed her in. He threaded gems in necklaces, but recklessly she squandered them, and fell to bitter quarrelling, then sorrowing he wandered on, and there he left her, withering, as shivering he fled away, with windy weather following, on swallowing he sped away. He passed the archipelagos, where yellow grows the marigold, where countless silver fountains are, and mountains are of fairy gold. He took to war, and forrying, a harrowing beyond the sea, and roaming over Belle-Marie, and Thelamy, and Fantasy. He made a shield, and morion, of coral, and of ivory, a sword he made of emerald, and terrible his rivalry with elven knights of eerie and fairy, 
with paladins that golden-haired and shining-eyed came riding by and challenged him. Of crystal was his abergion, his scabbard of chalcedony. With silver-tipped at plenilun his spear was hewn of ebony. His javelins were of malachite and stalactite. He brandished them and went and fought the dragonflies of paradise and vanquished them. He battled with the Dumbledores, the Hummerhorns, and Honeybees, and won the Golden Honeycomb. And running home on sunny seas, in ship of leaves and gossamer, with blossom for a canopy, he sat and sang, and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. He tarried for a little while in little isles that lonely lay, and found there naught but blowing grass, and so at last the only way he took and turned, and coming home with honeycomb to memory his message came, and errand too. In daring do and glamoury he had forgot them, journeying and turning a wanderer. So now he must depart again, and start again his gondola, forever still a messenger, a passenger, a tarrier, a roving as a feather does, a weather-driven mariner. Princess Me Little Princess Me, lovely was she, as in elven song is told. She had pearls in hair, all threaded fair. Of gossamer shot with gold was her kerchief made, and a silver braid of stars about her throat. Of moth-web light, all moonlit white, she wore a woven coat, and round her kirtle was bound a girdle sewn with diamond dew. She walked by day, and a mantle grey, and hood of clouded blue. But she went by night, all glittering bright, under the starlit sky, and her slippers, frail, of fish's mail, flashed as she went by to her dancing pool, and on mirror cool of windless water played. As a mist of light in whirling flight, a glint like glass she made, wherever her feet of silver fleet flicked the dancing floor. She looked on high to the roofless sky, and she looked to the shadowy shore. Then round she went, and her eyes she bent, and saw beneath her go a princess she, as fair as me. They were dancing, toe to toe. She was as light as me, and as bright. But she was, strange to tell, hanging down with starry crown into a bottomless well. Her gleaming eyes, in great surprise, looked up to the eyes of me. A marvellous thing, head down to swing above a starry sea. Only their feet could ever meet. For where the ways might lie to find a land 
where they do not stand, but hang down in the sky. No one could tell, nor learn in spell, in all the elven lore. So, still on her own, an elf alone, dancing as before, with pearls in hair and kirtle fair, and slippers frail, of fish's mail went me, of fish's mail, and slippers frail, and kirtle fair, with pearls in hair, went she. The man in the moon stayed up too late. There is an inn, a merry old inn, beneath an old grey hill, and there they brew a beer so brown that the man in the moon himself came down one night to drink his fill. The ostler has a tipsy cat that plays a five-stringed fiddle, and up and down he runs his bow, now squeaking high, now purring low, now sawing in the middle. The landlord keeps a little dog that is mighty fond of jokes. When there's good cheer among the guests, he cocks an ear at all the jests and laughs until he chokes. They also keep a horned cow as proud as any queen. But music turns her head like ale and makes her wave her tufted tail and dance upon the green. And oh, the row of silver dishes and the Stored of silver spoons. For Sunday there's a special pair, and these they polish up with care on Saturday afternoons. The man in the moon was drinking deep, and the cat began to wail. A dish and a spoon on the table danced. The cow in the garden madly pranced, and the little dog chased his tail. The man in the moon took another mug, and then rolled beneath his chair, and there he dozed and dreamed of ale, till in the sky the stars were pale, and dawn was in the air. The ostler said to his tipsy cat, The white horses of the moon, they neigh and champ their silver bits, but their master's been and drowned his wits and the sun'll be rising soon. So the cat on his fiddle played Hey Diddle Diddle, a jig that would wake the dead. He squeaked and soared and quickened the tune, while the landlord shook the man in the moon. It's after three, he said. They rolled the man slowly up the hill and bundled him into the moon while his horses galloped up in rear, and the cow came capering like a deer, and a dish ran up with a spoon. Now quicker the fiddle went, deedle-dum-diddle, the dog began to roar, the cow and the horses stood on their heads, the guests all bounded from their beds and danced upon the floor. With a ping and a pong, the fiddle-strings broke. The cow jumped over the moon, and the little dog laughed to see such fun, and the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. The round moon rolled behind the hill as the sun raised up her head. She hardly believed her fiery eyes, for though it was day, to her surprise, they all went back to bed.
The man in the moon came down too soon. The man in the moon had silver shoon, and his beard was of silver thread, with opals crowned and pearls all bound about his girdle stead. In his mantle grey he walked one day across a shining floor, and with crystal key in secrecy he opened an ivory door. On a filigree stair of glimmering hair, then lightly down he went, and Mary was he at last to be free on a mad adventure bent. In diamonds white he had lost delight. He was tired of his minaret of tall moonstone that towered alone on a lunar mountain set. He would dare any peril for ruby and beryl, to broider his pale attire, for new diadems of lustrous gems, emerald and sapphire. He was lonely, too, with nothing to do, but stare at the world of gold, and hark to the hum that would distantly come as gaily round it rolled. At Plenilune, in his argent moon, in his heart, he longed for fire, not the limpid lights of wan selenites, for red was his desire, for crimson and rose and ember glows, for flame with burning tongue, for the scarlet skies in a swift sunrise when a stormy day is young. He'd have seas of blues and the living hues of forest green and fen, and he yearned for the mirth of the populous earth and the sanguine blood of men. He coveted song and laughter long and viands hot and wine, eating pearly cakes of light snowflakes and drinking thin moonshine. He twinkled his feet as he thought of the meat, of pepper and punch galore, and he tripped unaware on his slanting stare, and like a meteor, a star in flight, ere Yule one night, flickering down he fell from his laddery path to a foaming bath in the windy bay of Bell. He began to think, lest he melt and sink, what in the mood to do? When a fisherman's boat found him far afloat, to the amazement of the crew, caught in their net all shimmering wet, in a phosphorescent sheen of bluey whites and opal lights and delicate liquid green. Against his wish, with the morning fish, they packed him back to land. You had best get a bed in an inn, they said. The town is near at hand. Only the knell of one slow bell, high in the seaward tower, announced the news of his moon-sick cruise at that unseemly hour. Not a hearth was laid, not a breakfast made, and dawn was cold and damp. There were ashes for fire, and for grass the mire, for the sun a smoking lamp in a dim back street. Not a man did he meet. No voice was raised in song. There were snores instead, for all folk were abed and still would slumber long. He knocked 
as he passed on doors, locked fast, and called and cried in vain, till he came to an inn that had light within, and he tapped at a window-pane. A drowsy cook gave a surly look, and, What do you want? said he. I want fire, and gold, and songs of old, and red wine flowing free. You won't get them here, said the cook with a leer. But you may come inside. Silver I lack, and silk to my back. Maybe I'll let you bide. A silver gift the latch to lift, a pearl to pass the door. For a seat by the cook in the ingle nook, it cost him twenty more. For hunger or drought, naught passed his mouth till he gave both crown and cloak, and all that he got in an earthen pot, broken and black with smoke, was porridge, cold and two days old, to eat with a wooden spoon. For puddings of yule with plums, poor fool, he arrived so much too soon. An unwary guest on a lunatic quest from the mountains of the moon. The Stone Troll Troll sat alone on his seat of stone, and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for meat was hard to come by. Done by, gum by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and meat was hard to come by. Up came Tom with his big boots on, said he to Troll. Pray, what is yon? For it looks like the shin of my uncle Tim. I should be a lying in graveyard, caveyard, paveyard. This many a year has Tim been gone, and I thought he were lying in graveyard. My lad, said Troll, this bone I stole. But what be bones that lie in a hole? Thy uncle was dead as a lump of lead afore I found his shin bone, tin bone, thin bone. He can spare a share for a poor old troll, for he don't need his shinbone, said Tom. I don't see why the likes of thee, without axing leave, should go making free with a shank of the shin of my father's kin, so hand the old bone over. Rover, Trover, though dead he be, it belongs to he, so hand the old bone over. For a couple of pins, says Troll, and grins, I'll eat thee too, and gnaw thy shins. A bit of fresh meat will go down sweet. I'll try my teeth on thee now. E now, see now. I'm tired of gnawing old bones and skins. I've a mind to dine on thee now. But just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had hold of naught. Before he could mind, Tom slipped behind and gave him the boot to larn him. Warn him, darn him. A bump of the boot on the seat, Tom thought, would be the way to larn him. 
but harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. As well set your boot to the mountain's root, for the seat of a troll. Don't feel it. Feel it. Heal it. Old Troll laughed when he heard Tom groan, and he knew his toes could feel it. Tom's leg is game since home he came, and his bootless foot is lasting lame. But Troll don't care, and he's still there, with the bone he boned from its owner. Donor. Boner. Troll's old seat is still the same and the bone he boned from its owner. Perry the Winkle The lonely troll, he sat on a stone, and sang a mournful lay. Oh, why, oh, why must I live on my own in the hills of far away? My folk are gone beyond recall and take no thought of me. Alone I'm left, the last of all, from weathertop to the sea. I steal no gold, I drink no beer, I eat no kind of meat. But people slam their doors in fear whenever they hear my feet. Oh, how I wish that they were neat and my hands were not so rough. Yet my heart is soft, my smile is sweet, and my cooking's good enough. Come, come, he thought, this will not do. I must go and find a friend. Walking soft, I'll wander through the shire from end to end. Down he went and he walked all night with his feet in boots of fur. To delving he came in the morning light when folk were just astir. He looked around, and who did he meet but old Mrs. Bunce and all, with umbrella and basket, walking the street. And he smiled and stopped to call. "'Good morning, ma'am. Good day to you. I hope I find you well.' But she dropped. Umbrella and basket, too, and yelled a frightful yell. Old Pot, the mare, was strolling near when he heard that awful sound. He turned all purple and pink with fear and dived down underground. The lonely troll was hurt and sad. Don't go, he gently said. But old Mrs. Bunce ran home like mad and hid beneath her bed. The troll went on to the marketplace and peeped above the stalls. The sheep went wild when they saw his face, and the geese flew over the walls. Old Farmer Hog, he spilled his ale. Bill Butcher threw a knife, and grip his dog, he turned his tail and ran to save his life. The old troll sadly sat and wept outside the lockhole's gate, and Perry the Winkle up he crept, and patted him on the pate. Oh, why do you weep, you great big lump? You're better outside than in. He gave the troll a friendly thump, and laughed to see him grin. Oh, Perry the Winkle boy, he cried, 
Come, you're the lad for me. Now, if you're willing to take a ride, I'll carry you home to tea. He jumped on his back and held on tight, and off you go, said he. And the Winkle had a feast that night, and sat on the old troll's knee. There were pikelets, there was buttered toast, and jam, and cream, and cake, and the Winkle strove to eat the most, though his buttons all should break. The kettle sang, the fire was hot, the pot was large and brown, and the Winkle tried to drink the lot in tea, though he should drown. When full and tight were coat and skin, they rested without speech, till the old troll said, I'll now begin the baker's art to teach, the making of beautiful cransome bread, of bannocks light and brown, and then you can sleep on a heather bed with pillows of owlets down. Young Winkle, where have you been? they said. I've been to a fulsome tea, and I feel so fat, for I have fed on cransome bread, said he. But where, my lad, in the shire was that? Or out in Bree, said they. But Winkle, he up and answered flat, I ain't a-going to say. But I know where, said Peeping Jack, I watched him ride away. He went upon the old troll's back to the hills of fire away. Then all the people went with a will, by pony, cart, or moke, until they came to a house in a hill and saw a chimney smoke. They hammered upon the old troll's door. A beautiful cransome cake, oh, bake for us, please, or two, or more. Oh, bake, they cried, oh, bake. Go home. Go home, the old troll said. I never invited you. Only on Thursdays I bake my bread, and only for a few. Go home, go home. There's some mistake. My house is far too small, and I've no pikelets, cream or cake. The winkle has eaten all. You, Jack and Hog, old bunce and pot, I wish no more to see. Be off. Be off now, all the lot. The Winkle's the boy for me. Now Perry the Winkle grew so fat through eating of cransome bread, his waistcoat bust, and never a hat would sit upon his head. For every Thursday he went to tea and sat on the kitchen floor, and smaller the old troll seemed to be as he grew more and more. The Winkle a baker great became, as still is said in song. From the sea to Bree there went the fame of his bread, both short and long. But it weren't so good as the cransome bread, no butter so rich and free as every Thursday the old troll spread for Perry the Winkle's tea. The Mulips The shadows where the mulips dwell are dark and wet as ink, and slow and softly rings their bell as in the slime you sink. You sink into the slime who dare to knock upon their door, 
while down the grinning gargoyles stare and noisome waters pour. Beside the rotting river strand the drooping willows weep, and gloomily the corecrows stand, croaking in their sleep. Over the Morlock Mountains, a long and weary way, in a mouldy valley where the trees are grey, by a dark pool's borders without wind or tide, moonless and sunless, the mulips hide. The cellars where the mulips sit are deep and dank and cold, with single sickly candle lit, and there they count their gold. Their walls are wet, their ceilings drip, their feet upon the floor go softly with a squish-flap-flip as they sidle to the door. They peep out slyly, through a crack their feeling fingers creep, and when they've finished in a sack, your bones they take to keep. Beyond the Murloc Mountains, a long and lonely road through the spider shadows and the marsh of toad, and through the wood of hanging trees and the gallows weed, you go to find the mulips, and the mulips feed. Oliphant Grey as a mouse, big as a house, nose like a snake, I make the earth shake as I tramp through the grass, trees crack as I pass. With horns in my mouth I walk in the south, flapping big ears. Beyond count of years I stump round and round, never lie on the ground, not even to die. Oliphant am I. Biggest of all, huge, old, and tall. If ever you'd met me, you wouldn't forget me. If you never do, you won't think I'm true. But, oh, Dolly Font, am I, and I never lie. Fastitokalon Look! There is fasted Tokalon, an island good to land upon, although it is rather bare. Come, leave the sea, and let us run or dance or lie down in the sun. See, gulls are sitting there. Beware, gulls do not sink. There they may sit, or strut, and prink. Their part it is to tip the wink, if anyone should dare upon that isle to settle or only for a while to get relief from sickness or the wet, or maybe boil a kettle. Ah, foolish folk who land on him, and little fires proceed to trim and hope perhaps for tea. It may be that his shell is thick, he seems to sleep, but he is quick, and floats now in the sea with guile, and when he hears their tapping feet, or faintly feels the sudden heat, with a smile he dives, and promptly, turning upside down, he tips them off, and deep they drown, and lose their silly lives, to their surprise. Be wise, 
There are many monsters in the sea, but none so perilous as he, old horny Fastitokalon, whose mighty kindred all have gone, the last of the old turtlefish. So, if to save your life you wish, then I advise, pay heed to sailors' ancient lore, set foot on no uncharted shore, or, better still, your days at peace on Middle-earth in mirth fulfill. Cat The fat cat on the mat may seem to dream of nice mice that suffice for him or cream, but he free may be walks in thought unbowed Proud, where loud roared and fought his kin, lean and slim, or deep in den in the east, feasted on beasts and tender men. The giant lion with iron claw in paw and huge ruthless tooth in gory jaw. The pard, dark-starred, fleet upon feet that oft, soft from aloft, leap on his meat, where woods loom in gloom, for now they be fierce and free, and tamed is he, but fat cat on the mat, kept as a pet, he does not forget. Shadow Bride There was a man who dwelt alone. As day and night went past, he sat as still as carven stone, and yet no shadow cast. The white owls perched upon his head beneath the winter moon. They wiped their beaks and thought him dead under the stars of June. There came a lady clad in grey in the twilight shining. One moment she would stand and stay, her hair with flowers entwining. He woke as had he sprung of stone and broke the spell that bound him. He clasped her fast, both flesh and bone, and wrapped her shadow round him. There nevermore she walks her ways, by sun or moon or stars. She dwells below, where neither days nor any nights there are. But once a year, when caverns yawn and hidden things awake, they dance together then till dawn, and a single shadow make. THE HORDE When the moon was new, and the sun, young, of silver and gold, the gods sung, in the green grass they silver spilled, and the white waters they with gold filled. Ere the pit was dug, or hell yawned, ere dwarf was bred, or dragon spawned, there were elves of old, and strong spells under green hills in hollow dells, they sang as they wrought many fair things, and the bright crowns of the elf kings. But their doom fell, and their song waned, by iron hewn and by steel chained, Greed that sang not, nor with mouth smiled, In dark holes their wealth piled. 
graven silver and carven gold, over elven home the shadow rolled. There was an old dwarf in a dark cave, to silver and gold his fingers clave. With hammer and tongs and anvil stone he worked his hands to the hard bone, and coins he made, and strings of rings, and thought to buy the power of kings. But his eyes grew dim, and his ears dull, and the skin yellow on his old skull. Through his bony claw, with a pale sheen, the stony jewels slipped unseen. No feet, he heard, though the earth quaked, when the young dragon his thirst slaked, and the stream smoked at his dark door, the flames hissed on the dank floor, and he died alone in the red fire. His bones were ashes in the hot mire. There was an old dragon under grey stone. His red eyes blinked as he lay alone. His joy was dead, and his youth spent. He was knobbed and wrinkled, and his limbs bent in the long years to his gold chained. In his heart's furnace the fire waned. To his belly's slime gems stuck thick, silver and gold he would snuff and lick. He knew the place of the least ring. Beneath the shadow of his black wing. Of thieves, he thought, on his hard bed, And dreamed that on their flesh he fed, Their bones crushed, and their blood drank, His ears drooped, and his breath sank. Male rings rang, he heard them not, A voice echoed in his deep grot, a young warrior with a bright sword called him forth to defend his hoard. His teeth were knives and of horn his hide, but iron tore him and his flame died. There was an old king on a high throne. His white beard lay on knees of bone. His mouth savoured neither meat nor drink, nor his ears song. He could only think of his huge chest with carven lid, where pale gems and gold lay hid, in secret treasury in the dark ground. Its strong doors were iron-bound. The swords of his thanes were dull with rust, his glory fallen, his rule unjust, his halls hollow and his bowers cold, but king he was of elvish gold. He heard not the horns in the mountain pass, he smelt not the blood on the trodden grass, but his halls were burned, his kingdom lost, in a cold pit his bones were tossed. There is an old hoard in a dark rock, forgotten behind doors none can unlock, that grim gate no man can pass. On the mound grows the green grass, there sheep feed, and the larks soar, and the wind blows from the seashore. The old hoard the night shall keep, while earth waits and the elves sleep. The Sea Bell
I walked by the sea, and there came to me, as a star beam on the wet sand, a white shell like a sea bell. Trembling, it lay in my wet hand. In my fingers shaken, I heard waken a ding within, by a harbour bar, a boy swinging, a call ringing over endless seas, faint now and far. Then I saw a boat silently float on the night tide, empty and grey. It is later than late. Why do we wait? I leapt in and cried, Bear me away. It bore me away, wetted with spray, wrapped in a mist, wound in a sleep to a forgotten strand in a strange land. In the twilight beyond the deep I heard a sea-bell swing in the swell, dinging, dinging, and the breakers roar on the hidden teeth of a perilous reef, and at last I came to a long shore. White it glimmered, and the sea simmered with star-mirrors in a silver net, cliffs of stone, pale as rural bone, in the moon-foam were gleaming wet. Glittering sand slid through my hand, dust of pearl and jewel grist, trumpets of opal, roses of coral, flutes of green and amethyst. But under cliff-eaves there were glooming caves, weed-curtained, dark and grey, a cold air stirred in my hair, and the light waned as I hurried away. Down from a hill ran a green rill, its water I drank to my heart's ease, up its fountain stair to a country fair of ever eve I came, far from the seas, climbing into meadows of fluttering shadows. Flowers lay there like fallen stars, and on a blue pool, glassy and cool, like floating moons the nenuphars. Alders were sleeping, and willows weeping by a slow river of rippling weeds. Gladden swords guarded the fords, and green spears and arrow reeds. There was echo of song. All the evening long down in the valley, Many a thing running to and fro, Hairs white as snow, voles out of holes, Moths on the wing with lantern eyes. In quiet surprise, brocks were staring out of dark doors. I heard dancing there, music in the air, Feet going quick on the green floors. But wherever I came, it was ever the same. The feet fled, and all was still, never a greeting, only the fleeting pipes, voices, horns on the hill. Of river leaves and the rush sheaves I made me a mantle of jewel green, a tall wand to hold, and a flag of gold. My eyes shone like the star sheen. With flowers crowned, I stood on a mound, And shrill as a call at cockcrow, Proudly I cried, Why do you hide? Why do none speak wherever I go? 
Here now I stand, king of this land, with gladden sword and reed mace. Answer my call, come forth all. Speak to me words, show me a face. Black came a cloud as a night shroud. Like a dark mole groping, I went to the ground falling, on my hands crawling, with eyes blind and my back bent. I crept to a wood. Silent it stood in its dead leaves. Bare were its boughs. There must I sit, wandering in wit, while owls snored in their hollow house. For a year and a day there must I stay. Beetles were tapping in the rotten trees. Spiders were weaving in the mould. Heaving puffballs loomed about my knees. At last there came light in my long night, and I saw my hair hanging grey. Bent though I be, I must find the sea. I have lost myself, and I know not the way, but let me be gone. Then I stumbled on, like a hunting bat. Shadow was over me, in my ears dinned a withering wind, and with ragged briars I tried to cover me. My hands were torn and my knees worn, and years were heavy upon my back, when the rain in my face took a salt taste, and I smelled the smell of sea-rack. Birds came sailing, mewing, wailing. I heard voices in cold caves, seals barking and rocks snarling, and in spout-holes the gulping of waves. Winter came fast. Into a mist I passed, to land's end my years I bore. Snow was in the air, ice in my hair, darkness was lying on the last shore. There, still afloat, waited the boat. In the tide lifting, its prow tossing, Weary I lay as it bore me away, The waves climbing, the seas crossing, Passing old hulls clustered with gulls, And great ships laden with light, Coming to haven dark as a raven, Silent as snow, deep in the night. Houses were shuttered, Wind round them muttered, Roads were empty, I sat by a door, and where drizzling rain poured down a drain, I cast away all that I bore. In my clutching hand some grains of sand, and a sea-shell, silent and dead. Never will my ear that bell hear, never my feet that shore tread, Never again, as in sad lane, in blind alley and in long street, ragged I walk. To myself I talk, for still they speak not, men that I meet. The Last Ship Firiel looked out at three o'clock. The grey night was going. Far away a golden cock, clear and shrill, was crowing. The trees were dark and the dawn pale, waking birds were cheeping. A wind moved cool and frail through dim leaves creeping. 
She watched the gleam at window grow till the long light was shimmering on land and leaf, on grass below grey dew was glimmering. Over the floor her white feet crept, down the stair they twinkled, through the grass they dancing stepped, all with dew besprinkled. Her gown had jewels upon its hem as she ran down to the river, and leaned upon a willow stem and watched the water quiver. A kingfisher plunged down like a stone in a blue flash falling. Bending reeds were softly blown, lily leaves were sprawling. A sudden music to her came as she stood there, gleaming with free hair in the morning's flame, on her shoulders streaming. Flutes there were, and harps were rung, and there was sound of singing like wind voices, keen and young, and far bells ringing. A ship with golden beak and oar and timbers white came gliding. Swans went sailing on before, her tall prow guiding. Fair folk out of elven land in silver grey were rowing, and three with crowns she saw there stand, with bright hair flowing. With harp in hand they sang their song to the slow oars swinging. Green is the land, the leaves are long, and the birds are singing. Many a day, with dawn of gold, this earth will lighten, many a flower will yet unfold, ere the cornfields whiten. Then whither go ye, boatmen fair, down the river gliding, to twilight and to secret lair, in the great forest hiding? To northern isles and shores of stone, on strong swans flying, by cold waves to dwell alone with the white gulls crying? Nay, they answered, far away on the last road faring, leaving western havens grey, the seas of shadow daring, we go back to Elvenhome, where the white tree is growing, and the star shines upon the foam, on the last shore flowing. To mortal fields say farewell, Middle-earth forsaking, in elven home a clear bell in the high tower is shaking. Here grass fades, and leaves fall, and sun and moon wither, and we have heard the far call that bids us journey thither. The oars were stayed, they turned aside. Do you hear the call, earth maiden? Firiel, Firiel, they cried. Our ship is not full laden, one more only we may bear. Come, for your days are speeding. Come, earth maiden, elven fair, our last call heeding. Firiel looked from the river bank, one step daring. Then deep in clay her feet sank, and she halted, staring. Slowly the elven ship went by, whispering through the water. I cannot come, they heard her cry. I was born Earth's daughter. No jewels bright her gown bore, as she walked back from the meadow, under roof 
and dark door under the house shadow. She donned her smock of russet brown, her long hair braided, and to her work came stepping down. Soon the sunlight faded. Year still after year flows down the seven rivers. Cloud passes, sunlight glows, reed and willow quivers as morn and eve, but nevermore westward ships have waded in mortal waters as before, and their song has faded. <laughs> Smith of Wooten Major There was a village once, not very long ago for those with long memories, not very far away for those with long legs. Wooten Major, it was called, because it was larger than Wooten Minor, a few miles away deep in the trees. But it was not very large, though it was at that time prosperous, and a fair number of folk lived in it, good, bad, and mixed, as is usual. It was a remarkable village in its way, being well known in the country around for the skill of its workers in various crafts, but most of all for its cooking. It had a large kitchen, which belonged to the village council, and the master cook was an important person. The cook's house and the kitchen adjoined the great hall, the largest and oldest building in the place, and the most beautiful. It was built of good stone and good oak, and was well tended, though it was no longer painted or gilded, as it had been once upon a time. In the hall the villagers held their meetings and debates, and their public feasts, and their family gatherings. So the cook was kept busy, since for all these occasions he had to provide suitable fare. For the festivals, of which there were many in the course of a year, the fare that was thought suitable was plentiful and rich. There was one festival to which all looked forward, for it was the only one held in winter. It went on for a week, and on its last day, at sundown, there was a merry-making called the Feast of Good Children, to which not many were invited. No doubt some who deserved to be asked were overlooked, and some who did not were invited by mistake, for that is the way of things, however careful those who arrange such matters may try to be. In any case, it was largely by chance of birthday that any child came in for the twenty-four feast, since that was only held once in twenty-four years and only twenty-four children were invited. For that occasion the master cook was expected to do his best, and in addition to many other good things, it was the custom for him to make the great cake. By the excellence, or otherwise, of this, his name was chiefly remembered, for a master cook seldom, if ever, lasted long enough in office to make a second great cake. There came a time, however, when the reigning master cook, to everyone's surprise, since it had never happened before, suddenly announced that he needed a holiday, and he went away, no one knew where, and when he came back some months later, he seemed rather changed. 
He had been a kind man who liked to see other people enjoying themselves, but was himself serious and said very little. Now he was merrier, and often said and did most laughable things, and at feasts he would himself sing gay songs, which was not expected of master cooks. Also he brought back with him an apprentice, and that astonished the village. It was not astonishing for the master cook to have an apprentice. It was usual. The master chose one in due time, and he taught him all that he could, and as they both grew older, the apprentice took on more of the important work, so that when the master retired or died, there he was, ready to take over the office and become master cook in his turn. But this master had never chosen an apprentice. He had always said, Time enough yet, or... I'm keeping my eyes open, and I'll choose one when I find one to suit me. But now he brought with him a mere boy, and not one from the village. He was more lithe than the wooden lads, and quicker, soft-spoken and very polite, but ridiculously young for the work, barely in his teens by the look of him. Still, choosing his apprentice was the master cook's affair, and no one had the right to interfere in it. So the boy remained and stayed in the cook's house until he was old enough to find lodgings for himself. People soon became used to seeing him about, and he made a few friends. They, and the cook, called him Alf. But to the rest he was just Prentice. The next surprise came only three years later. One spring morning the master cook took off his tall white hat, folded up his clean aprons, hung up his white coat, took a stout ash-stick and a small bag, and departed. He said good-bye to the apprentice. No one else was about. "'Good-bye for now, Alf,' he said. "'I leave you to manage things as best you can, which is always very well. I expect it will turn out all right. If we meet again, I hope to hear all about it. Tell them that I've gone on another holiday.' "'But this time I shan't be coming back again.' "'There was quite a stir in the village "'when Prentice gave this message to people who came to the kitchen. "'What a thing to do!' they said. "'And without warning or farewell, "'what are we going to do without Master Cook? "'He has left no one to take his place.' "'In all their discussions, "'no one ever thought of making young Prentice into Cook. "'He had grown a bit taller.' but still looked like a boy, and he had only served for three years. In the end, for lack of anyone better, they appointed a man of the village, who could cook well enough in a small way. When he was younger, he had helped the master at busy times, but the master had never taken to him, and would not have him as apprentice. He was now a solid sort of man with a wife and children, and careful with money. "'At any rate, he won't go off without notice,' they said. "'And poor cooking is better than none. "'It is seven years till the next great cake, "'and by that time he shall be able to manage it.' "'Noakes, for that was his name, "'was very pleased with the turn things had taken. "'He had always wished to become master cook "'and had never doubted that he could manage it. "'For some time, when he was alone in the kitchen, "'he used to put on the tall white hat and look at himself in a polished frying-pan, and say, "'How do you do, master? That hat suits you properly. Might have been made for you. I hope things go well with you.' 
things went well enough, for at first Noakes did his best, and he had Prentice to help him. Indeed, he learned a lot from him by watching him slyly, though that Noakes never admitted. But in due course, the time for the twenty-four feast drew near, and Noakes had to think about making the great cake. Secretly, he was worried about it. But although with seven years' practice he could turn out passable cakes and pastries for ordinary occasions, he knew that his great cake would be eagerly awaited, and would have to satisfy severe critics. Not only the children, a smaller cake of the same materials and baking had to be provided for those who came to help at the feast. Also, it was expected that the great cake should have something novel and surprising about it. And not be a mere repetition of the one before. His chief notion was that it should be very sweet and rich, and he decided that it should be entirely covered in sugar icing, at which Prentice had a clever hand. That will make it pretty and fairy-like, he thought. Fairies and sweets were two of the very few notions he had about the tastes of children. Fairies, he thought, one grew out of. But of sweets he remained very fond. Ah, fairy-like, he said. That gives me an idea. And so it came into his head that he would stick a little doll on a pinnacle in the middle of the cake, dressed all in white, with a little wand in her hand ending in a tinsel star, and fairy queen written in pink icing round her feet. But when he began preparing the materials for the cake making, he found that he had only dim memories of what should go inside a great cake. So he looked in some old books of recipes left behind by previous cooks. They puzzled him, even when he could make out their handwriting, for they mentioned many things that he had not heard of, and some that he had forgotten and now had no time to get. But he thought he might try one or two of the spices that the books spoke of. He scratched his head, and remembered an old black box with several different compartments, in which the last cook had once kept spices and other things for special cakes. He had not looked at it since he took over, but after a search, he found it on a high shelf in the storeroom. He took it down and blew the dust off the lid, but when he opened it, he found that very little of the spices were left, and they were dry and musty. But in one compartment in the corner, he discovered a small star, hardly as big as one of our sixpences, black-looking as if it was made of silver but was tarnished. That's funny," he said, as he held it up to the light. "No, it isn't," said a voice behind him, so suddenly that he jumped. It was the voice of Prentice, and he had never spoken to the master in that tone before. Indeed, he seldom spoke to Noakes at all. Unless he was spoken to first, very right and proper in a youngster, he might be very clever with icing, but he had a lot to learn yet. That was Noakes's opinion. What do you mean, young fellow? He said, not much pleased. If it isn't funny, what is it? It is fay," said Prentice. "It comes from fairy." Then the cook laughed. "All right, all right," he said. "It means much the same." I'll call it that if you like. You'll grow up some day. Now you can get on with stoning the raisins. If you notice any funny fairy ones, tell me. What are you going to do with the star, Master? Said Prentice. Put it into the cake, of course. Said the cook. 
just the thing, especially if it's fairy, he sniggered. I dare say you've been to children's parties yourself, and not so long ago either, where little trinkets like this were stirred into the mixture, and little coins and what not. Anyway, we do that in this village. It amuses the children. But this isn't a trinket, master. It's a fay star, said Prentice. So you've said already, snapped the cook. Very well, I'll tell the children. It'll make them laugh. I don't think it will, master, said Prentice. But it's the right thing to do, quite right. Who do you think you're talking to? said Noakes. In time, the cake was made and baked and iced, mostly by Prentice. As you are so set on fairies, I'll let you make the fairy queen, Noakes said to him. Very good, master, he answered. I'll do it if you are too busy. But it was your idea and not mine. It's my place to have ideas. And not yours, said Noakes. At the feast, the cake stood in the middle of a long table, inside a ring of twenty-four red candles. Its top rose into a small white mountain, up the sides of which grew little trees, glittering as if with frost. On its summit stood a tiny white figure on one foot, like a snow maiden dancing. And in her hand was a minute wand of ice, sparkling with light. The children looked at it with wide eyes, and one or two clapped their hands, crying, "Isn't it pretty and fairy-like?" That delighted the cook, but the apprentice looked displeased. They were both present: the master to cut up the cake when the time came, and the apprentice to sharpen the knife and hand it to him. At last, the cook took the knife and stepped up to the table. I should tell you, my dears," he said, "that inside this lovely icing there is a cake made of many nice things to eat, but also stirred well in. There are many pretty little things, trinkets, and little coins, and what not. And I'm told that it is lucky to find one in your slice. There are twenty-four in the cake, so there should be one for each of you if the fairy queen plays fair. But she doesn't always do so. She's a tricky little creature. You ask Mister Prentice. The apprentice turned away and studied the faces of the children. No, I'm forgetting," said the cook. "There's twenty-five this evening. There's also a little silver star, a special magic one, or so Mister Prentice says. So be careful. If you break one of your pretty front teeth on it, the magic star won't mend it. But I expect it's a specially lucky thing to find, all the same." It was a good cake, and no one had any fault to find with it, except that it was no bigger than was needed. When it was all cut up, there was a large slice for each of the children, but nothing left over. No coming again. The slices soon disappeared, and every now and then a trinket or a coin was discovered. Some found one, and some found two, and several found none, for that is the way luck goes. Whether there is a doll with a wand on the cake or not, but when the cake was all eaten, there was no sign of any magic star. Bless me," said the cook. "Then it can't have been made of silver after all. It must have melted, or perhaps Mister Prentice was right, and it was really magical, and it's just vanished and gone back to fairyland. Not a nice trick to play, I don't think." He looked at Prentice with a smirk. And Prentice looked at him 
with dark eyes, and did not smile at all. All the same, the silver star was indeed a fay star. The apprentice was not one to make mistakes about things of that sort. What had happened was that one of the boys at the feast had swallowed it without ever noticing it, although he had found a silver coin in his slice and had given it to Nell, the little girl next to him. She looked so disappointed at finding nothing lucky in hers. He sometimes wondered what had really become of the star, and did not know that it had remained within him, tucked away in some place where it could not be felt, for that was what it was intended to do. There it waited for a long time, until its day came. The feast had been in midwinter, but it was now June, and the night was hardly dark at all. The boy got up before dawn, for he did not wish to sleep. It was his tenth birthday. He looked out of the window, and the world seemed quiet and expectant. A little breeze, cool and fragrant, stirred the waking trees. Then the dawn came, and far away he heard the dawn song of the birds beginning, growing as it came towards him, until it rushed over him, filling all the land round the house, and passed on like a wave of music into the west, as the sun rose above the rim of the world. It reminds me of fairy, he heard himself say. But in fairy, the people sing too. Then he began to sing, high and clear, in strange words that he seemed to know by heart. And in that moment, the star fell out of his mouth, and he caught it on his open hand. It was bright silver now, glistening in the sunlight, but it quivered. And rose a little, as if it was about to fly away. Without thinking, he clapped his hand to his head, and there the star stayed in the middle of his forehead, and he wore it for many years. Few people in the village noticed it, though it was not invisible to attentive eyes, but it became part of his face, and it did not usually shine at all. Some of its light passed into his eyes. And his voice, which had begun to grow beautiful as soon as the star came to him, became ever more beautiful as he grew up. People liked to hear him speak, even if it was no more than a good morning. He became well known in his country, not only in his own village, but in many others round about, for his good workmanship. His father was a smith, and he followed him in his craft and bettered it. Smith's son, he was called. While his father was still alive, and then just Smith, for by that time he was the best Smith between Far Eastern and the Westwood, and he could make all kinds of things of iron in his smithy. Most of them, of course, were plain and useful, meant for daily needs: farm tools, carpenters' tools, kitchen tools, and pots and pans, bars and bolts and hinges, pot hooks, fire dogs, and horseshoes, and the like. They were strong and lasting. But they also had a grace about them, being shapely in their kinds, good to handle and to look at. But some things, when he had time, he made for delight, and they were beautiful, for he could work iron into wonderful forms that looked as light and delicate as a spray of leaves and blossom, but kept the stern strength of iron, or seemed even stronger. Few could pass by one of the gates or lattices that he had made without stopping to admire it. No one could pass through it once it was shut. 
He sang when he was making things of this sort, and when Smith began to sing, those nearby stopped their own work and came to the smithy to listen. That was all that most people knew about him. It was enough indeed, and more than most men and women in the village achieved, even those who were skilled and hard-working. But there was more to know, for Smith became acquainted with fairy, and some regions of it he knew as well as any mortal can, though since too many have become like Noakes, he spoke of this to few people, except his wife and his children. His wife was Nell, to whom he gave the silver coin, and his daughter was Nan, and his son was Ned Smithson. From them it could not have been kept a secret anyway, for they sometimes saw the star shining on his forehead when he came back from one of the long walks he would take alone, now and then in the evening, or when he returned from a long journey. From time to time he would go off, sometimes walking, sometimes riding, and it was generally supposed that it was on business. And sometimes it was, and sometimes it was not. At any rate, not to get orders for work or to buy pig iron and charcoal and other supplies, though he attended to such things with care, and knew how to turn an honest penny into tuppence, as the saying went. But he had business of its own kind in fairy, and he was welcome there, for the star shone bright on his brow, and he was as safe as a mortal can be in that perilous country. The lesser evils avoided the star, and from the greater evils he was guarded. For that he was grateful, for he soon became wise, and understood that the marvels of fairy cannot be approached without danger, and that many of the evils cannot be challenged without weapons of power too great for any mortal to wield. He remained a learner and explorer, not a warrior, and though in time he could have forged weapons, that in his own world would have had power enough to become the matter of great tales and be worth a king's ransom, he knew that in fairy they would have been of small account. So among all the things that he made, it is not remembered that he ever forged a sword or a spear or an arrowhead. In fairy, at first, he walked for the most part quietly among the lesser folk, and the gentler creatures in the woods and meads of fair valleys, and by the bright waters in which at night strange stars shone, and at dawn the gleaming peaks of far mountains were mirrored. Some of his briefer visits he spent looking only at one tree or one flower, but later, in longer journeys, he had seen things of both beauty and terror that he could not clearly remember nor report to his friends, though he knew that they dwelt deep in his heart. But some things he did not forget, and they remained in his mind as wonders and mysteries that he often recalled. When he first began to walk far without a guide, he thought he would discover the further bounds of the land. But great mountains rose before him, and going by long ways round about them he came at last to a desolate shore. He stood beside the sea of windless storm, where the blue waves, like snow-clad hills, rolled silently out of unlight, to the long strand bearing the white ships that returned from battles, on the dark marches of which men know nothing. He saw a great ship cast high upon the land, and the waters fell back in foam, 
without a sound. The elven mariners were tall and terrible. Their swords shone and their spears glinted, and a piercing light was in their eyes. Suddenly they lifted up their voices in a song of triumph, and his heart was shaken with fear, and he fell upon his face, and they passed over him and went away into the echoing hills. Afterwards he went no more to that strand, believing that he was in an island realm beleaguered by the sea, and he turned his mind towards the mountains, desiring to come to the heart of the kingdom. Once in these wanderings he was overtaken by a grey mist, and strayed long at a loss, until the mist rolled away, and he found that he was in a wide plain. Far off there was a great hill of shadow, and out of that shadow, which was its root, he saw the king's tree springing up, tower upon tower, into the sky, and its light was like the sun at noon, and it bore at once leaves and flowers and fruits, uncounted, and not one was the same as any other that grew on the tree. He never saw that tree again, though he often sought for it. On one such journey, climbing into the outer mountains, he came to a deep dale among them, and at its bottom lay a lake, calm and unruffled, though a breeze stirred the woods that surrounded it. In that dale the light was like a red sunset, but the light came up from the lake. From a low cliff that overhung it he looked down, and it seemed that he could see to an immeasurable depth, and there he beheld strange shapes of flame, bending and branching and wavering like great weeds in a sea-dingle, and fiery creatures went to and fro among them. Filled with wonder, he went down to the water's edge and tried it with his foot. But it was not water. It was harder than stone and sleeker than glass. He stepped on it, and he fell heavily, and a ringing boom ran across the lake and echoed on its shores. At once the breeze rose to a wild wind, roaring like a great beast, and it swept him up and flung him on the shore, and it drove him up the slopes, whirling and falling like a dead leaf. He put his arms about the stem of a young birch and clung to it, and the wind wrestled fiercely with them, trying to tear him away. But the birch was bent down to the ground by the blast, and enclosed him in its branches. When at last the wind passed on, he rose and saw that the birch was naked. It was stripped of every leaf, and it wept, and tears fell from its branches like rain. He set his hand upon its white bark, saying, "'Blessed be the birch! What can I do to make amends, or give thanks?' He felt the answer of the tree pass up from his hand. Nothing, it said. Go away. The wind is hunting you. You do not belong here. Go away and never return. As he climbed back out of that dale, he felt the tears of the birch trickle down his face, and they were bitter on his lips. His heart was saddened as he went on his long road, and for some time he did not enter fairy again. But he could not forsake it, and when he returned, his desire was still stronger to go deep into the land. At last he found a road through the outer mountains, and he went on till he came to the inner mountains, 
and they were high and sheer and daunting. Yet in the end he found a pass that he could scale, and upon a day of days, greatly daring, he came through a narrow cleft and looked down, though he did not know it, into the Vale of Evermorn, where the green surpasses the green of the meads of outer fairy as they surpass ours in our springtime. There the air is so lucid that eyes can see the red tongues of birds as they sing on the trees upon the far side of the valley, though it is very wide, and the birds are no greater than wrens. On the inner side, the mountains went down in long slopes, filled with the sound of bubbling waterfalls, and in great delight he hastened on. As he set foot upon the grass of the vale, he heard elven voices singing, and on a lawn, beside a river bright with lilies, he came upon many maidens dancing. The speed and the grace of the ever-changing modes of their movements enchanted him, and he stepped forward towards their ring. Then... Suddenly they stood still, and a young maiden with flowing hair and kilted skirt came out to meet him. She laughed as she spoke to him, saying, "'You are becoming bold, Starbrow, are you not? Have you no fear what the Queen might say if she knew of this? Unless you have her leave.' He was abashed, for he became aware of his own thought, and knew that she read it that the star on his forehead was a passport to go wherever he wished, and now he knew that it was not. But she smiled as she spoke again. Come, now that you are here, you shall dance with me. And she took his hand and led him into the ring. There they danced together, and for a while he knew what it was to have the swiftness and the power and the joy to accompany her. For a while. But soon, as it seemed, they halted again, and she stooped and took up a white flower from before her feet, and she set it in his hair. Farewell now, she said. Maybe we shall meet again, by the Queen's leave. He remembered nothing of the journey home from that meeting, until he found himself riding along the roads in his own country, and in some villages people stared at him in wonder, and watched him till he rode out of sight. When he came to his own house, his daughter ran out and greeted him with delight. He had returned sooner than was expected, but none too soon for those that awaited him. "'Daddy!' she cried. "'Where have you been? Your star is shining bright!' When he crossed the threshold, the star dimmed again, but Nell took him by the hand and led him to the hearth, and there she turned and looked at him. "'Dear man,' she said, where have you been, and what have you seen? There is a flower in your hair. She lifted it gently from his head, and it lay on her hand. It seemed like a thing seen from a great distance, yet there it was, and a light came from it that cast shadows on the walls of the room, now growing dark in the evening. The shadow of the man before her loomed up, and its great head was bowed over her, "'You look like a giant, Dad,' said his son, who had not spoken before. "'The flower did not wither nor grow dim, and they kept it as a secret and a treasure. 
The smith made a little casket with a key for it, and there it lay and was handed down for many generations in his kin. And those who inherited the key would at times open the casket and look long at the living flower, till the casket closed again. The time of its shutting was not theirs to choose. The years did not halt in the village. Many now had passed. At the children's feast, when he received the star, the smith was not yet ten years old. Then came another twenty-four feast, by which time Alf had become master cook and had chosen a new apprentice, Harper. Twelve years later, the smith had returned with the living flower, and now another children's twenty-four feast was due in the winter to come. One day in that year, Smith was walking in the woods of Outer Fairy, and it was autumn. Golden leaves were on the boughs, and red leaves were on the ground. Footsteps came behind him, but he did not heed them or turn round, for he was deep in thought. On that visit, he had received a summons and had made a far journey, longer, it seemed to him, than any he had yet made. He was guided and guarded. But he had little memory of the ways that he had taken, for often he had been blindfolded by mist or by shadow, until at last he came to a high place under a night sky of innumerable stars. There he was brought before the queen herself. She wore no crown and had no throne. She stood there in her majesty and her glory. And all about her was a great host, shimmering and glittering like the stars above. But she was taller than the points of their great spears, and upon her head there burned a white flame. She made a sign for him to approach, and trembling he stepped forward. A high, clear trumpet sounded, and behold, they were alone. He stood before her, and he did not kneel in courtesy. For he was dismayed and felt that, for one so lowly, all gestures were in vain. At length, he looked up and beheld her face, and her eyes bent gravely upon him, and he was troubled and amazed. For in that moment he knew her again, the fair maid of the green veil, the dancer at whose feet the flowers sprang. She smiled. Seeing his memory, and drew towards him, and they spoke long together, for the most part without words, and he learned many things in her thought, some of which gave him joy, and others filled him with grief. Then his mind turned back, retracing his life, until he came to the day of the children's feast and the coming of the star, and suddenly he saw again the little dancing figure with its wand. And in shame he lowered his eyes from the queen's beauty. But she laughed again, as she had laughed in the vale of Evermorn. Do not be grieved for me, Starbrow, she said, nor too much ashamed of your own folk. Better a little doll, maybe, than no memory of fairy at all. For some, the only glimpse. For some, the awaking. Ever since that day, you have desired in your heart to see me. And I have granted your wish, but I can give you no more. Now, at farewell, I will make you my messenger. If you meet the king, say to him, "The time has come. Let him choose."
but Lady of Fairy, he stammered, where then is the king? For he had asked this question many times of the people of Fairy, and they had all said the same. He has not told us. And the queen answered, If he has not told you, Starbra, then I may not. But he makes many journeys, and may be met in unlikely places. Now kneel of your courtesy. Then he knelt, and she stooped and laid her hand on his head, and a great stillness came upon him. And he seemed to be both in the world and in fairy, and also outside them and surveying them, so that he was at once in bereavement and in ownership and in peace. When, after a while, the stillness passed, he raised his head and stood up. The dawn was in the sky, and the stars were pale, and the queen was gone. Far off, he heard the echo of a trumpet in the mountains. The high field where he stood was silent and empty, and he knew that his way now led back to bereavement. That meeting place was now far behind him, and here he was, walking among the fallen leaves, pondering all that he had seen and learned. The footsteps came nearer, then suddenly a voice said at his side, "'Are you going my way, Starbra?' He started and came out of his thoughts, and he saw a man beside him. He was tall, and he walked lightly and quickly. He was dressed all in dark green.' and wore a hood that partly overshadowed his face. The smith was puzzled, for only the people of Fairy called him Starbrow, but he could not remember ever having seen this man there before, and yet he felt uneasily that he should know him. "'What way are you going, then?' he said. "'I am going back to your village now,' the man answered, "'and I hope that you are also returning.' "'I am, indeed,' said the smith." Let us walk together. But now something has come back to my mind. Before I began my homeward journey, a great lady gave me a message. But we shall soon be passing from Fairy, and I do not think that I shall ever return. Will you? Yes, I shall. You may give the message to me. But the message was to the king. Do you know where to find him? I do. What was the message? The lady only asked me to say to him, The time has come. Let him choose. I understand. Trouble yourself no farther. They went on then, side by side, in silence, save for the rustle of the leaves about their feet. But after a few miles, while they were still within the bounds of fairy, the man halted. He turned towards the smith and threw back his hood. Then the smith knew him. He was Alf, the prentice, as the smith still called him in his own mind, remembering always the day when, as a youth, Alf had stood in the hall, holding the bright knife for the cutting of the cake, and his eyes had gleamed in the light of the candles. He must be an old man now, for he had been master cook for many years, but here, Standing under the eaves of the outer wood, he looked like the apprentice of long ago, though more masterly. There was no grey in his hair, nor line on his face, and his eyes gleamed as if they reflected a light. 
I should like to speak to you, Smith, Smithson, before we go back to your country, he said. The smith wondered at that, for he himself had often wished to talk to Alf, but had never been able to do so. Alf had always greeted him kindly, and had looked at him with friendly eyes, but had seemed to avoid talking to him alone. He was looking now at the smith with friendly eyes, but he lifted his hand, and with his forefinger touched the star on his brow. The gleam left his eyes, and then the smith knew that it had come from the star, and that it must have been shining brightly, but now was dimmed. He was surprised and drew away angrily. "'Do you not think, Master Smith,' said Alf, "'that it is time for you to give this thing up?' "'What is that to you, Master Cook?' he answered. "'And why should I do so? Isn't it mine? It came to me. And may a man not keep things that—' "'Come to him so, at the least as a remembrance. "'Some things, those that are free gifts and given for remembrance. "'But others are not so given. "'They cannot belong to a man for ever, nor be treasured as heirlooms. "'They are lent. "'You have not thought, perhaps, that someone else may need this thing. "'But it is so. "'Time is pressing.' Then the smith was troubled, for he was a generous man, and he remembered with gratitude all that the star had brought to him. Then what should I do? he asked. Should I give it to one of the great in fairy? Should I give it to the king? And as he said this, a hope sprang in his heart that on such an errand he might once more enter fairy. You could give it to me, said Alf. "'but you might find that too hard. "'Will you come with me to my storeroom "'and put it back in the box where your grandfather laid it?' "'I did not know that,' said the smith. "'No one knew but me. "'I was the only one with him. "'Then I suppose that you know how he came by the star "'and why he put it in the box.' "'He brought it from fairy. "'That you know without asking,' Alf answered. He left it behind, in the hope that it might come to you, his only grandchild. So he told me, for he thought that I could arrange that. He was your mother's father. I do not know whether she told you much about him, if indeed she knew much to tell. Ryder was his name, and he was a great traveller. He had seen many things, and could do many things, before he settled down and became master cook. But he went away when you were only two years old, and they could find no one better to follow him than Noakes, poor man. Still, as we expected, I became master in time. This year I shall make another great cake, the only cook, as far as is remembered, ever to make a second one. I wish to put the star in it. Very well, you shall have it, said the smith. He looked at Alf as if he was trying to read his thought. Do you know who will find it? What is that to you, Master Smith? I should like to know, if you do, Master Cook. It might make it easier for me to part with the thing so dear to me. My daughter's child is too young. It might, and it might not. We shall see, said Alf. They said no more, and they went on their way until they passed out of fairy, 
and came back at last to the village. Then they walked to the hall, and in the world the sun was now setting, and a red light was in the windows. The gilded carvings on the great door glowed, and strange faces of many colours looked down from the water spout under the roof. Not long ago the hall had been reglazed and repainted, and there had been much debate on the council about it. Some disliked it and called it new-fangled, but some, with more knowledge, knew that it was a return to old custom. Still, since it had cost no one a penny, and the master cook must have paid for it himself, he was allowed to have his own way. But the smith had not seen it in such a light before, and he stood and looked at the hall in wonder, forgetting his errand. He felt a touch on his arm, and Alf led him round to a small door at the back. He opened it and led the smith down a dark passage into the storeroom. There he lit a tall candle, and unlocking a cupboard, he took down from a shelf the black box. It was polished now and adorned with silver scrolls. He raised the lid and showed it to the smith. One small compartment was empty. The others were now filled with spices, fresh and pungent, and the smith's eyes began to water. He put his hand to his forehead, and the star came away readily. But he felt a sudden stab of pain, and tears ran down his face. Though the star shone brightly again as it lay in his hand, he could not see it, except as a blurred dazzle of light that seemed far away. "'I cannot see clearly,' he said. "'You must put it in for me.' He held out his hand and Alf took the star and laid it in its place, and it went dark. The smith turned away without another word and groped his way through the door. On the threshold he found that his sight had cleared again. It was evening, and the even star was shining in a luminous sky close to the moon. As he stood for a moment looking at their beauty, he felt a hand on his shoulder and turned. "'You gave me that star freely,' said Alf. If you still wish to know to which child it will go, I will tell you. I do, indeed. It shall go to any one that you appoint. The smith was taken aback and did not answer at once. Well, he said, hesitating, I wonder what you may think of my choice. I believe you have little reason to love the name of Noakes. Well, his little great-grandson, Noakes of Townsend's Tim, is coming to the feast. Noakes of Townsend is quite different. I have observed that, said Alf. He had a wise mother. Yes, my Nell's sister. But apart from the kinship, I love little Tim, though he's not an obvious choice. Alf smiled. "'Neither were you,' he said. "'But I agree. "'Indeed, I had already chosen Tim.' "'Then why did you ask me to choose?' "'The Queen wished me to do so. "'If you had chosen differently, I should have given way.' "'The smith looked long at Alf. "'Then suddenly he bowed low. "'I understand at last, sir,' he said. You have done us too much honour. I have been repaid, said Alf. Go home now in peace. 
When the smith reached his own house on the western outskirts of the village, he found his son by the door of the forge. He had just locked it, for the day's work was done, and now he stood looking up the white road by which his father used to return from his journeys. Hearing footsteps, he turned in surprise to see him coming from the village, and he ran forward to meet him. He put his arms about him in loving welcome. "'I've been hoping for you since yesterday, Dad,' he said. Then, looking into his father's face, he said anxiously, "'How tired you look! You have walked far, maybe?' "'Very far indeed, my son. All the way from daybreak to evening.' They went into the house together, and it was dark except for the fire flickering on the hearth. His son lit candles, and for a while they sat by the fire, without speaking for a great weariness and bereavement was on the smith. At last he looked round, as if coming to himself, and he said, "'Why are we alone?' His son looked hard at him. "'Why? Mother's over at Minor, at Nan's. It's the little lad's second birthday. They hoped you would be there too.' "'Ah, oh, yes. I ought to have been. I should have been, Ned. But I was delayed.' "'and I have had matters to think of "'that put all else out of mine for a time. "'But I did not forget Tomling. "'He put his hand in his breast "'and drew out a little wallet of soft leather. "'I brought him something. "'A trinket, old Noakes maybe would call it. "'But it comes out of fairy, Ned.' "'Out of the wallet he took a little thing of silver. "'It was like the smooth stem of a tiny lily, "'from the top of which... "'came three delicate flowers bending down like shapely bells. "'And bells they were, for when he shook them gently, "'each flower rang with a small, clear note. "'At the sweet sound the candles flickered, "'and then for a moment shone with a white light. "'Ned's eyes were wide with wonder. "'May I look at it, Dad?' he said. "'He took it with careful fingers and peered into the flowers.' The work is a marvel, he said. And, Dad, there is a scent in the bells. A scent that reminds me of... Reminds me, well, of something I've forgotten. Yes. The scent comes for a little while after the bells have rung. But don't fear to handle it, Ned. It was made for a babe to play with. He can do it no harm, and he'll take none from it. The smith put the gift back in the wallet and stowed it away. "'I'll take it over to Wooden Minor myself tomorrow,' he said. "'Nan and her Tom and mother will forgive me, maybe. "'As for Tomling, his time has not yet come for the counting of days, "'and of weeks, and of months, and of years. "'That's right. You go, Dad. "'I'd be glad to go with you, but it will be some time before I can get over to Minor. "'I couldn't have gone today, even if I hadn't waited here for you.' "'There's a lot of work in hand, and more coming in.' "'No, no, Smith's son, make it a holiday. "'The name of Grandfather hasn't weakened my arms yet a while. "'Let the work come. "'There'll be two pairs of hands to tackle it now, all working days. "'I shall not be going on journeys again, Ned. "'Not on long ones, if you understand me. "'It's that way, is it, Dad?' I wondered what had become of the star. That's hard. He took his father's hand. 
I'm grieved for you. But there's good in it, too, for this house. Do you know, Master Smith, there is much you can teach me yet, if you have the time. And I do not mean only the working of iron. They had supper together, and long after they had finished, they still sat at the table, while the smith told his son of his last journey in fairy, and of other things that came to his mind. But about the choice of the next holder of the star, he said nothing. At last his son looked at him, and, Father, he said, do you remember the day when you came back with the flower, and I said that you looked like a giant by your shadow? The shadow was the truth. So it was the queen herself that you danced with. Yet you have given up the star. I hope it may go to someone as worthy. The child should be grateful. The child won't know, said the smith. That's the way with such gifts. Well, there it is. I have handed it on and come back to hammer and tongs. It is a strange thing, but old Noakes, who had scoffed at his apprentice, had never been able to put out of his mind the disappearance of the star in the cake, although that event had happened so many years ago. He had grown fat and lazy and retired from his office when he was sixty, no great age in the village. He was now near the end of his eighties, and was of enormous bulk, but he still ate heavily and doted on sugar. Most of his days, when not at table, he spent in a big chair by the window of his cottage, or by the door, if it was fine weather. He liked talking, since he still had many opinions to wear, but lately his talk mostly turned to the one great cake that he had made, as he was now firmly convinced, for whenever he fell asleep it came into his dreams. Prentice sometimes stopped for a word or two, so the old cook still called him, and he expected himself to be called Master. That Prentice was careful to do, which was a point in his favour, though there were others that Noakes was more fond of. One afternoon, Noakes was nodding in his chair by the door after his dinner. He woke with a start to find Prentice standing by and looking down at him. Hello, he said. I am glad to see you. Well, that cake's been on my mind again. I was thinking of it just now, in fact. It was the best cake I ever made, and that's saying something. But perhaps you have forgotten it. No, master, I remember it very well. But what is troubling you? It was a good cake, and it was enjoyed and praised. Oh, of course. I made it. But that doesn't trouble me. It's the little trinket. The star. I cannot make up my mind what became of it. Of course it wouldn't melt. I only said that to stop the children from being frightened. I have wondered if one of them did not swallow it. But is that likely? You might swallow one of those little coins and not notice it, but not that star. It was small, but it had sharp points. Yes, master. Do you really know what the star was made of? Don't trouble your mind about it. Someone swallowed it, I assure you. But then who? Well, I've a long memory, and that day sticks in it somehow. I can recall all the children's names. Let me think. It must have been Miller's Molly. She was greedy and bolted her food. <laughs> She's as fat as a sack now.
Yes, there are some folk who get like that, master. But Molly did not bolt her cake. She found two trinkets in her slice. Oh, did she? Well, it was Cooper's, Harry, then. A barrel of a boy with a big mouth like a frog's. I should have said, master, that he was a nice boy with a large, friendly grin. Anyway, he was so careful that he took his slice to pieces before he ate it. He found nothing but cake. Well, then it must have been that little pale girl, Draper's Lily. She used to swallow pins as a baby and came to no harm. Not Lily, master. She only ate the paste and the sugar and gave the inside to the boy that sat next to her. Oh, then I give up. Who was it? You seem to have been watching very closely. If you're not making it all up. It was the Smith's son, master. And I think it was good for him. Go on, laughed old Noakes. I ought to have known you were having a game with me. Don't be ridiculous. Smith was a quiet, slow boy then. He makes more noise now. Yeah, a bit of a songster, I hear. But he's cautious. No risks for him. Shoes twice before he swallows, and always did, if you take my meaning. I do, master. Well, if you won't believe it was Smith, I can't help you. Perhaps it doesn't matter much now. Will it ease your mind if I tell you that the star is back in the box now? Here it is. Prentice was wearing a dark green cloak, which Noakes now noticed for the first time. From its folds he produced the black box and opened it under the old cook's nose. There is the star master, down in the corner. Old Noakes began coughing and sneezing, but at last he looked into the box. Oh, so it is, he said. At least it looks like it. It is the same one, master. I put it there myself a few days ago. It will go back in the great cake this winter. Aha, said Noakes, leering at Prentice. And then he laughed till he shook like a jelly. I see, I see, twenty-four children and twenty-four lucky bits and the star with one extra. So you nipped it out before the baking and kept it for another time. You are always a tricky fellow, nimble, one might say, and thrifty. Wouldn't waste a bee's knee of butter. <laughs> so that was the way of it. I might have guessed. Well, that's cleared up. Now I can have a nap in peace. He settled down in his chair. You mind that prentice man of yours plays you no tricks? The artful don't know all the arts, they say. He closed his eyes. Goodbye, master, said Prentice, shutting the box with such a snap that the cook opened his eyes again. Noakes, he said, your knowledge is so great that I have only twice ventured to tell you anything. I told you that the star came from Fairy, and I have told you that it went to the Smith. You laughed at me. Now, at parting, I will tell you one thing more. 
Don't laugh again. You are a vain old fraud, fat, idle, and sly. I did most of your work. Without thanks, you learned all that you could from me, except respect for fairy and a little courtesy. You have not even enough to bid me good day. If it comes to courtesy, said Noakes, I see none in calling your elders and betters by ill names. Take your fairy, and your nonsense somewhere else. Good day to you, if that's what you're waiting for. Now go along with you. He flapped his hand mockingly. If you've got one of your fairy friends hidden in the kitchen, send him to me and I'll have a look at him. If he waves his little wand and makes me thin again, I'll think better of him. He laughed. Would you spare a few moments for the king of fairy? The other answered. To Noak's dismay, he grew taller as he spoke. He threw back his cloak. He was dressed like a master cook at a feast, but his white garments shimmered and glinted, and on his forehead was a great jewel like a radiant star. His face was young but stern. Old man, he said, you are at least not my elder. As to my better, you have often sneered at me behind my back. Do you challenge me now, openly? He stepped forward, and Noakes shrank from him, trembling. He tried to shout for help, but found that he could hardly whisper. No, 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 sir, he croaked. D don't do me a harm. I'm only a poor old man. The king's face softened. Alas, yes, you speak the truth. Do not be afraid, be at ease. But will you not expect the King of Fairy to do something for you before he leaves? I grant you your wish. Farewell. Now go to sleep. He wrapped his cloak about him again and went away towards the hall. But before he was out of sight, the old cook's goggling eyes had shut, and he was snoring. When the old cook woke again, the sun was going down. He rubbed his eyes and shivered a little, for the autumn air was chilly. Oh, what a dream, he said. It must have been that pork at dinner. From that day, he became so afraid of having more bad dreams of that sort that he hardly dared eat anything for fear that it might upset him and his meals became very short and plain. He soon became lean, and his clothes and his skin hung on him in folds and creases. The children called him old rag and bones. Then, for a time, he found that he could get about the village again and walk with no more help than a stick, and he lived many years longer than he would otherwise have done. Indeed, it is said that he just made his century, the only memorable thing he ever achieved. But till his last year, he could be heard saying to any that would listen to his tale, Alarming, you might call it, but a silly dream when you come to think of it. King of fairy, why, he hadn't no wand. And if you stop eating, you grow thinner. That's natural. Stands to reason. There ain't no magic in it. The time for the twenty-four feast came round. Smith was there to sing songs, and his wife to help with the children. 
Smith looked at them as they sang and danced, and he thought that they were more beautiful and lively than they had been in his boyhood. For a moment it crossed his mind to wonder what Alf might have been doing in his spare time. Any one of them seemed fit to find the star. But his eyes were mostly on Tim, a rather plump little boy, clumsy in the dances, but with a sweet voice in the singing. At table he sat silent, watching the sharpening of the knife and the cutting of the cake. Suddenly he piped up, "'Dear Mr. Cook, only cut me a small slice, please. I've eaten so much already, I feel rather full.' "'All right, Tim,' said Alf. "'I'll cut you a special slice. I think you'll find it go down easily.' Smith watched as Tim ate his cake slowly, but with evident pleasure, though when he found no trinket or coin in it he looked disappointed. But soon a light began to shine in his eyes, and he laughed and became merry and sang softly to himself. Then he got up and began to dance, all alone, with an odd grace that he had never shown before. The children all laughed and clapped. All is well, then, thought Smith. So you are my heir. I wonder what strange places the star will lead you to. Poor old Noakes. Still, I suppose he will never know what a shocking thing has happened in his family. He never did. But one thing happened at that feast that pleased him mightily. Before it was over, the master cook took leave of the children and of all the others that were present. I will say good-bye now, he said. In a day or two I shall be going away. Master Harper is quite ready to take over. He is a very good cook. "'and as you know he comes from your own village. "'I shall go back home. "'I do not think you will miss me.' "'The children said good-bye cheerfully "'and thanked the cook prettily for his beautiful cake. "'Only little Tim took his hand and said quietly, "'I'm sorry.' "'In the village there were in fact several families "'that did miss Alf for some time.' A few of his friends, especially Smith and Harper, grieved at his going, and they kept the hall gilded and painted in memory of Alf. Most people, however, were content. They had had him for a very long time, and were not sorry to have a change. But old Noakes thumped his stick on the floor and said roundly, "'He's gone at last, and I'm glad, for one, I never liked him. He was artful.' Too nimble, you might say. By Niggle. There was once a little man called Niggle, 
who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he would have to start some time, but he did not hurry with his preparations. Nigel was a painter, not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these things he thought were a nuisance, but he did them fairly well when he could not get out of them, which, in his opinion, was far too often. The laws in his country were rather strict. There were other hindrances too. For one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted in a way. You know the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything, and even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper, and swearing, mostly to himself. All the same, it did land him in a good many odd jobs for his neighbour, Mister Parish, a man with a lame leg. Occasionally, he even helped other people from further off if they came and asked him to. Also, now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. He had a number of pictures on hand. Most of them were too large and ambitious for his skill. He was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch its shape and its sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges. Yet he wanted to paint a whole tree with all of its leaves in the same style and all of them different. There was one picture in particular which bothered him. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind. And it became a tree, and the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and thrusting out the most fantastic roots. Strange birds came and settled on the twigs and had to be attended to. Then, all round the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. Nigel lost interest in his other pictures, or else he took them and tacked them on to the edges of his great picture. Soon the canvas became so large that he had to get a ladder, and he ran up and down it, putting in a touch here and rubbing out a patch there. When people came to call, he seemed polite enough, though he fiddled a little with the pencils on his desk. He listened to what they said, but underneath he was thinking all the time about his big canvas. In the tall shed that had been built for it out in his garden, on a plot where once he had grown potatoes, he could not get rid of his kind heart. I wish I was more strong-minded, he sometimes said to himself, meaning that he wished other people's troubles did not make him feel uncomfortable. But for a long time he was not seriously perturbed. At any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture. Before I have to go on that wretched journey, he used to say. Yet he was beginning to see that he could not put off his start indefinitely. The picture would have to stop just growing, and get finished. One day, Nigel stood a little way off from his picture and considered it with unusual attention and detachment. He could not make up his mind what he thought about it, and wished he had some friend who would tell him what to think. Actually, it seemed to him wholly unsatisfactory. 
and yet very lovely, and the only really beautiful picture in the world. What he would have liked at that moment would have been to see himself walk in and slap him on the back and say, with obvious sincerity, "Absolutely magnificent! I see exactly what you are getting at. Do get on with it and don't bother about anything else. We will arrange for a public pension so that you need not." However, there was no public pension, and one thing he could see: it would need some concentration, some work. Hard, uninterrupted work to finish the picture, even at its present size. He rolled up his sleeves and began to concentrate. He tried for several days not to bother about other things, but there came a tremendous crop of interruptions. Things went wrong in his house. He had to go and serve on a jury in the town. A distant friend fell ill. Mister Parish was laid up with lumbago. And visitors kept on coming. It was springtime, and they wanted a free tea in the country. Niggle lived in a pleasant little house miles away from the town. He cursed them in his heart, but he could not deny that he had invited them himself, away back in the winter, when he had not thought it an interruption to visit the shops and have tea with acquaintances in the town. He tried to harden his heart, but it was not a success. There were many things that he had not the face to say no to, whether he thought them duties or not, and there were some things he was compelled to do, whatever he thought. Some of his visitors hinted that his garden was rather neglected, and that he might get a visit from an inspector. Very few of them knew about his picture, of course, but if they had known, it would not have made much difference. I doubt if they would have thought that it mattered much. I dare say it was not really a very good picture, though it may have had some good passages. The tree, at any rate, was curious, quite unique in its way. So was Niggle, though he was also a very ordinary and rather silly little man. At length, Niggle's time became really precious. His acquaintances in the distant town began to remember that the little man had got to make a troublesome journey. And some began to calculate how long, at the latest, he could put off starting. They wondered who would take his house, and if the garden would be better kept. The autumn came, very wet and windy. The little painter was in his shed. He was up on the ladder, trying to catch the gleam of the westering sun on the peak of a snow mountain, which he had glimpsed just to the left of the leafy tip of one of the tree's branches. He knew that he would have to be leaving soon. Perhaps early next year, he could only just get the picture finished, and only so-so at that. There were some corners where he would not have time now to do more than hint at what he wanted. There was a knock on the door. "Come in," he said sharply, and climbed down the ladder. He stood on the floor, twiddling his brush. It was his neighbour Parish, his only real neighbour. All other folk lived a long way off. Still, he did not like the man very much, partly because he was so often in trouble and in need of help, and also because he did not care about painting, but was very critical about gardening. When Parish looked at Niggle's garden, which was often, he saw mostly weeds, and when he looked at Niggle's pictures, which was seldom, he saw only green and grey patches and black lines, which seemed to him nonsensical. He did not mind mentioning the weeds, a neighbourly duty, 
but he refrained from giving any opinion of the pictures. He thought this was very kind, and did not realize that even if it was kind, it was not kind enough. Help with the weeds, and perhaps praise for the pictures would have been better. Well, Parish, what is it? said Niggle. I, I oughtn't to interrupt you, I know, said Parish, without a glance at the picture. Y you are very busy, I'm sure. Niggle had meant to say something like that himself, but he had missed his chance. All he said was, Yes, but I have no one else to turn to, said Parish. Quite so, said Niggle, with a sigh. One of those sighs that are a private comment, but which are not made quite inaudible. What can I do for you? My wife has been ill for some days, and I'm getting worried, said Parrish. And the wind has blown half the tiles off my roof, and the water's pouring into the bedroom. I think I ought to get the doctor, and the builders too, only they take so long to come. I was wondering if you had any wood and canvas you could spare, just to patch me up and see me through for a day or two. Now he did look at the picture. Oh, dear, dear, said Niggle, you are unlucky. I hope it is no more than a cold that your wife has got. I'll come round presently and help you move the patient downstairs. Thank you very much, said Parrish, rather coolly. But it is not a cold. It is a fever. I should not have bothered you for a cold. And my wife is in bed downstairs already. I can't get up and down with trays, not with my leg. But I see you are busy. Sorry to have troubled you. I had rather hoped you might have been able to spare the time to go for the doctor, seeing how I'm placed, and the builder too. If you really have no canvas you can spare... Of course, said Niggle, though other words were in his heart, which at the moment was merely soft, without feeling at all kind. I could go. I'll go if you are really worried. I am worried. Very worried. I wish I was not lame, said Parrish. So Niggle went. You see, it was awkward. Parrish was his neighbour and everyone else a long way off. Niggle had a bicycle, and Parrish had not, and could not ride one. Parrish had a lame leg, a genuine lame leg, which gave him a good deal of pain. That had to be remembered, as well as his sour expression and whining voice. Of course, Niggle had a picture and barely time to finish it, but it seemed that this was a thing that Parrish had to reckon with, and not Niggle. Parrish, however, did not reckon with pictures, and Niggle could not alter that. Curse it, he said to himself as he got out his bicycle. It was wet and windy, and daylight was waning. No more work for me today, thought Niggle, and all the time that he was riding he was either swearing to himself or imagining the strokes of his brush on the mountain and on the spray of leaves beside it that he had first imagined in the spring. His fingers twitched on the handlebars. Now he was out of the shed, he saw exactly the way in which to treat that shining spray which framed the distant vision of the mountain. But he had a sinking feeling in his heart, a sort of fear, that he would never now get a chance to try it out. Niggle found the doctor, and he left a note at the builder's. 
The office was shut and the builder had gone home to his fireside. Niggle got soaked to the skin and caught a chill himself. The doctor did not set out as promptly as Niggle had done. He arrived next day, which was quite convenient for him, as by that time there were two patients to deal with in neighbouring houses. Niggle was in bed with a high temperature and marvellous patterns of leaves and involved branches forming in his head and on the ceiling. It did not comfort him to learn that Mrs. Parrish had only had a cold and was getting up. He turned his face to the wall and buried himself in leaves. He remained in bed some time. The wind went on blowing. It took away a good many more of Parrish's tiles, and some of Niggles as well. His own roof began to leak. The builder did not come. Niggle did not care, not for a day or two. Then he crawled out to look for some food. Niggle had no wife. Parrish did not come round. The rain had got into his leg and made it ache, and his wife was busy mopping up water and wondering if that Mr. Niggle had forgotten to call at the builder's. Had she seen any chance of borrowing anything useful, she would have sent Parrish round, leg or no leg. But she did not, so Niggle was left to himself. At the end of a week or so, Niggle tottered out to his shed again. He tried to climb the ladder, but it made his head giddy. He sat and looked at the picture, but there were no patterns of leaves or visions of mountains in his mind that day. He could have painted a far-off view of a sandy desert, but he had not the energy. Next day he felt a good deal better. He climbed the ladder and began to paint. He had just begun to get into it again when there came a knock on the door. "'Damn!' said Niggle. But he might just as well have said, "'Come in,' politely, for the door opened all the same. This time a very tall man came in, a total stranger. "'This is a private studio,' said Niggle. "'I'm busy. Go away.' "'I am an inspector of houses,' said the man, holding up his appointment card so that Niggle on his ladder could see it. Oh, he said. Your neighbour's house is not satisfactory at all, said the inspector. I know, said Niggle. I took a note to the builders a long time ago, but they have never come. Then I have been ill. I see, said the inspector. But you are not ill now. But I'm not a builder. Parish ought to make a complaint to the town council and get help from the emergency service. They are busy with worse damage than any up here, said the inspector. There has been a flood in the valley and many families are homeless. You should have helped your neighbour to make temporary repairs and prevent the damage from getting more costly to mend than necessary. That is the law. There is plenty of material here, canvas, wood, waterproof paint. Where? asked Niggle indignantly. There said the inspector, pointing to the picture. "'My picture!' exclaimed Niggle. "'I dare say it is,' said the inspector. "'But houses come first. That is the law.' "'But I can't!' Niggle said no more, for at that moment another man came in, very much like the inspector he was, almost his double, tall, dressed all in black. "'Come along!' 
he said. I am the driver. Niggles stumbled down from his ladder. His fever seemed to have come on again, and his head was swimming. He felt cold all over. Driver? Driver? he chattered. Driver of what? You and your carriage, said the man. The carriage was ordered long ago. It has come at last. It's waiting. You start today on your journey, you know. There now, said the inspector. You'll have to go. But it's a bad way to start on your journey, leaving your jobs undone. Still, we can at least make some use of this canvas now. Oh, dear, said poor Niggle, beginning to weep. And it's not even finished. Not finished, said the driver. Well, it's finished with, as far as you're concerned, at any rate. Come along. Niggle went. Quite quietly. The driver gave him no time to pack, saying that he ought to have done that before, and that they would miss the train. So all Nickel could do was to grab a little bag in the hall. He found that it contained only a paint box and a small book of his own sketches, neither food nor clothes. They caught the train all right. Niggle was feeling very tired and sleepy. He was hardly aware of what was going on when they bundled him into a compartment. He did not care much. He had forgotten where he was supposed to be going, or what he was going for. The train ran almost at once into a dark tunnel. Niggle woke up in a very large, dim railway station. A porter went along the platform shouting, but he was not shouting the name of the place. He was shouting, Niggle! Niggle got out in a hurry, and found that he had left his little bag behind. He turned back, but the train had gone away. Ah, oh, there you are, said the porter. This way. What? No luggage? You will have to go to the workhouse. Niggle felt very ill and fainted on the platform. They put him in an ambulance and took him to the workhouse infirmary. He did not like the treatment at all. The medicine they gave him was bitter. The officials and attendants were unfriendly, silent, and strict, and he never saw anyone else except a very severe doctor who visited him occasionally. It was more like being in a prison than a hospital. He had to work hard at stated hours, at digging, carpentry, and painting bare boards, all one plain colour. He was never allowed outside, and the windows all looked inwards. They kept him in the dark for hours at a stretch. To do some thinking, they said. He lost count of time. He did not even begin to feel better. Not if that could be judged by whether he felt any pleasure in doing anything. He did not. Not even in getting into bed. At first, during the first century or so, I am merely giving his impressions, he used to worry aimlessly about the past. One thing he kept on repeating to himself as he lay in the dark. I wish I had called on Parish the first morning after the high winds began. I meant to. The first loose tiles would have been easy to fix. Then Mrs. Parish might never have caught cold. Then I should not have caught cold either. Then I should have had a week longer. But in time he forgot what it was that he wanted a week longer for. 
If he worried at all after that, it was about his jobs in the hospital. He planned them out, thinking how quickly he could stop that board creaking, or rehang that door, or mend that table leg. Probably he really became rather useful, though no one ever told him so. But that, of course, cannot have been the reason why they kept the poor little man so long. They may have been waiting for him to get better, and judging better by some odd medical standard of their own. At any rate, poor Niggle got no pleasure out of life, not what he had been used to call pleasure. He was certainly not amused, but it could not be denied that he began to have a feeling of, well, satisfaction. Bread rather than jam. He could take up a task the moment one bell rang, and lay it aside promptly the moment the next one went, all tidy and ready to be continued at the right time. He got through quite a lot in a day now. He finished small things off neatly. He had no time of his own, except alone in his bed cell, and yet he was becoming master of his time. He began to know just what he could do with it. There was no sense of rush. He was quieter inside now, and at resting time he could really rest. Then suddenly they changed all his hours. They hardly let him go to bed at all. They took him off carpentry altogether and kept him at plain digging day after day. He took it fairly well. It was a long while before he even began to grope in the back of his mind for the curses that he had practically forgotten. He went on digging till his back seemed broken, his hands were raw, and he felt that he could not manage another spadeful. Nobody thanked him, but the doctor came and looked at him. Knock off, he said. Complete rest. In the dark. Niggle was lying in the dark, resting completely, so that, as he had not been either feeling or thinking at all, he might have been lying there for hours. Or for years, as far as he could tell. But now he heard voices, not voices that he had ever heard before. There seemed to be a medical board, or perhaps a court of inquiry going on close at hand, in an adjoining room with the door open, possibly, though he could not see any light. Now the niggle case, said a voice, a severe voice, more severe than the doctor's. What was the matter with him? said a second voice, a voice that you might have called gentle, though it was not soft, it was a voice of authority, and sounded at once hopeful and sad. What was the matter with Niggle? His heart was in the right place. Yes, but it did not function properly, said the first voice, and his head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He was moderately well off, and yet he arrived here almost destitute and had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I'm afraid. I think he should stay some time yet. It would not do him any harm, perhaps, said the second voice. But of course he is only a little man. He was never meant to be anything very much. And he was never very strong. Let us look at the records. Yes, there are some favourable points, you know. Perhaps, said the first voice, but very few that will really bear examination. Well, said the second voice, 
There are these. He was a painter by nature, in a minor way, of course. Still, a leaf by niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with leaves just for their own sake, but he never thought that that made him important. There is no note in the records of his pretending, even to himself, that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. Then he should not have neglected so many, said the first voice. All the same, he did answer a good many calls. A small percentage, mostly of the easier sort, and he called those interruptions. The records are full of the word, together with a lot of complaints and silly imprecations. True, but they looked like interruptions to him, of course, poor little man. And there is this. He never expected any return, as so many of his sort call it. There is the parish case, the one that came in later. He was Niggle's neighbour. Never did a stroke for him, and seldom showed any gratitude at all. But there is no note in the records that Niggle expected Parrish's gratitude, and he does not seem to have thought about it. Yes, that is a point, said the first voice, but rather small. I think you will find Niggle often merely forgot. Things he had to do for Parrish he put out of his mind as a nuisance he had done with. "'Still there is this last report,' said the second voice. "'That wet bicycle ride. "'I rather lay stress on that. "'It seems plain that this was a genuine sacrifice. "'Niggle guessed that he was throwing away his last chance with his picture, "'and he guessed, too, that Parrish was worrying unnecessarily. "'I think you put it too strongly,' said the first voice. "'But you had the last word.' It is your task, of course, to put the best interpretation on the facts. Sometimes they will bear it. What do you propose? I think it is a case for a little gentle treatment now, said the second voice. Niggle thought that he had never heard anything so generous as that voice. It made gentle treatment sound like a load of rich gifts and a summons to a king's feast. Then suddenly Niggle felt ashamed. To hear that he was considered a case for gentle treatment overwhelmed him and made him blush in the dark. It, it was like being publicly praised when you and all the audience knew that the praise was not deserved. Niggle hid his blushes in the rough blanket. There was a silence. Then the first voice spoke to Niggle quite close. You have been listening, it said. Yes, said Niggle. Well? "'What have you to say?' "'Could you tell me about Parrish?' said Niggle. "'I should like to see him again. "'I hope he is not very ill. "'Can you cure his leg? "'It used to give him such a wretched time. "'And please don't worry about him and me. "'He was a very good neighbour, "'and let me have excellent potatoes, very cheap, "'which saved me a lot of time.' "'Did he?' said the first voice. "'I am glad to hear it.' There was another silence. Niggle heard the voices receding. Well, I agree, he heard the first voice say in the distance. Let him go on to the next stage. Tomorrow, if you like. Niggle woke up to find that his blinds were drawn and his little cell was full of sunshine. 
He got up and found that some comfortable clothes had been put out for him, not hospital uniform. After breakfast, the doctor treated his sore hands, putting some salve on them that healed them at once. He gave Niggle some good advice and a bottle of tonic, in case he needed it. In the middle of the morning, they gave Niggle a biscuit and a glass of wine, and then they gave him a ticket. "'You can go to the railway station now,' said the doctor. "'The porter will look after you. Goodbye.' Niggle slipped out of the main door and blinked a little. The sun was very bright. Also, he had expected to walk out into a large town to match the size of the station, but he did not. He was on the top of a hill, green, bare, swept by a keen, invigorating wind. Nobody else was about. Away down under the hill, he could see the roof of the station shining. He walked downhill to the station briskly, but without hurry. The porter spotted him at once. This way, he said, and led Niggle to a bay in which there was a very pleasant little local train standing. One coach and a small engine, both very bright, clean and newly painted. It looked as if this was their first run. Even the track that lay in front of the engine looked new. The rails shone, the chairs were painted green, and the sleepers gave off a delicious smell of fresh tar in the warm sunshine. The coach was empty. "'Where does this train go, Porter?' asked Niggle. "'I don't think they have fixed its name yet,' said the porter. "'But you'll find it all right.' He shut the door. The train moved off at once. Niggle lay back in his seat. The little engine puffed along in a deep cutting with high green banks, roofed with blue sky. It did not seem very long before the engine gave a whistle. The brakes were put on and the train stopped. There was no station and no signboard, only a flight of steps up the green embankment. At the top of the steps there was a wicket gate and a trim hedge. By the gate stood his bicycle, at least it looked like his, and there was a yellow label tied to the bars with Niggle written on it in large black letters. Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling along over a marvellous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level, as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Nickel looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree. His tree. Finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch... He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever laboured at were there, as he had imagined them, rather than as he had made them.
and there were many others that had only budded in his mind, and many that might have budded, if only he had had time. Nothing was written on them, they were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful, and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the niggle style, were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. The birds were building in the tree, astonishing birds, how they sang. They were mating, hatching, growing wings, and flying away singing into the forest, even while he looked at them. For now he saw that the forest was there too, opening out on either side and marching away into the distance. The mountains were glimmering far away. After a time, Niggle turned towards the forest. Not because he was tired of the tree, but he seemed to have got it all clear in his mind now, and was aware of it, and of its growth, even when he was not looking at it. As he walked away, he discovered an odd thing. The forest, of course, was a distant forest, yet he could approach it, even enter it, without its losing that particular charm. He had never before been able to walk into the distance, without turning it into mere surroundings. It really added a considerable attraction to walking in the country, because as you walked, new distances opened out, so that you now had double, treble, and quadruple distances, doubly, trebly, and quadruply enchanting. You could go on and on, and have a whole country in a garden, or in a picture, if you preferred to call it that. You could go on and on, but not perhaps forever. There were the mountains in the background. They did get nearer, very slowly. They did not seem to belong to the picture, or only as a link to something else, a glimpse through the trees of something different, a further stage, another picture. Niggle walked about. But he was not merely pottering. He was looking round carefully. The tree was finished though not finished with, just the other way about to what it used to be, he thought. But in the forest there were a number of inconclusive regions that still needed work and thought. Nothing needed altering any longer, nothing was wrong as far as it had gone, but it needed continuing up to a definite point. Niggle saw the point precisely in each case. He sat down under a very beautiful, distant tree, a variation of the great tree, but quite individual, or it would be with a little more attention, and he considered where to begin work, and where to end it, and how much time was required. He could not quite work out his scheme. Of course, he said, what I need is parish. There are lots of things about earth, plants and trees that he knows that I don't. This place cannot be left just as my private park. I need help and advice. I ought to have got it sooner. He got up and walked to the place where he had decided to begin work. He took off his coat. Then, down in a little sheltered hollow, hidden from a further view, he saw a man looking round, rather bewildered. He was leaning on a spade, but plainly did not know what to do. Niggle hailed him. Parish, he called. Parrish shouldered his spade and came up to him. He still limped a little. They did not speak, 
just nodded as they used to do, passing in the lane, but now they walked about together, arm in arm. Without talking, Niggle and Parrish agreed exactly where to make the small house and the garden, which seemed to be required. As they worked together, it became plain that Niggle was now the better of the two at ordering his time and getting things done. Oddly enough, it was Niggle who became most absorbed in building and gardening, while Parrish often wandered about looking at trees, and especially at the tree. One day, Niggle was busy planting a quickset hedge, and Parrish was lying on the grass nearby, looking attentively at a beautiful and shapely little yellow flower growing in the green turf. Niggle had put a lot of them among the roots of his tree long ago. Suddenly, Parrish looked up. His face was glistening in the sun, and he was smiling. This is grand, he said. I oughtn't to be here, really. Thank you for putting in a word for me. Nonsense, said Niggle. I don't remember what I said, but anyway, it was not nearly enough. Oh, yes, it was, said Parrish. It got me out a lot sooner. That second voice, you know. He had me sent here. He said you had asked to see me. I owe it to you. No, you owe it to the second voice, said Niggle. We both do. They went on living and working together. I do not know how long. It is no use denying that at first they occasionally disagreed, especially when they got tired, but at first they did sometimes get tired. They found that they had both been provided with tonics. Each bottle had the same label, a few drops to be taken in water from the spring before resting. They found the spring in the heart of the forest. Only once long ago had Niggle imagined it but he had never drawn it. Now he perceived that it was the source of the lake that glimmered far away, and the nourishment of all that grew in the country. The few drops made the water astringent rather bitter, but invigorating, and it cleared the head. After drinking, they rested alone, and then they got up again, and things went on merrily. At such times, Niggle would think of wonderful new flowers and plants, and Parrish always knew exactly how to set them and where they would do best. Long before the tonics were finished, they had ceased to need them. Parrish lost his limp. As their work drew to an end, they allowed themselves more and more time for walking about, looking at the trees and the flowers, and the lights and shapes and the lie of the land. Sometimes they sang together, but Niggle found that he was now beginning to turn his eyes more and more often towards the mountains. The time came when the house in the hollow, the garden, the grass, the forest, the lake, and all the country was nearly complete in its own proper fashion. The great tree was in full blossom. We shall finish this evening, said Parrish one day. After that we will go for a really long walk. They set out next day, and they walked until they came right through the distances to the edge. It was not visible, of course. There was no line or fence or wall, but they knew that they had come to the margin of that country. They saw a man. He looked like a shepherd. He was walking towards them down the grass slopes that led up into the mountains. Do you want a guide? he asked. Do you want to go on? For a moment, 
a shadow fell between Niggle and Parrish, for Niggle knew that he did now want to go on, and in a sense ought to go on. But Parrish did not want to go on, and was not yet ready to go on. I must wait for my wife, said Parrish to Niggle. She'd be lonely. I rather gathered that they would send her after me some time or other when she was ready and when I had got things ready for her. The house is finished now, as well as we could make it, but I should like to show it to her. She'll be able to make it better, I expect, more homely. I hope she'll like this country, too. He turned to the shepherd. Are you a guide? he asked. Could you tell me the name of this country? Don't you know? said the man. It is Niggle's country. It is Niggle's picture, or most of it. A little of it is now Parrish's garden. Niggle's picture, said Parrish, in astonishment. Did you think of all this, Niggle? I never knew you were so clever. Why didn't you tell me? He tried to tell you long ago, said the man, but you would not look. He had only got canvas and paint in those days, and you wanted to mend your roof with them. This is what you and your wife used to call Niggle's nonsense, or that daubing. But it did not look like this then. Not real, said Parrish. No, it was only a glimpse then, said the man. But you might have caught the glimpse, if you had ever thought it worth while to try. I did not give you much of a chance, said Niggle. I never tried to explain. I used to call you old earth grubber. But what does it matter? We have lived and worked together now. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. All the same, I am afraid I shall have to be going on. We shall meet again, I expect. There must be many more things we can do together. Goodbye. He shook Parrish's hand warmly, a good, firm, honest hand, it seemed. He turned and looked back for a moment. The blossom on the great tree was shining like flame. All the birds were flying in the air and singing. Then he smiled and nodded to Parrish and went off with the shepherd. He was going to learn about sheep and the high pasturages and look at a wider sky and walk ever further and further towards the mountains, always uphill. Beyond that, I cannot guess what became of him. Even little Niggle in his old home could glimpse the mountains far away, and they got into the borders of his picture. But what they are really like, and what lies beyond them, only those can say who have climbed them. I think he was a silly little man, said Councillor Tompkins. Worthless, in fact, no use to society at all. Oh, I don't know, said Atkins, who was nobody of importance, just a schoolmaster. I am not so sure. It depends on what you mean by use. No practical or economic use, said Tompkins. I dare say he could have been made into a serviceable cog of some sort if you schoolmasters knew your business, but you don't, and so we get useless people of his sort. If I ran this country, I should put him in his like to some job that they're fit for, washing dishes in a communal kitchen or something, and I should see that they did it properly, or I would put them away. I should have put him away long ago. Put him away? 
You mean you'd have made him start on the journey before his time? Yes, if you must use that meaningless old expression, push him through the tunnel into the great rubbish heap. That's what I mean. Then you don't think painting is worth anything? Not worth preserving or improving or even making use of? Of course painting has its uses, said Tompkins. But you couldn't make use of his painting. There is plenty of scope for bold young men, not afraid of new ideas and new methods. None for this old-fashioned stuff. Private daydreaming. He could not have designed a telling poster to save his life. Always fiddling with leaves and flowers. I asked him why once. He said he thought they were pretty. Can you believe it? He said, pretty. What? Digestive and genital organs of plants, I said to him. And he had nothing to answer. Silly footler. Footler, sighed Atkins. Yes, poor little man, he never finished anything. Ah, well, his canvases have been put to better uses since he went. But I am not so sure, Tompkins. You remember that large one, the one they used to patch the damaged house next door to his after the gales and floods? I found a corner of it torn off lying in a field. It was damaged, but legible. A mountain peak and a spray of leaves. I can't get it out of my mind. Out of your what? said Tompkins. Who are you two talking about? said Perkins. "'intervening in the cause of peace. "'Atkins had flushed rather red. "'The name's not worth repeating,' said Tompkins. "'I don't know why we're talking about him at all. "'He did not live in town.' "'No,' said Atkins. "'But you had your eye on his house all the same. "'That is why you used to go and call "'and sneer at him while drinking his tea. "'Well, you've got his house now, "'as well as the one in town, "'so you need not grudge him his name.' We were talking about Niggle, if you want to know, Perkins. Oh, poor little Niggle, said Perkins. Never knew he painted. That was probably the last time Niggle's name ever came up in conversation. However, Atkins preserved the odd corner. Most of it crumbled, but one beautiful leaf remained intact. Atkins had it framed. Later, he left it to the town museum. And for a long time, Leaf, by Niggle, hung there in a recess, and was noticed by a few eyes. But eventually the museum was burnt down, and the Leaf and Niggle were entirely forgotten in his old country. It is proving very useful indeed, said the second voice. As a holiday and a refreshment, it is splendid for convalescence, and not only for that, for many it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I am sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. No, that is so, said the first voice. I think we shall have to give the region a name. What do you propose? The porter settled that some time ago, said the second voice. Train for Niggles Parish in the Bay. He has shouted that for a long while now. Niggles Parish. I sent a message to both of them to tell them. 
What did they say? They both laughed, laughed. The mountains rang with it. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this HarperCollins audiobook. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.